Good morning, everyone. Um, it's wonderful to be here. I'll try that again. Good morning, everyone. Okay. okay, awesome. We have guests in the house, and thank you all for being here. Um, I just have to tell you, it's just so exciting. Thank you for joining us today for today's meeting here in Indianapolis. Um, I'm Susan Brooks, uh, former representative of Indiana's 5th Congressional District, and um, very proud uh, and honored uh, to have the Indianapolis Motor Speedway host us today. I'm here with colleagues, and uh, we want to also begin by just thanking our fiscal sponsor, Hudson Institute. Some of us know Hudson Institute. They used to be here in Indianapolis, and our donors um, for their support. We wouldn't be able to host meetings like this without their support. I particularly like to extend my utmost gratitude to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, their president, Doug Bowles, who, who you'll hear from in a short time, and all of the staff here at the Motor Speedway who work very hard to make this location perfect, made it possible for us to hold this meeting here at this historic location. Um, I would like to invite my old friend, uh, Doug Bowles, to please come forward and uh, make a few remarks. And where would you like him, Asha? Wherever he would like to be. Okay. That's <laughs> <laughs> loud. Can you hear me okay? I just want to say thank you for coming. Uh, when Representative Bricks called and said we'd be interested in hosting this event here, we were excited to say yes because we don't get to have the Indianapolis 500 without the support of law enforcement from the most local level to the most national level. On race day here, this May, for the Indy 500, we had 330,000 people in this day. We are the world's largest sporting venue with 235,000 permanent seats, 100,000 people in the infield. It is the second largest city in the state of Indiana inside the racetrack on race day. And we can't do it without all of the other things that cities and states have to do inside the racetrack. So it doesn't matter in law enforcement, whether it's ambulance services or whether it's keeping our customers safe and working with our unified command to not just coming through the gates, but all of the things that you guys are going to talk about today. So Sergeant Brown with IMPD is one of our most trusted partners who helps us think through how are we prepared for biodefense situations. Really over the last 10 years, we've worked directly with the National Guard, with IMPD, and with our folks at the Department of Defense to make sure that we keep our customers safe. We have groups walking grounds with sensors. We have sensors on the grounds to think about how are we protecting folks here. When we're on a day like today with nothing going on, that's flu test, we use this facility Make sure that we're here. We have folks here, but we also want to use this facility, folks like you, as a learning ground so that we go to other events or other communities. We can test things here. Practice built in 1909 test the new technology. They think about the complete night. That's all about the way the horse drawn carriage to the horseless and lots of automobile made it. A guy named Carl Fisher, the 150 years ago, the middle of the out starts. Test new technology today. Fight all over the world to come test their cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I like to think that if Carl Fisher were alive today, we'd be excited. We're still racing cars here, but meetings like this, where we're talking about new technology, can be more important to our community, to our state, and our state. And be very proud to think that's what is that's what's in our DNA. Having you all here, Congressman Brooks called, made for us to say yes. Those of you that aren't familiar with race hands, best known for the Indianapolis 500, that are 107, 500 last day, 240 today, so we didn't have the 108 running of the 500, my favorite day of the year when all those folks come here 
for that. Every state that you can. Thank you. Our crowd here, almost 40 as we celebrate our freedom of our country, the men and women who third inning, some of those men and women, and the ultimate sacrifice that we can have need like this in a free country. So that is one of the things that we pride ourselves and think that we give thanks to those who allow us. So thank thank so much for being here. Uh, to get a chance. Uh, and you can go to the yard. Yard critics that all our yard critics and our start finish line that you can go out there and check this out. And thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to get our skipping. So you might eat all our little farm national dark help us stay can we please give Doug and his team a round of applause? Thank you, Doug. There's not much more I can say about the Indianapolis Motor Speedway except the entire month of May. Um, it, this is the place to be in the world. And so um, also what Doug uh, didn't mention and what we will touch on as well today, when the pandemic hit in 2020, the Indy 500 was postponed, making it the first time since 1946 that the race wouldn't be held on Memorial Day weekend. Drivers later participated in an empty stadium when race day eventually came. The Speedway took the advice from public health and biodefense uh, officials before and throughout the pandemic to keep communities and our communities safe. Um, a great example of this is the partnership then that formed with the State Department of Health, where the Speedway became the vaccination and testing site or the hub 90,000 people came here and were vaccinated. So the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was the hub of safety. I'm excited. We're also going to hear today from Dr. Julia Vazer. She is the first female medical director in the Speedway's history. And uh, we're going to learn about how she addresses biological and other threats. Uh, we're going to hear, as you've heard from IMPD and the FBI, about how they prepare and would respond to biological threats to mass gatherings and other types of venues. Um, I have to just share with you, before I joined this incredibly esteemed commission, and I know many of you here in the room, I had the pleasure of serving the northern part of Indianapolis. Congressman Andre Carson serves this part, and we uh, worked in a very bipartisan way, always on public safety issues. And we know that Hoosiers suffered greatly throughout the pandemic. We had over 25,000 deaths in Indiana. And we learned that we must do better. And we knew that we needed to do better and that we in a, as a state and a nation can do better. We can respond quicker and prevent so many from dying and falling ill. The commission that you see here today and those who are joining us on Zoom believe that we can take the threat of pandemics off the table in 10 years if we commit money, if we commit resources, and we commit our best ideas to implementing what is called the National Blueprint for Biodefense, uh, which was issued back in 2015, and the Apollo Program for Biodefense. So if you haven't read these reports, I ask you to consider to do so later, because we take recommendations from the experts we're going to hear from all day, and we, in a bipartisan way, craft those recommendations, put them into, you know, forms that members of Congress and that the White House can take up, can learn from. So you are here to educate members of Congress and the White House. So I'm thrilled to be here today to hear from these speakers. Now, while COVID-19 is fresh in everyone's minds, 
other infectious diseases continue to threaten Indiana, and especially our food and agriculture sector. The United States is currently experiencing one of the worst outbreaks of the highly pathogenic avian influenza, or bird flu, in history. Over 58 million birds have been affected, resulting in economic costs of at least $3 billion. Indiana alone has lost nearly 230,000 birds, most of them being commercial turkeys. In case you didn't know, Indiana's fourth in the nation for producing, right, Governor? Uh, producing and raising turkeys. With the poultry industry in Indiana bringing in about $1.2 billion to Indiana's economy. So we're eager to hear later this afternoon from Dr. Brett Marsh, our longtime Indiana State veterinarian and representatives from academia on our last panel to talk about protecting plant and animal agriculture in Indiana. Um, so Finally, um, one of the other things you're going to learn about today and what I think we need to be so very proud of is the Governor's Public Health Commission, of which I had the honor of serving as a citizen advisor. Governor Eric Holcomb, um, who's, who's before us, and we're so pleased you could be here, established the commission in August of 21. Um, with the charge of evaluating our current public health system, which he knew needed improved in the state of Indiana and identifying opportunities for, uh, for improvement and issuing a report. We had monthly meetings from September of 21 to June of 22 with significant public input, and the commission released its report in August of 22. And I'm gonna, we're going to hear from the governor and from uh, the former state health commissioner, Dr. Chris Box. Um, about that report and about what happened. Um, at this time, I must tell you, it's such an honor to be with my esteemed colleagues, but one of the gentlemen that started this commission, along with former Senator, uh, with Senator uh, Lieberman, Joe Lieberman, is Governor Tom Ridge, who served as the first Homeland Security Director under President Bush. And we're so pleased that Governor Ridge is joining us, our chairman, co-chair of this commission. And at this time, uh, Governor, we'd love to hear any opening remarks you'd like to make. And welcome to Indiana, to the Motor Speedway. Well, thank you, Susan. As I listen carefully to the, the list of uh, events that you continue to host, host in Indiana during the COVID, I was kind of curious whether or not you were able to, you've got this great statewide high school basketball <laughs> history. Were you able to preserve that? That who was your tradition <clears throat> during COVID, Governor? We, we uh, played on. Pardon? We played on. We, as the governor said, uh, we played on, and I believe he has uh, shot a basket in all 92 counties and every fabulous basketball gymnasium in the state. Well, thank you, Susan. I certainly apologize for my inability to view you and my esteemed colleagues in person today. And good morning to everyone. I understand and certainly appreciate the significance of the issues we will be just tackling and discussing today when it comes to the critical role, roles that state and local government have dealing with biological threats. It's important perspectives for the commission to appreciate and understand that state and local perspective. We're pleased and honored to know that uh, your governor, Eric Holcomb, will be joining us today to discuss these topics from his perspective. 
it's probably not an appropriate comparison to say that during my tenure as governor, I had to deal with a fairly significant national emergency. It was not quite as expansive as the COVID challenge, but following the horrifying attacks in 9-11, which included an airliner crashing here into my home state, obviously the whole country began to deal with question of terrorism. Frankly, I'm eager to hear from Governor Holcomb about how he dealt with a different kind of national emergency that affected his state and the country, the COVID-19 pandemic. Much to be learned from the governor's perspective. As you pointed out, Susan, the governor played a very critical role in helping Hoos keeping Hoosiers safe during the pandemic. And I look forward to discussing these issues as governor to governor. So I know we have many distinguished speakers today, and I want to thank you for giving us your time and sharing your perspective and history with us. And we look forward to hearing your remarks. And as Susan has mentioned, we've held multiple hearings around the country, and we're able to glean from those some, some action items that we've been able to incorporate in previous years into, I think, very substantive reports, which we're able to share with our, with our friends in Congress and the White House. Back to you, Susan. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Governor. Um, next, I'd like to turn it over to this meeting's co-chair, um, my former colleague, former U.S. Representative from Florida, and former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Dr. Donna Shalala, to make some comments. Thank you very uh, much, Susan, and welcome, uh, Governor Holcomb. Uh, like many people on this panel, uh, all of us have some kind of Indiana uh, uh, experience. I grew up in Ohio, but my college roommate was from Martinsville, so I've been in and out of Indiana. Uh, most of my life. Uh, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. I'll make it with my cousins um, who are huge fans. Um, but here we're going to address uh, matters of national, state, and local importance. The COVID-19 pandemic illuminated uh, how incredibly vulnerable uh, we are as a nation to a biological event. It particularly highlighted how important it is to understand the role of state and local governments in responding to a biological event. Additionally, COVID-19 revealed the enormous number of challenges that faced uh, state and local hospital systems during a biological event, uh, where beds and staff and medical equipment are in limited supply. It's imperative that our country determines how state, local, tribal, and territorial, and the federal governments can better coordinate and decide who does what before a biological event and not after things spin out of control. That's why I'm uh, particularly interested in hearing from our second panel today. During that panel, we're going to hear perspectives from the state and local levels of government, as well as from Indiana University's health system representatives. In January of 2022, all of the hospitals in the Indiana University Health System were well over capacity, with some at a staggering 120%. These challenges required that IU Health Partner with state and local and federal government entities to acquire 
uh, personal protective equipment, perform, an, perform research and collect and analyze data, and administer tests and vaccines. Having been president of more than a couple of universities and having served as Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Clinton administration, I look forward to hearing from uh, Tori Castor, the Senior Vice President of Governmental Affairs at IU Health, about the academic research and medical committee communities, how they can come together with government to improve our resilience to biological threats. Another important lesson we learned from the pandemic um, was that events intend, attended by large numbers of people can be at greater risk of exposure to infectious disease. Many sports organizations outright canceled entire seasons when COVID-19 spread throughout the world. Um, you've heard about the role of Indy uh, 500 during the pandemic. Um, and also um, we know what the NBA uh, did. They created a biosecure bubble at Walt Disney World in Bay Lake, Florida uh, to protect its players from COVID-19 during the final eight games of the 2019-2020 regular season and throughout the 2020 NBA playoffs. After the success of the NBA bubble, the NBA has made it part of a contingency plan for future pandemics or major disease outbreaks. And I hope to learn more about this bubble strategy from John Ball was Vice President for Security and Events Services at the Pacers. I look forward to hearing from all of our distinguished panelists today and engaging in very productive discussions about those important issues. So back to you, Susan. Thank you. Next, I'd like to turn to former Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, if he has any opening comments. Welcome. Well, Susan, let me just say, I wish I could be there with you personally. And uh, to our uh, many attendees, uh, to everyone watching online, let me just say how how fortunate we are to have your leadership and your participation on the commission. You've just been an outstanding member of Congress and a member of this commission dedicated to these very, very critical issues. So to have your leadership uh, as prominent as it's been is something that I think is a real treasure for us and, uh, and for our real prospects for getting work done. I just identify with both Donna and, uh, and our chairman in, um, in recognizing how critical it is that we get a better understanding, not only in Washington, but around the country on issues that are affecting uh, uh, our, our national security. So I can't think of a better venue than this. And I really look forward to a, a very productive session this afternoon, this morning and this afternoon. So I'll turn it back to you. Thank you, Senator. He has been on the commission from the beginning, from its inception. Next, I'm going to turn to our newest member, uh, former representative from Michigan, Fred Upton. Welcome to Indianapolis. Well, it is nice to be here, and I really look forward to coming back in December with my Michigan Wolverines, uh, maybe just down the street. <laughs> Sorry, I don't think we'll be playing uh, Purdue uh, based on their, their start, uh, but uh, Governor... <laughs> is one that represented uh, three counties uh, for 36 years on the Michigan-Indiana border. Uh, I know Indiana well, and of course, served with Jackie Walorski. She and I flew back, literally back and forth uh, to D.C. from South Bend. That was my airport uh, all those times. And it was a delight to have both Susan and Larry Bouchon uh, serving on energy and commerce uh, when I was the chairman from 2010 to 2016. And of course, our highlight was uh, the 
enactment of 21st century cures. Uh, Indiana companies like Lilly, uh, Michigan companies like Pfizer, uh, all weighed in to help us write a law that would expedite the approval of drugs and devices. Peggy Hamburg was a major player in that effort because she was then chair uh, of the, uh, or she was the FDA uh, commissioner. And we asked her many times, what could we do to help to get these drugs out? That was before COVID. And of course, with COVID, we had to find a way to help in, uh, with people across the globe. And because of what we did, when it was the last bill that President Obama signed into law, we were able to get that vaccine probably six or eight months earlier than otherwise it would have happened and literally saved hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives around the globe by able to actually get that out of my district. And Paul Ebner is going to be here. He's from Kalamazoo. He went to K College. I look forward to, to seeing him. Um, uh, but the effort that we did, and Susan was a major player on that effort, uh, it was a major bipartisan bill, 392 to 26. We really saved the world. And what this commission does is we're looking for the next one. What can we do to help? Your leadership, not only with the National Governors Association, uh, governors across the country, uh, was essential uh, as, as we dealt with this crisis. Uh, I am a new member of this. I, I've learned a lot, and we're looking forward to working together and get, getting input. And again, I look forward to coming back to Indy uh, that first Saturday in December. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. And next, I'll turn it over to former representative from Pennsylvania, Jim Greenwood, uh, also a longtime member of the commission. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Uh, thank you for arranging for us to be here today. And good morning, everyone. I, along with some of my other colleagues here today, were uh, joined this commission at its founding in 2014. And in the first couple of years, we spent a lot of time bringing experts in from around the country to help us understand how we could be more prepared for the eventuality of a pandemic or the eventuality of a bioterror event. In 2015, we, we uh, published our first report, a blueprint for biodefense. Uh, and when we released it and we publicized it, we said it is not a question of uh, if there will be a major pandemic or, in fact, if there will be a major bioterror event. It's just a question of when that's going to happen. And it was hard for policymakers to become excited about that because it had been almost 100 years since the Spanish flu of, uh, of 1918, which killed 50 million people. Um, but we, um, we, we, we said that we needed to be prepared. Um, I will say some policy uh, makers took up, us up on some of our recommendations, but unfortunately, not enough policy makers took us up on enough of our recommendations. So when the COVID pandemic hit, uh, far more people died than needed to um, had, we, had we had more people taking our recommendations seriously. Um, this event today is also going to be focused not on, on um, the uh, pandemic um, realities, but on the, the eventuality of a bioterror event. Um, and again, it's hard for people in the public and policymakers to get terribly excited about, are we prepared enough for such an event? Because we haven't had a major bioterror event in this country. Um, but just as the 9-11 um, the, the terrorists chose the Twin Towers as a place that was iconic and where they could have the greatest impact on, on murdering people, and on striking terror into the nation and making us live with that terror as we do to this moment. Um, uh, a major 
uh, location like this ro this raceway where we have 330,000 people at one place is a perfect target. And you can be certain that there are evil people in this world who think about how they might strike um, this facility along with other similar facilities uh, and do tremendous damage both to, to lives and to our, our, our national psyche. So um, I'm very interested in learning uh, from the governor and from others here uh, today, other witnesses, uh, how you are thinking about preparing, preparing for such an eventuality. And thank you for doing that, for preparing, because it's, um, as, as I said, uh, it's not a question of if we're going to have events like this, but, but when the next one will come. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And uh, last but certainly not least, another new member to the commission, uh, Dr. Peggy Hamburg, um, who is the former Food and Drug Administrator under President Obama and also has an Indiana connection. Well, well, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. And I am, in fact, the daughter of a proud Hoosier. Uh, my father was born and raised in Evansville, Indiana, and uh, he graduated from uh, uh, the University of Indiana uh, as an undergraduate and medical school. So um, uh, Indiana is sort of an iconic location for me because of, of that. But Indiana stands out in so many important ways, and it's really such a, a thrill and honor to be here today and with so many distinguished um, representatives of, of components of leadership in this great state. I realized as we were uh, introducing ourselves that I am the only one here that is not um, from elected office. I foolishly um, pursued a career in medicine instead of politics, although most of my, <laughs> my career has been in public service, including as noted, commissioner of the Food and Drug Administration, but also I was commissioner of health in New York City um, under both the Democratic and a Republican mayor, I might add. But um, I really appreciate the opportunity today to hear from uh, those of you who experienced the COVID pandemic, working at the state and local level, trying to interact with the public you serve and also with the federal government and beyond, and how you're thinking about the lessons learned from that experience to strengthen and extend public health and its reach. So that is one very, very important topic we're gonna to address today. Also, the opportunity to talk more about um, agriculture and biological threats, both deliberate and naturally occurring um, to agriculture and agricultural systems. We know how much of a driver of the economy in this state and our nation uh, agriculture is. We know how fundamental access to adequate and um, uh, nutritious food is. And we know how vulnerable, in fact, this is. And again, it's an area that's been under-addressed, under-appreciated in terms of many policies and programs, but where we now have the opportunity, thanks to many advances in science and technology and a renewed focus, to do more. And then finally, sitting here, thinking about the huge challenge of protecting people from, from threats that could occur in a mass gathering uh, setting like this one, and uh, how much goes into the planning to prevent problems from occurring in the first place and into the planning to enable uh, rapid response. Um, and 
it's a rare opportunity to delve more deeply into a problem that faces uh, so many places in this country and around the world. Um, the expertise that, that you bring to this is extraordinary. And Governor, the opportunity to hear from you how busy you are to take the time to meet with us and give your perspectives and let us draw from your experience uh, is really just a tremendous honor. So thank you very much. And I will stop talking so that we can actually hear from you. <laughs> thank you, Peggy. And uh, so thank you all to my colleagues. I uh, want to just very briefly introduce our governor who needs very little introduction, but Eric Holcomb is our 51st governor in the state of Indiana. He is a lifelong Hoosier. Um, also, so importantly, he is a veteran of the United States Navy. Um, he was elected to his second term uh, in 2020, uh, receiving the most votes for any governor in history. How do you like that, Governor Ridge? Uh, so that's, uh, that's impressive. Um, and I must say, um, he continued uh, a pretty incredible legacy of um, our business community. Indiana employees, employers, were, uh, were enjoying consecutive commitments of jobs coming to the state of Indiana. And in 2023, Forbes ranked Indiana the number one best state in the country to start a business. Um, but the governor recognized that wasn't enough. We had public health challenges, and those were front and center during the pandemic. And so he created um, the Governor's Public Health Commission in 2021. I'm not going to talk about that more. He also serves on the executive committee of the Republican Governors Association. And we know that governors, Republicans and Democrats, have been critical um, in keeping our state safe. I already talked to you about him being a lifelong basketball fan. And with that, Governor Holcomb, thank you so much for coming out to the Motor Speedway today and sharing with us uh, thoughts about mass gatherings and thoughts about uh, the Public Health Commission. So thank you. Thank you, Susan. And, and uh, not only for that introduction, but thank you for continuing to answer your nation's and state's call and these various duties that you keep saying yes to. And state of Indiana is um, forever in your debt um, for not just this taking on this bipartisan effort, but for the Public Health Commission role that you played huge role in, and I'll get to more of that um, later, but these leadership roles, um, they seek you, and you always say yes, and we're appreciative of that. This um, this topic that we're here to discuss today has a unique charter, I think, in that, um, and it's an essential one, but it's, it's we have so many lively debates going on, um, some more important than others, some louder than others, some that kind of fly under the radar, some that citizens just assume things are being taken care of. But on this topic, on the topic of biodefense uh, and, our, and our readiness uh, posture, there is no more important debate to have or conversation to have uh, and what's at stake and the role of government in it. It is essential. There are just very few organizations or collections of citizens that can come together to meet the moment like a state or a federal government with the partnership of the local community. And so this commission um, found the right approach, in my uh, estimation, and striking the right balance in terms of private citizens, all very accomplished, but having the credible voice that can connect with 
our nation's capital and our state capitals all over the country on this um, very topic. You're working literally at the crossroads of a public-private partnership to really get at um, addressing this this issue, and it's my privilege to be with you. I, I wouldn't be a good host if, especially following Doug Bowles, um, who I think um, you could infer by his comments that tickets are still available. <laughs> that is a big infield. Um, but the, the 300,000 of our closest friends would love to see you all <laughs> here as well. So December and May, Fred, we hope to we hope to see you. And you can wear whatever university T-shirt you want in the, in, in the infield or not. Uh, but welcome. Welcome back to Indiana um, in, in many cases. And obviously, Susan knows her way around here. You've probably been here more than 10 times in the last 10 years. Um, but for many, it's a, it's a, maybe the first visit or a rare, uh, visit. So I want to make sure you feel welcome and you feel to welcome to come back. Highly recommend taking in the race. Um, among other things, my, my job here today will be, and you've all alluded to it, is sharing Indiana's potential role in this, in this conversation as we go about doing our work. We have a, as was alluded to earlier, or already articulated, a well above the average interest in biodefense um, for reasons I'll explain in just just a minute. And we have a well above the average uh, ability to contribute, as you, as you mentioned, innovations and solutions, things we have brought to bear in past experiences, which could benefit the entire nation where biodefense is concerned. So I'll use the bulk of my time slot uh, here to, to discuss a kind of a general approach and some of the unique contributions that we think that we can make. So let me start with, as I said, our interests and our expertise uh, in biodefense itself. Unlike some places in America, some maybe flashier places, as I said, we tend to fly under the radar. And we we don't always um, brag about our about our rankings, but uh, as was mentioned, we we have quite a few. You mentioned Forbes. You you mentioned uh, us being a, um, a top ag state in America. We are number one uh, in all fifty states in terms of duck production and and veal. Uh, we are number two in eggs. We are number three in pounds of turkey. We are number five in hogs. So that list really does go on and on and on. And that really represents the stake that we have in this conversation. At the end of the day in understanding and then in mitigating, and I'm glad Dr. Marshall will be with you as well, the impact of biological threats on and to animals. Uh, it's equally large as that, um, as that means to our GDP, that plus 30 billion annually. Secondly, um, Indiana pulls off some of the biggest, as evidenced here, some of the biggest sporting events, events, gatherings, not just in the nation, but in the world. This is the single largest um, gathering on Memorial Day. It's that Sunday of Memorial Day weekend anywhere in the world. Plus, he mentioned 330 last year. So always, you know, over 300,000 people. It's We're also a major, beyond racing, um, a major convening point for other sporting events. And we mentioned, um, Fred mentioned, 
March Madness or being back here for, for basketball. In 2021, if you can wrap your brain around this, because of that backdrop, mostly in Indianapolis, Bloomington and, and West Lafayette participated in it as well in the opening rounds, but we hosted the entire March Madness in one state, really in one city, 67 games, quite a feat uh, to pull off. And we were able to do it safely and securely with a lot of cooperation and coordination with the city, with the state, with our federal partners as well. And I don't think we were chosen randomly. I think that was an informed decision, one of high confidence that was made. It's because we have a reputation for hosting um, large events. We do big events. And so having that experience and that background, we've hosted the Super Bowl, we've hosted recently a national college football championship, um, too many Final Fours to, to count. Again, all of March Madness in one year um, with Governor Ridge, high school basketball, those state championships going on kind of simultaneously or leading up to. Um, with the backdrop of that pandemic that has crept into everyone's um, comments already and knowing that we've had too, too many in 102 years, uh, we've we've learned an awful lot from that. Number one, you, you want to fix the roof when the sun's shining, not not when it's raining. And um, and so how we are prepared for that when, not if scenario is is critically important and drives our joint operations as a state and everything that we do, health included, and we'll dive deeper into that in just a second. We also have tens of thousands of people on any given day or week here for conventions. We're a major conventions of outside of uh, major sporting events. So this, how we gather people safely and, secure, and securely is, is part of, as Doug said, part of our DNA. And so obviously there are, this is high stakes uh, when it comes to what we do and how we grow as a people and as a state and as a, as a nation. So if I could speak with how we're dealing with more, a little bit more specifically these biodefense threats and how we might be helpful to the nation, I'll do that over the next few minutes. I'll keep these observations at more of a high level. I don't consider myself, you will, as was mentioned, uh, have some experts with you throughout, throughout the day. Um, and these are people who will get very granular at a very detailed uh, level. But big picture, there's, in my estimation, three aspects of Indiana's biodefense situation that we're especially proud of. First, um, we have one of the largest, fastest growing concentrations of private sector biotechnology, R&D, and manufacturing that they complement one another, obviously, in the country and likely in the world if you look at other um, geographical terrains of equal size. Second, we're committed to developing and implementing um, an innovative biodefense infrastructure at scale to meet uh, those, those demands uh, and that growth. And last but certainly not least, we've realized here in Indiana the meaningful public health uh, efforts to really make progress over 
140 years in the in the waiting and ground to, ground to make up, including uh, biodefense efforts, it it's tethered to directly dependent upon our localities, as was mentioned earlier. So let me unpack these three real real quick. In addition to that number one duck rating, um, we're also home to proudly the world's largest biopharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly and, and Company, whose market cap, by the way, recently crossed a half a trillion dollars and which also does a great deal of its R&D and manufacturing right here on Hoosier soil, except we're especially proud of that fact. We're also home and, uh, to, and headquarters to the um, U.S.'s and the world's largest medical diagnostics company, uh, Roche Diagnostics, another compliment. We have a high concentration of biotech manufacturing that um, at one point we were the only state uh, in in the union, making all three of the COVID-19 vaccinations, they were being produced here in this state. And for good measure, we're also home to Zimmer Biomet and Cook Medical, major medical device uh, manufacturers. In addition to these human health giants, we're also home to one of the biggest animal health um, companies in the world, Elenco, and home base um, to a plant science giant as well, Corteva. And so you can see on one hand, you could say, you know, we got lucky with this concentration of human, animal, and plant vital companies, but they didn't fall from the sky. They were actually grown here. They were cultivated here with, with a plan and a purpose. The, they grew up here, and we're continuing to build on their critical mass through incubator strategies and job creation efforts that was mentioned thus giving our state, Indiana, a nearly unmatched density of private sector expertise in the life sciences as a whole. From a biodefense perspective, this concentration matters, I think, big time. Rest assured that, that I had, during those days, the CEOs of Roche and Eli Lilly on my speed dial. They helped us immensely on a again, day in, day out basis, helping us uh, navigate our ways through these very rocky, shallow waters that the current was changing um, on an hourly basis um, as we were all seeking information to test and, and mitigate uh, responses that helped us, at the end of the day, balance lives and livelihoods. Um, that was kind of the lens that, that we were looking through uh, every second of every day. And that, I think, is indeed a lesson that, um, for the United States. Recently, we've talked a, a lot um, as a nation about the importance of building and maintaining America's microchip, for just one example, and other information technology-based capacities here at home. You could call it onshoring or reshoring, whatever you want, but that case is just as powerful uh, with regard to life sciences as it is for other manufacturing to assure that the great minds of biology and chemistry and their innovations are close at hand, not for, um, as Jim said, the, the um, just in time, but for the just in case, not for the if, but the when scenario that we have to be prepared for. Again, fixing the roof while the sun's shining. 
And besides, they, to be clear, I mean, they affect and really drive our economies and our health outcomes, able to invest in our health outcomes if our economy is growing upwards in this virtuous cycle. So it all is dependent on one another. And in an emergency, they can make all the difference in the world as we saw folks um, all come together and try to navigate our way through. And that's why, in terms of microchips, I'm so proud of our senior senator, Todd Young, for back in 2020, it was called the Endless Frontiers um, Act. In 2022, it became the Chips and Science Act. Um, but for addressing this, for, for um, ushering us down a path to onshore or reshore some of these critical um, critical aspects of manufacturing and how it has an effect on life sciences down the road, microchips, semiconductors. And as you've seen, Indiana is now con um, competing hard to, to be the center of one of those tech hubs, uh, which we're calling BioWorks as we grow out that ecosystem. And I would encourage this commission to consider the relevance of BioWorks and others around the country uh, to our nation's biodefense and biotech readiness. This is, this is the work that we're doing and how it, you know, hand in glove fits together with your mission, I think, um, will be complementary. And that intersection of life sciences and manufacturing, that's what it's all about, biotech um, advancements. In our effort, we're proposing three initiatives right up front, a training center, to upskill the talent to work in um, biotech manufacturing, a network of companies inside this hub that would match startup and early stage biotech firms. So marrying them with onshore manufacturing facilities rather than forcing these startups as likely or, or has been the case to make their products overseas or to sell their intellectual property to in fact, stay in business. And then third, a uh, program solely dedicated to innovation to make biotech manufacturing itself more efficient through new technologies. In and of itself, BioWorks will, I think, improve America's biodefense readiness. I know that's a big statement, but this is what the charge is. And so along the way, yes, we will, we will grow um, but its purpose is, uh, in fact, hand in glove yours as well. More broadly, I think it can serve as a model for similar clusters elsewhere, translating modest initial support from the federal government into durable advantages if the United States must respond to future biological threats, and we must prepare for that, as, as Jim said. And lastly, I want to reflect on the importance of Indiana's infrastructure for biodefense on, on what exists and, and what we're working on, quite frankly, to, to create. Indianapolis is one of 30 major metropolitan areas in America to use BioWatch, a network of air monitors that operates 24-7 to warn of a bioterrorism attack, which often and can also be deployed to major events around around the state and here, such as the Indianapolis 500. BioWatch is federally funded and 
managed, but it's locally operated. And just for the record, we're satisfied customers here in Indianapolis. At the state level, our Department of Health that was led by uh, Dr. Chris Box and now by Dr. Uh, Lindsay Weaver operates a public health laboratory which serves as a first line of defense um, and detection and identification of biological threats by processing, literally processing samples and sharing the results with our federal partners, with our state entities and with our local partners as well. They also, our Department of Health operates a decentralized program called KIMPAC to respond to potential nerve agent releases and supplies of nerve agent anecdotes are stored in secure locations uh, throughout the state, but once again can be pre-positioned according to the calendar, according to the events of the day. Where livestock is concerned, um, our State Board of Animal Health devised a state-of-the-art animal tagging program to make sudden, di um, sudden disease readily traceable, which is, as, as you mentioned at the outset, um, something that we're, we'll continue to grapple with and for years to come, but seems to flare up from year to year. And looking ahead through uh, experts at Notre Dame University, Indiana is now a key player in an important U.S. Department of Defense-funded effort called ReadyNet, which is developing a global network to detect and predict and contain diseases that arise in animals but can then spread to people. And at Purdue University, some of our scientists are working with Sandia National Laboratories to establish the so-called University Consortium on health, food, and agricultural uh, resilience, linking many of America's great land-grant institutions, of which Purdue is a shining example. It's an overdue effort to establish a comprehensive, this consortium, a comprehensive research agenda on how to anticipate and then deal with threats to our ag sector. As I said earlier, speakers later this morning, experts later this morning, will elaborate on, on much of this. And as was mentioned, Dr. Paul Ebner uh, will be here from Purdue from a, for just one example, but among other things, he's developed a risk assessment tool to understand the threat of African swine fever. For my part, allow me just to finally highlight the common denominators in these infrastructure-specific efforts. Our great universities are involved in several of them, to be sure, and essentially all of them uh, are involved are, are contributing to and collaborating when it comes to working with all three levels of our government. Biodefense is the, in my mind, the ultimate multi-sector inter and intra-governmental undertaking. In fact, it's dependent on that. It's, it must work together. It must work harmoniously in unison or it won't work at all. It is the linchpin. That takes me to the last thing that I want to share with you about uh, our experience, Indiana's situation, and what we're trying to, how we're trying to practice what we preach. The genius of federalism is 
Washington defers to the states the responsibilities that the states must do and usually because they're closest to it, um, do better in the same way states need to adhere to this. States need to not just recognize it, but practice it. It means that we should defer to the counties and to the cities as a true partner, bringing to bear the resources that we have as a state or a nation um, to these responsibilities. And knowing that they are, again, closest to it, best positioned to carry out their unique set of circumstances and cultures. Recently, Indiana did get some um, positive press in Washington for being one of the only, if not the only, see Dr. Kane here as well, um, uh, states to pass a major increase in public health investments on the other side of the pandemic. And if there was a secret to our success, I think it was simple. We didn't craft a bill that, that to spend all the money in just Indianapolis or to, as an example, or to dictate what the rest of the state must do. Instead, we appropriated $225 million over the next two years to improve local health outcomes coming from the ground up. And as I mentioned, Susan, you were a huge part of that Herculean um, effort. We asked counties to opt in. We didn't tell them they had to. We asked them to opt in and for good reason and would articulate what those reasons were. Allowing the use of those funds, we articulated, here's what it can be used for, oftentimes for the first time for adequate staff, for local emergency planning and, and response, and definitely for biodefense considerations. It was all said and done, signed, sealed, and delivered. 86 of our 92 counties opted in, representing 96% of our total population. That equates to about a 1,500% increase in public health investment just here in this state from one year to the next to the next. So lady, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just um, proud and grateful to have this opportunity to kind of share our overall general umbrella approach, holistic approach uh, with you and what's going on in Indiana, specifically on the biodefense front um, and our particular interest and of our distinctive qualities. And I, I hope I've highlighted our potential relevance um, to your national focus and your necessary end goals. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. And thank you so much um, for your leadership. We're going to have uh, questions from all of the commissioners now. Um, and while we have you here, and I know in the next panel, we're going to hear from Dr. Box and Dr. Kane and Tori Castor, but I'm curious, um, very few states did what you did. In fact, we, you were probably the first. What inspired you to create the Governor's Public Health Commission post-pandemic? What inspired you? And we're going to hear more, yeah, far more about sure, the commission, sure. but why did you decide uh, to take on an initiative like that? Which I might add, for the commissioner's sake, a former state senator or retired state senator, Luke Kenley, who had been yes. charged of our state's budget, was one of the leaders 
many of them know Dr. Judy Monroe from the CDC, our former state health commissioner. She came back home uh, and helps lead that along with Dr. Box. So what, what inspired you to start it? And what would you say to other governors about it? Well, a, a few things inspired me. Number one, and, and Fred tapped on it, is we like to win. <laughs> uh, we like to lead. We don't like to be laggards. And we just, quite frankly, were. And the facts spoke for themselves. And they were, uh, there was just no getting around it. Health is wealth. And if we're trying to uplift and if we're trying to grow and not degrade, um, then we simply had to do something about it. Timing, as in life, um, can work for you or against you. And having navigated through those rocky, shallow waters of the pandemic, it really did put a light for everyone up close at the dining room table, everyone knew someone who was greatly affected, sometimes tragically affected um, by that pandemic and being prepared and being in shape and being healthy. Um, and how our health network was not just strained, but how local communities just didn't have the adequate funding to start with to get to that priority. And so we sought to take that, not year off your life, but that year to, to really kind of share the gospel and share the truth about the matter and hopefully educate. And what we found was the facts did matter. And in, in that effort, more local communities got engaged. So it wasn't just the commission, it grew. And now we had disciples all over the state of Indiana saying, yes, we will put it to good use. And then we had to construct a bill that, again, was from the ground up, locally driven. So it wasn't just we're throwing more money. 1,500% increase is a lot. Uh, and that's to build the structure that wasn't there to get it going. And then we had to convince our partners that we would be very transparent, that we would measure the results so that folks could see the ROI and um, see how those investments, just as if you were making them um, in another area in economic development or community development or infrastructure, you, you, you can measure what the ROI is. And so we're excited that I think the commitment by the local communities is so great. I was in Spencer, Indiana last night talking about this at a, at a Chamber of Commerce dinner. And, and folks understand that workforce will go where they have a healthy workforce. Thanks. And so, so in, on one hand, it was, it was all about the health, but I have to be honest, it's also about how we're going to grow as a state as well. And if you are, then you can make these kind of investments in health or education or fill in the blank. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Donna? Any questions? You know, Governor, I was struck that um, what you're describing is what Justice Brandeis described states as laboratories of democracy. And if I might quote him, uh, he said a single courageous state may 
um, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments uh, without risk to the rest of the country. But, um, and, and my question is, because you started by talking about federalism, I worry that even as a federal official, that uh, the federal government puts too many restraints so that a state like Indiana can't use its unique strengths to shape a response, an infrastructure, um, uh, to respond to issues of biodefense, uh, issues of uh, of um, of runaway uh, infectious diseases, and and how. How do you, as a governor, think about that, and and what advice do you give to your elected officials in Washington about shaping that? I think that's such an important point that the the flexibility that the states have to to connect with and address and solve, hopefully, the problem that we're all focused on, and if we have that flexibility. And for sure, there needs to be, I think there needs to be a balance of co- cooperation and competition. And a framework. And, and absolutely. Here's the, here's the guardrails. Here's the framework. Here's the structure. Here's the problem we're trying to solve now, America, state by state, solve it. And we're seeing this with the ME Commons, the microelectronics hub, these eight hubs around the country where we've got a list of seven or eight issues that the federal government said, this is what we have to solve. And then we all went out and put our best foot forward and got organized. And really, for Indiana, we partnered with Illinois and Michigan. We're partnering with Illinois and Michigan, Republican and Democrat governors, on a hydrogen hub. Um, and I think that's the path forward in, in terms of how we address these vexing or long-lingering issues that are holding us back is to say, to the best out there in America, help us solve this problem. Here it is. Now let's compete, but but it's going to require cooperation based on these distinctive and different terrains and cultures and walks of life and perspectives. Because we are, I mean, we are the smallest state west of the Alleghenies, but again, we like to compete with Michigan, not just in the Big Ten or the Big 20 or whatever they call it now, but... Um, on, on matters of innovation and uh, of the utmost importance to our nation's future. And so I think it's a, a healthy dose of cooperation and competition that's going to get us to, to the innovative side of the house instead of just the regulatory side. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Governor Ridge, um, if you are still with us, I can't see on the screen if you're still there, Governor Ridge. We're going to get it. I swear. Thank you so much. Thank you. Governor, most impressive testimony. Uh, I must tell you, within a week after I was uh, sworn in, I sent a group of Pennsylvanians around the country talking to other governors who we identified had built some best practices that we wanted to embed going forward in Pennsylvania. The only thing I could suggest is that hopefully you would uh, be willing to to take your experiences and having, um, particularly around this public health commission, and draft some form of uh, recommendation to share with governors around the country, because 
when I was Secretary of Homeland Security, one of the agencies that reported to me was uh, the Coast Guard. Their model was Semper Paratus, always prepared. That's it. So it's, in my mind, it's not a question, as we said before in our reports, if we are confronted with another biological attack, either natural or perhaps man-made by design, the infrastructure you built and the relationship you built with the between the state government and local government is certainly something to be admired and replicated. And by the way, it's not bragging if it's as good as, I mean, it's not hyperbole to say it's rather remarkable what you've done. And I hope you're willing to share that with the National Governors Association writ large. I suspect there'd be a lot of governors who'd be grateful to learn from your experience. Thank you, sir. So I thank you for your testimony. My colleagues have anticipated several questions that I was prepared to ask. And in your, your very uh, extensive response to these very specific questions, you've answered some of the questions I had with regard. You talked about competition and collaboration with the federal government. I want to throw another C. It'd be good if we had some cooperation as well, learning from this experience. In any way, in your, as you build out your own plan to respond and recover from the pandemic, were there impediments that the federal government, not, that created by the federal government and their response been inhibited your capability to do what you want to do as governor for your state? That's, that's a chapter I haven't written much about. I mean, we were obviously building the aircraft in flight uh, with a lot of a lot of co-pilots, uh, <laughs> and um, much of it was focused on kind of three fronts: one, getting the resources that we needed; two, building the network uh, to get those resources out, like at the IMS on that on uh, vaccinating front, um, and then. Third was communication, and and that's where, and I'm very understanding here. We were we were learning, we were getting information that might change later, and so that fed into, understandably, the public's anxiety when when facts seemingly change uh, at dealing with this novel this something that hadn't been around since 1918 on that scale. And so um, getting, getting the resources was a big part of our um, uh, challenge. And it, I'm not faulting anyone. I'm just saying that when people were anticipating getting uh, resources and then getting them out, that was a challenge for us then to be a spokesman directly to the people that we were serving. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Senator Daschle, if you are still with us virtually, thank you. I am with you, Susan. I uh, uh, just want to commend the governor for his outstanding presentation, but even more importantly, for the uh, remarkable leadership he's shown in this area. I now can see even more why it was important to have this meeting in Indiana now. Um, he's led the way and created a model that I think is certainly 
deserving of replication in states all over the country, including my state of South Dakota. So we thank you, Governor, for that leadership and for your inspiration as we continue to grapple with these very, very challenging issues. With that, Susan, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you, thank you uh, Congressman Upton. Well, thank you again. Yeah, on the floor, I'd like to associate uh, myself with remarks from Senator Daschle. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. And thank you, Governor Holcomb. Thank you. Again, thank you for a very thoughtful um, discussion and your leadership. And I know that as I talk to the National Governors Association, they, they give you great check marks uh, as well. Uh, question that I have, and you know, as we all experienced this, uh, then I was uh, I retired in January, so I endured this uh, terrible era and worked closely with my uh, governor, with my hospitals, with my county health officials, my colleagues, uh, the administration, um, the national, the stockpile. Uh, it seemed like every state was weighing in. We we can't get the masks. We can't get the vaccines. We can't get the tests. We used in Michigan the National Guard, uh, very efficient force. Man, they were they were terrific. What can we do in in terms of as you're reaching out to make sure that Hoosiers are are taken care of and Michiganders? How, how do we get away from maybe the the competition between one state getting something and finding the doors open and the others? You know, I mean, we had companies, you know, Whirlpool. Uh, which started in my uh, district, they actually chartered a plane from China. Oh, yeah. And they brought a million, a million masks, and they distributed to companies, including here in Indiana, Evansville. They got a big facility there, but uh, to the hospitals and, and the employees. I mean, how do we have a better system for making sure what's in the stockpile and, and uh, prioritizing the demands is is every governor, is every member of Congress, is every you know a hospital administrator is uh, trying to get the right resources to take care of their constituents? What 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 ideas might you suggest yeah. for us? Well, in in this room, I know there's as I as I mentioned, we we approach everything in a kind of as a joint exercise. We've got Homeland Security here, we've got health here, we've got others. Dr. Dr. Marsh here, and on this front, we would approach it the same way, and and what would give us a higher level of confidence as a state, and I would think the federal government's perspective as well, is to actually know what the inventory is, and the citizens, um, most importantly, deserve to know what that is, and so you you have to have a, a structure that not only measures but then shares where the strong spots are and the weak spots are. And if you heat mapped it across the country today, if there was an inventory today, would we be in a better situation uh, than we were in February of 2020? And in Indiana, I can say with a high level of confidence, we are. Um, and But then to be able to prove it would be what I would stress is how states uh, are reporting to the federal government of their situation and then how the government, the federal government is, like I said, doing what they can only do with their resources and supporting and complementing that. So it requires a structure, which is 
whole reason why we just the health commission from a more local um, through a more local lens said the same thing and why it's so important to be transparent about what you have and what you don't have. And then therefore you can get to what you need. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. As I um, read about your experience when COVID first struck, it seemed to me you were, you were pretty um, uh, clear about being uh, erring on the side of caution, which I think was the intelligent thing for anyone to do. He had this strange um, virus we didn't know much about. We, did, we, we saw people struggling on, uh, on ventilators and gasping to death um, all over the world. And so it was wise to um, make uh, some big decisions about closing schools and businesses and events and and about vaccines and 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 masking and that sort of thing. And um, I always recoiled at those who criticized uh, federal officials and state officials and local officials for those decisions that were made to try to save lives. Um, so. In retrospect now, um, we've learned a lot. Um, and if a new virus struck tomorrow, it was strange and we didn't and fatal and, and highly contagious, we would have to go through all of those efforts once again. Um, what I'd like to hear from you is, um, if that happened again, and as I said earlier, it, it probably will, and it could be, could be worse, um, what do you think are the, 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 what concerns do you have that not only did we learn how to do things better, but, but a, a segment of our population learned how to resist any kind of uh, actions that were taken in the, with, a, with a sense of urgency and, and, and caution? Um, are, you, are you worried that there's sort of now this built-in um, mentality among some people of your state that would immediately react negatively to any kind of actions that were taken like the ones you took when COVID first struck? Worried, um, maybe concerned, yes. Not, not just in my state, but globally. Um, um, lack of, I, I earlier referenced how the facts prevailed from a local perspective. And so the other side of the coin is If you communicate, if you're committed to communicating at large, we'll never convince everyone in my family that I made the right decisions. Um, but we may convince um, the majority. And if you can point to, if it's not about rhetoric and it's about um, the issue at hand, whatever it may be, if it's our hospitals are overrun, we have run out of beds, we have run out of space, we have, that's pretty compelling, but it requires um, not necessarily courage, it requires commitment to communicate what the facts are on the ground. And I think that's why, as Donna said earlier, that, you know, different states they are laboratories. We saw a bunch of laboratories deal with COVID-19. And, um, and so, yes, I'm concerned. It, makes, it, it may make the job harder, um, but out of it came a lot of 
good, there was a silver lining in that it prompted us to say, if not now, when? It, knowing what we just went through, do we really want to be caught flat-footed again? And um, again, no, no fault of anyone. We were carrying on with the plan of the day, celebrating, you know, the scores, but but we were neglecting um, some things that hadn't occurred since 1918 on that kind of scale. And so, yes, I'm concerned, but I, I do believe as an optimist, although I was told once the true definition of an optimist is a poorly informed pessimist, <laughs> um, I'm not that cynical. So going through it again, we would just have to prove, as Hoosiers do, we'll get through this, but we'll get through it safely together. And that um, and there, there will be some damage along the way, tragedy along the way, but that collaboration or cooperation that Senator Daschle mentioned um, and, and Governor Ridge, that's what's going to get us through it. Thank you. Thank you much. Thank you. Dr. Hamburg. Well, thank you so much. That was really an extraordinary overview um, uh, that made it obvious to me why you received the most votes of any governor in history. Um, you know you know so much about your state and you're so passionate about doing what needs to be done. Several of the things I wanted to ask you about have already been touched on. Uh, you know, one had to do with the question that just came up, really, you seemed remarkably able to maintain sort of trust, public trust and confidence, and also your public health institutions and leaders oh, yeah. were able to um, maintain that trust and confidence when in so many other parts of the country and frankly around the world, you know, that was being undermined and there was really sort of a a denigration of of public health expertise and leadership, and uh, uh, almost uh, imp impulse driven uh, need to discount um, recommendations that were coming from government leaders as well. So I was sort of wondering what your secret sauce is. Uh, part of it, obviously, is your ability to communicate and to convey, you know, your commitment to to finding the best path forward. Um, but if you have any last minute insights before I know you yeah. need to go on, on, on that question, I welcome it. I also was curious, did you have the opportunity to sort of practice for response to various kinds of significant threats and emergencies? Was that something that you as governor, you know, routinely um, were briefed on or engaged in some tabletops or anything? Or did you come to the COVID crisis really um, not having thought about what a infectious disease outbreak might look like, not really having thought about the kinds of demands that would be put on you and the resources of your governance? Yes. Uh, uh, I look at Dr. Box. We spent a lot of morning, noon, and night distanced, masked, um, no practice, um, but kind of forged in the fire, and and listening to experts. That's what I would suggest is that you have to. The team is so critically important. The informants, 
so critically important and then maybe equally so willing to admit myself when I erred or if I was wrong. And um, that's because of the information that may have changed. That's kind of a hard thing for some people to do is to step up to the mic and say, look, we have to go a different way. And, and by the way, this virus was mutating and changing itself, still is. And so that requires change on our part as well. But I think that um, to be trusted, you have to be willing to admit why and where you need to change course. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Governor. We You've uh, given us even more time than originally allotted, but thank you for your incredibly thoughtful um, and uh, insights into how you help lead our state and navigate. And we're so very proud of uh, all of the efforts and particularly of the Public Health Commission because we think it's a model for the country. So thank you for your leadership. Thank and you for so your devotion. We're going to uh, move on to panel two, and I will be um, heading out with the governor. Okay. And Donna, please take it out. Thank you. We can That's awesome. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. This is uh, uh, an important panel on with state and local public health and biodefense uh, uh, leaders. Uh, let me start by introducing um, the former state health commissioner, Dr. Uh, Christina Box. She was instrumental in the state's response, highlighting uh, the importance of the role um, in uh, response to any biological uh, emergency. Um, she'll be followed uh, by Dr. Virginia Kane, who's Director and Chief Medical Officer of the Marion County Public Health Department. Uh, she's also an Associate Professor of Medicine at Indiana University's School of Medicine Infectious Disease Division. And she has served in the past as President of the American Par uh, Public Health Association um, and uh, is uh, chair of the Board of Trustees of the National uh, Medical Association. Uh, she will be followed um, by Tori Castor, who is the Senior Vice President uh, for Governmental Affairs for the IU uh, uh, Health System, and she directs their legislative and regulatory advocacy effort before the federal, state, and local government. She may have the hardest job <laughs> up here. Do these... Let me uh, start with uh, Dr. Box. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Congresswoman Shalala. Uh, good morning. As was mentioned, I was the former state health commissioner up until June of 2023 for a period of about five and a half years. Dr. Lindsay Weaver, our current health commissioner, is also here today. I'm really honored to have the opportunity to come before you today and speak to the bipartisan committee about our state and our local efforts to strengthen public health and therefore biodefense in our state. Before I get started, I really do want to thank you for your report, the National Blueprint for Biodefense. Uh, Congresswoman Brooks was kind enough to share that with our Governor's Public Health Commission, and we actually used that as a, a guide for our formation and our, our format of our, um, our commission report. The COVID pandemic obviously revealed how chronic underfunding of public health at the federal, the state, and the local level and disease-specific funding has prevented our health departments across the country from developing the infrastructure that was needed to prepare the next 
for the next public health emergency. Um, as you're, as you are, I'm sure you're aware, the main preparedness grants, the um, public health um, emergency preparedness coag grant, has been cut by almost a third in the past 20 years. Um, and if you include cost of living, that's almost 50 percent. And that is really the money that goes to our local health departments to build the infrastructure so that they can work to respond to, to local and state public health emergencies. And then the HPP Hospital Preparedness Program, which helps our hospitals regionally here in the state to prepare for the health care system to respond in collaboration with local and state public health. And this funding has been cut by nearly one half, um, uh, much larger if you add in cost of living. Disease surveillance and response requires data systems which are interconnected, up-to-date, and able to track disease and respond effectively. Indiana has cross-agency uh, plans to update and connect data systems at the local, state, and governmental and non-governmental levels so that we can modernize our state systems. And we're using the CDC infrastructure grant for data modernization to jumpstart this work. Um, as Dr. Uh, Weaver and her team have been working on providing data and rankings to our local government and local public health individuals. Um, and they have seen that it fosters the two, at least two of the C's, which is cooperation across counties because they see other counties near them doing it better, but also um, competition across counties because they want to be better than the county next to them. And the Governor's Public Health Commission has, was formed by executive order, as already discussed, in 2021. And we were to identify strengths and weaknesses and then come out with recommendations about how we can improve public health here in the state of Indiana. Um, and this report really laid the groundwork for what we did in our 2023 legislative ses session as the government, governor made that part of his legislative agenda. Prior to the 2023 legislative agenda, uh, or session, 92 local health departments in the state of Indiana received $6.9 million a year that was divided up basically per capita amongst all 92. The 2023 legislative session appropriated over $225 million, as the governor mentioned, over the next two years to be shared across these 92 counties. And I must mention again that 96% of Indiana Hoosiers will be covered by this uh, health first Indiana initiative that um, has created this additional funding. The state investment in local public health is providing for a state and local partnership to deliver services at the local level and increased collaboration. Increased funding at the county level allows for increased workforce, which was a huge problem during um, the pandemic, whether it was healthcare workforce, public health workforce, our chemistry lab, whoever that was, we had significant issues with workforce. Um, and the partnerships um, that we are fostering are between hospitals, healthcare systems, and non-governmental organizations. This funding is contingent um, and really important that they are collaborating at the local level uh, in those areas. This funding is contingent also on developing a plan which prioritizes um, between local government, local public health, healthcare, and non-governmental organizations to deliver key public health services, which have been outlined by the Department of Health in combination with CDC recommendations. It's also contingent on counties performing and uh, reporting on key performance indicators for each of these core areas. Dr. Weaver and her team at the Indiana Department of Health are now working with and consulting with every county that's interested in consulting with them and supporting them in their goals and the development of their plans. One requirement is that every county take the FEP or the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Grant and have at least a 0.5 FTE dedicated to emergency, emergency preparedness. 
This is going to foster engagement with our regional healthcare coalitions and will include EMS, EMA, local public health, our hospitals, and our healthcare systems. And we'd like to include long-term cares in that, um, in that group. The Department of Health and the Indiana Department of Homeland Security, recognizing the need for increased collaboration, are already designing an integrated all-hazard preparedness plan prioritizing human disease outbreak. And Director Thacker and Dr. Weaver are working well with their teams on that. A major workforce shortage, which was significant during the pandemic for us, was a shortage of EMS personnel. The Indiana Department of Homeland Security will use part of the 2023 appropriation to offer grants to enhance the recruitment, the training, and the retention of EMS personnel across our state, and also provide for cost sharing for equipment that may be needed. And additional money was also appropriated to enhance our trauma care system across the state through improved data collection, reporting, and analysis, and then improved coverage across the state so that more Hoosiers are within that 45 minutes of a, of a trauma center and increased personnel. The Indiana Department of Health Epidemiology Division does surveillance of pathogens through the ILI influenza-like symptoms and CLI COVID-like symptoms through a community, state, and national program, which you're probably familiar with, which is the ILI-NET. Information from our Sentinel sites is used to guide pre prevention, patient care, and vaccine management. The sites get free rapid testing supplies and free specimen subtyping at the Indiana Department of Health Lab, and this allows us to monitor types of circulating viruses rapidly, more rapidly detect novel viruses or strains, and then inform our healthcare providers on a weekly basis uh, to support um, their care of their patients. Our state veterinarian and epidemiology team work closely on infections, which can pass from animals to humans like avian flu and vector-borne diseases like Lyme disease. And I know you'll be hearing from Dr. Marsh with the Board of Animal Health this afternoon. Certainly protecting ongoing uh, ability uh, throughout the pandemic um, to be a vital part of the food supply chain for the state of Indiana, especially with our meat packing, became very evident and the need to be able to keep those um, migrant workers healthy and safe to be able to continue to uh, supply that food. The Department of Health's Epidemiology Division also participates in Essence, which is an electronic surveillance system for early notification of community-based epidemics. This program monitors health data and really that symptoms reports from emergency rooms across the state for early identification of community-based epidemic. This has been used with infectious diseases, with foodborne illnesses, and even we used it for serious medical conditions like Evale, which was um, the damage that was done to oftentimes youth's young uh, lungs from vaping substances contained in e-cigarettes. The Indiana Department of Health State Lab is one of the nation's lab emergency response system for biological, chemical, and radiologic threats. When a bio threat occurs, the lab's dedicated bio threat division serves as the first line of detection and identification of biologic threats by processing and identifying samples collected by the FBI and law enforcement. Lab personnel are trained to test for novel um, viruses and novel pathogens, unusual pathogens like Ebola and Zika and coronavirus subtyping. As the governor mentioned, our Department of Emergency Preparedness also participates in ASPRA's ChemPAC program, and I won't go further into that. But I would like to mention that the Indiana Department of Health, our Indiana Department of Homeland Security, has a mobile biodefense testing platform to rapidly test for biologic threats such as anthrax, ricin, botulinum, and, and smallpox. And lastly, the Indiana Department of Health's Epidemiology Lab and Department of Environmental Protection. Uh, protecting divisions participate in the Department of Homeland Security's BioWatch program, with the, which the governor mentioned. 
We truly believe that by enhancing collaboration between state agencies, local government, and public health, and our healthcare part partners to improve um, services uh, at the local level will not only improve services, it'll improve the health of Hoosiers, but it'll also improve the surveillance and the response to our next public health emergency. Thank you for your time. Dr. Kane. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having this honor, and I appreciate all the, the, the thoughtful work that's been done with a blueprint uh, for bioterrorism um, and other issues of biodefense. Uh, I will correct that I'm no longer the chair of the Board of Trustees for the National Medical Association. I'm currently now the president-elect <laughs> uh, for, for that organization. So I want to emphasize by saying I think one of the major strengths of Indiana, and I heard the governor and his comments are, is that we have such a strong collaboration from the federal level to the state level. Tori can talk to, Dr. Box can talk to, we'll talk two o'clock in the morning. We've established those type of relationships, which is so critical to make rapid, instant decision related to what's happened, that I think that's the real key in really being prepared. Secondly, I'm just going to highlight one special program that we have here in Indianapolis, but I also want to emphasize that no matter what type of instruments you have, detection that you have, we are going to have to address social determinants and whatever preparation we do. So if we're not reaching our vulnerable populations with our instrument, um, you could have a whole pocket of an infection that is occurring in those areas. And they're frontline folks, you know, they're going to be on your buses. They're going to be uh, in your long-term care facilities, your hospitals cleaning up. And so unless we understand that food insecurity or even the ability to get a test, I may have the CVSs and the Walgreens, but I can't make it to the suburbs to get tested out there if that's the only place where their many clinics are taking place. So I think that whatever, whatever preparation you have, unless that's occurring we have to have the flexibility to like to go into the hotel business to take care of our homeless. I can send a positive COVID homeless patient back into a shelter that's over a thousand people to infect everybody in that shelter. That means I've got to find a place to place them for quarantine and isolation. But having that flexibility to be able to do that, to help know that we have such a diverse population now, the health literacy, they can't even, maybe not even read Spanish. And you're patting yourself on the back that you've got third grade level education and they can't even read it. So understanding those components are just as critical as anything else. And I want to introduce a really exciting program. We're excited. Since 2018, Marion County Public Health Department has provided support to the city of Indianapolis, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Development, and its collaboration with the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA, in its pursuit to develop some new technologies related to radiation, chemical and biological detection in its SIGMA program. And in 2018, we assisted DARPA with the Chem SIGMA test releases at this Indianapolis Motor Speedway. In early 2021, 
we helped assist stop in the development of what they call the Sigma Plus biodetection with the placement of a biodetector under development in our health department's vaccination clinics. So we also started working with DAPA and Sandio National Labs in the development of a biodetection concept of operations to support this program. So in 2022, as part of the support of Sigma with staff supporting our radiation, chemical, and biological detection at numerous events like the ND500, we began a new exciting project with DAPA and the Research Triangle Institute to investigate the integration of physiological signals into the Sigma Plus sensor network to detect chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosive threats. We had Marion County Public Health Department staff participated in both a pilot and a year-long Sigma Plus health study that uses wearable sensors, smartwatch, to assess health and is able to detect viral respiratory illnesses. And this sensor network, it has the potential to provide early warnings of an illness outbreak on or biological attack based on real-time health monitoring from wearable sensors. And so from October 22nd to the present, and this is our final year of the Sigma, um, we have been participating with the Sigma program, providing continuous support in the development of this Sigma Plus sensor developments. We've been doing field trials and these CONOPS development. And so... Um, we're very excited about this. Um, uh, we, with these Springfield trials involving the release of, we've released biological stimulants out there to, to see if this would, they could be detected by these smartwatches in order to have validation of our Sigma Plus biosensors along using existing biodetection technologies, doing the comparison to see which is superior. And so we were also just, I just want to say, we were excited by attending the VIP day in New York City, showcasing the, showcasing the state of a art mobile radiation, chemical, and biological detection capabilities and data integration via something called the DETECT program that is only taking place in New York City and in Indianapolis. You'll hear a little bit more about that when you hear some uh, speakers from our IMPD program, uh, Commander Brown. But I do want to highlight my uh, Director of um, Environmental Health, Dana Reed-Wise, if you can just stand, Dana, and uh, Jeff Lermore back there, who's our, our uh, environmental um, a scientist. He's our former Director of Occupational Health, who's helped to spearhead all of this efforts. And so I've just got a dynamite team, and so... Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Kane. Um, uh, Ms. Castor, I could call you Dr. Too because you've got a JD, but. <laughs> I'll stick all the sisters. Um, thank you. Hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Tori Callahan Castor. Um, I'm the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs uh, here at IU Health. 
IU Health is Indiana's largest and most comprehensive health system and one of the busy, excuse me, one of the busiest hospital systems in the United States. Based here in Indianapolis, IU Health is comprised of 15 hospitals, including an adult academic health center, the state's only comprehensive pediatric hospital, Riley Children's Health, five large community hospitals, six critical access hospitals, along with more than 300 primary and specialty care offices. Excuse me, a unique partnership with the IU School of Medicine, one of the nation's leading medical schools, gives IU Health patients access to groundbreaking research and innovative treatments to complement high-quality care and also makes the state's largest provider of medical education for the next generation of providers. Of note, particularly to this group, IU Health currently operates a special pathogens unit, which is the only treatment facility in Indiana with special pathogen readiness capabilities. Think Ebola. MERS, SARS. IU Health Special Pathogens Unit Suite consists of a single critical care patient room with one bed and a separate doffing space. The suite also has three to four additional rooms that could be used for non-critical care needs. Care team for this unit repeatedly drills and conducts trainings both internally and with our external emergency response colleagues to ensure readiness at all times. Candidly, at IU Health, we, pr pr we prided ourselves in our readiness capabilities. However, then came COVID. While I know all of us are definitely COVID-weary, the pandemic, without question, tested the healthcare delivery system as a whole, pushing it beyond all imaginable limits. Prior to COVID, we generally thought of preparedness as a response to a discrete event, an event that had a clear beginning and an end, like a flood, a tornado, or a natural or man-made disaster. We drilled and tested our teams regularly on how to respond. But COVID turned these traditional responses on their head. For example, for most natural disasters, you immediately set up a mass shelter for the displaced to provide care and other services. Clearly, not an option for COVID. Even for our special pathogens unit, the team drilled for a handful of patients and maybe their sickened immediate family members. In no way had we contemplated the volume and critical care needs of those sick with COVID. Yet at the height of the pandemic, nearly a third of our patient population was COVID positive, and over 2,000 of our team members, most of whom were clinical personnel, were in quarantine. No amount of drilling and training to that point could have ever prepared us for the pandemic. Instead, we relied on the resiliency of our personnel and our partnership with our state, federal, and local colleagues to respond. So how did we do it? In healthcare, we've adopted FEMA's standardized approach to responding to emergencies of various kinds, the incident command system. Under the system, there is a structure with clearly identified roles and responsibilities for managing an emergency. The benefit of this structure provides for a clear division of labor. Everyone knows their role and how these roles relate to each other. We stood up our incident command within days of Indiana's first case of COVID in March of 2020. I, along with my clinical colleague, Dr. Michelle Cesana, shared the public liaison role within this particular model. In this capacity, we were the primary point of contact with our federal, state, and local government and business partners, ensuring a consistent connection and aligned messaging. I truly believe this collaboration represented the difference between lives saved and lives lost, given our ability to troubleshoot issues and address challenges in near real time. Just to offer up a couple examples, Partnership with our team and numerous other providers, the state was able to quickly mobilize to source much-needed PPE for health systems and our skilled nursing facility colleagues based on timely updates from the healthcare community. 
aided in part by daily input from the provider groups into a shared database that provided real-time data on supply constraints. In other instances, we worked closely with our state colleagues to source PPE from local manufacturing outlets. This partnership proved crucial. We would provide the spec detail on product and the state helped to amass the raw materials and in select instances, even drew upon a ready-made workforce at the state's Department of Correction facilities, help mass produce certain high-demand PPE like gowns and face shields. We also worked extensively with our colleagues at the Marion County Health Department on the unique challenges COVID posed for urban areas. Much as what Dr. Kane just discussed, working with our Marion County Public Health Department, EMS, and the City of Indianapolis, and the local hoteliers, we were able to construct a plan whereby providers could safely care and treat our COVID-positive homeless using local hotels. And what I would say was the state's crowning achievement throughout all of this was our ability to pull off the NCAA tournament from start to finish here in downtown Indianapolis. <laughs> through the combined efforts of the city, the state, the Marion County Health Department, our own IU Health Providers and Path Lab team, the business community, and so many more, we safely hosted the NCAA tournament here in Indianapolis from start to finish while still in the throes of COVID. This was a source of pride for our community and a psychological victory against a foe to date that seemed to be winning the war. It should be noted that a confounding factor to our ability to provide care for our patients was the volume of information, and I would say misinformation, about the pandemic that appeared in the public sphere. To some degree, the information was simply a function of the fact that we were learning about the virus real time. As more data came in, treatments and prevention tactics changed. For those of us in the provider space, the changing science was difficult for even us to keep up with. But for the broader public, it became nearly impossible to discern act from fiction, which I believe perpetuated the confusion and led to considerable distrust of the scientific community for some. To mitigate some of this information, misinformation that arose in subsequent surges of the pandemic, IU Health took on the task of producing weekly updates, called them hot sheets, for local leaders where we had a hospital presence. We did this largely in our smaller counties that had severely strained or limited public health resources. The goal was to pull together meaningful information in a concise manner that was actionable for these leaders. The response to this effort was overwhelmingly positive by our local leaders and really helped to drive trusted information right into people's homes. I could cite numerous other examples of how our medical community came together with our federal, state, local, and business colleagues to respond to the pandemic. Our relationship with our government officials and partners was exceptional. Furthermore, through incredible foresight of Governor Holcomb, we had a team of clinical personnel that were literally in the right seats at the right time as we battled this virus. Dr. Box, Dr. Weaver, Dr. Sullivan, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Siniak, and our Dr. Kane all of him contributed significantly to Indiana's measured and reasoned response to the pandemic. This team was an invaluable ally for our healthcare providers who were attempting to navigate uncharted waters. I had many colleagues from other states remark on the effectiveness of Indiana's overall response to the pandemic and the obvious spirit of cooperation that existed between government personnel and healthcare providers. But as I'm sure Commissioner Brooks can attest to, this is in no way surprising. Here in Indiana, we are wired to solve problems in times of crisis, and differences quickly fall by the wayside. This is simply the Hoosier way. Thank you again for the opportunity to provide this presentation this morning. Yeah, I'm going to flip. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I have one quick question, and then I'm going to start with Dr. Uh, Hamburg. Um, um, 
the National Institutes of Health has uh, invested um, millions, probably billions of dollars in research labs. Um, IU, um, Purdue, um, obviously in Bloomington as well, as well as uh, at Notre Dame. And yet these were not certified during the pandemic in particular um, to be helpful to the state lab, for example. So you have a strong state lab. Would it have been helpful if you had a string of laboratories uh, across the state that could have uh, been supportive? Uh, Dr. Fox? I would say certified or not, IU Health was absolutely crucial in helping us with testing and other things throughout the pandemic. And Purdue also engaged even um, from the, the standpoint of their, their veterinary. So you actually use the vet labs and those labs, whether or not they were certified at a... We, we had a lab network here in the state of Indiana, including okay. our commercial labs that are represented. Okay. That's something I can't get to. Our picture needs to be and IU Health has was CLIA certified. Um, yeah. I think the universities, some of their labs were not, so we were able to hit the ground running at IU Health. Would it be helpful if we got the CLIA certified for all the laboratories? In the state, I know it was a challenge. We quickly we did it. Quickly um, adjusted to to become certified. I think, sort of in retrospect, um, it, it probably would have been a helpful. Yeah, but I will say, a challenge to us was that the system that got sort of tight scores and a number of public health labs were not paid by the district the hospital. I think should have taken this otherwise, the rest of thing. Thank you. Um, Dr. Hamburg. Uh, thank you. Just following up on that, I mean, I assume that part of the initial challenge was that we didn't have a national testing strategy. We didn't have initially developed diagnostics that you could count on. Um, and so better coordination and integration of those kinds of activities is important. I'm also curious, this was a question that I wanted to ask or will go on to ask, but um, do you use university or other labs for um, beginning to do genomic surveillance when that became clear as a important uh, resource? Our state lab is that. Okay. And do you do wastewater genomic surveillance yeah. now and other things? The question I wanted to start out by asking you, and thank you all for your incredible dedicated service over many years um, and your willingness to be with us today. Um, you know, when you look at our public health system um, over a very long period of time, it has both been dramatically under-resourced compared to the many tasks it has to take on and the critical importance of its mission. Um, it's also been pretty fragmented from, you know, the local to the county um, to the state. Um, uh, and your public health commission gave you an opportunity to really do a, a, a a deeper dive into what your public health um, system looked like in the state, um, how best to um, structure it and fund it and coordinate it. And, you know, one of the things that's striking, even just listening to you on the panel, is the level of integration, both across levels of government and with the healthcare 
uh, sector, and I don't think all states can claim that at the get-go. But when you were looking to your national to your commission, um, did you think about the question of minimal standards for the different health departments, potential consolidation of some that were very small. You mentioned, you know, ensuring that every health department had um, a, a at least part-time preparedness officer, but does everyone need one of everything or um, how best to use resources? And Related to that, you'd mentioned workforce, Dr. Box, in your comments, and I was a little surprised that you focused in on EMS, which I'm sure, especially during COVID, was a huge gap. But I imagine that there were also other huge strains on workforce, both within public health and the healthcare system. And from what I gather, those kinds of um, strains are persisting as we move, hopefully, towards more normal times but also think about preparing for a next major crisis. And I'd love your thoughts on, on how we can really uh, secure an adequate, appropriately trained and coordinated workforce. All excellent questions, all things uh, that the commission grappled with. One thing that we started with was kind of what is the structure of public health in the state of Indiana? Is it a totally centralized? Is it a totally decentralized? Um, and we are very much kind of a home rule, decentralized state. So we feel like it's very important and, and the commission supported that every county have a health department. Does every county need to do all of the core services that we identified as a commission were important for every basic, every basic local health department to be able to do? No. Can they use part of their money to maybe hire the county next to them to provide those services within their county? There's some things like vital records and the ability to do a, you know, septic permitting and other things that need to be available in every county. Um, but there's shared services that can certainly occur, and we have encouraged that through our commission um, quite definitely. Um, we had representatives. Dr. Kane is our largest health department. We had our, one of our smallest health departments represented. Um, we had uh, an administrator from one of the local health departments. And so we really did do a deep dive into this and make sure that the, the product that we came up with was something that would be able to be supported by local government and by our local public health people. When you talk about workforce, I mean, we had workforce of anywhere for people had one or two, two to three full-time equivalents in their local health department. And so we had some local health departments that just folded. Pandemic started. They weren't there. They couldn't give out PPE. They weren't going to be involved in vaccinations or testing. Um, and they weren't there for us to use as a resource. And then we have other very well-resourced health departments that, you know, we came to the point where we almost didn't need to worry about Marion County because Dr. Kane and her team had that. And that's true of several other big health departments around our state. But really, it, when you talk about this, it even though we as a state had dramatically underfunded public health, I believe, and at the county level dramatically underfunded it, what we did at the time of the pandemic and coming together with collaboration and with partnerships was overwhelming and incredible. I can remember one of my, in an ASTO meeting, one of my partners saying to me, basically, how did, how did you get your hospitals to do that? To say that they would give these vaccines out, they would administer them even to counties and people that don't come to their hospital. And I, that, I said, well, what do you mean? How did I get them to do it? And they're like, well, did you pay them? And I'm like, no, but we did charge for the administration fee for them and gave them that money back or plan to. 
um, did you, did the governor do an emergency order? And I said, no. And they said, well, how did you do it? And I said, well, I asked them. <laughs> and, and that's the spirit of collaboration that I really think made our, really what I feel, overwhelming response as good as it was. But we learned from that and need to put this in place. Also, one more thing about workforce. We had um, a large volunteer workforce in the state of Indiana that we tapped into and sent out requests for respiratory therapy, for mental health, for nurses, um, for dental, for whatever we needed. We asked for that and we did get that response. And the hospital systems and our our long-term care facilities did use that. Now, I will say it would be great to see somebody put a cap on the hiring away of nurses and to travels nurses and, and, and CNAs and other people. And I'll say this because I don't have a dog in this show anymore, but the reality is those prices drove up, drove up, drove up. And they took people out of where they were comfortable knowing what they worked with and moved them across the county to a different hospital to work. Um, and so some kind of ability to make sure that they are compensated, but maybe that there's not this grab and moving around of all this personnel at a time when we critically need them to stay where they are. I think that the other huge thing is, is for like a large metropolitan health department, we were getting uh, folks from two and a half hours away coming in to get vaccinated in our county because we're more robust. And so our supplies were dwindling for our large community because my surrounding counties were coming to get vaccinated from us or to come in and get testing. So that can be a problem from large cities when anyone can come from anywhere and utilize your resources, but you're de- you're determining your resources based on what your particular uh, population is. So those are critical factors that have occurred. The, the other thing is local health department nurses, the salaries, we hadn't, we hadn't done a market share upgrade of our, our nurses in about 10 years. And so then when the hospital system <laughs> are offering these big bonuses, I got travel. I'll blame it on the travels than in the hospital systems, okay? Uh, it is so critical to try to keep your workforce intact uh, when those salaries are so high and so robust. And so I venture to say that it is so critical to keep our public health funding into public health. You know, we hear now that, wow, we should take some of that money out of public health and give it to the fairly qualified community health centers. And so, but public health and the relationships we have in the community as trusted partners and working with a lot of these partners, you know, a pandemic is not always the best time to develop a new partnership and them coming in here and trying to give you some advice, recommendations. You have to have already established those partnerships before in the past and have been able to provide resources to them. Thank you. I'd add just um, maybe to Dr. Box's point. Um, you know, as it relates to the workforce, certainly that pool was critical. But in, in terms of the spirit of collaboration, we were very, very invested in, in working with our Department of Health colleagues, um, our State Department of Health folks, even the federal government, because our primary goal, we, we knew we were going to be constrained on staff and we were trying to keep people out of the hospital, right? So to the extent we could work with our public health officials to drive up vaccines, um, to, to increase awareness, that benefited the organization as well as our patient population as well. So it was a critical piece. The other thing I will tell you on the workforce, 
the, the state did a, a lot of work working with us. So, for example, at one point in time, the NCLEX exams were canceled. Uh, and so we had a nursing workforce that we were trying to bring online, but they couldn't take the exam. To, and so what we ended up doing is, is working with our professional licensing agency and, and the state of Indiana to say, OK, they can come in and do and, and perform clinical practice until such time as we can get them the ability to take the exam. At the federal level, one thing that I would at least encourage this group to think about is, you know, we rely on a foreign nursing workforce um, as part of our workforce. And, and right now it's hard to hard to bring that workforce here into the states. Um, there's some real challenges as it relates to um, just just getting them passed, getting them visas. You know, they actually can't get interviews. There's something like 20,000 nurses sitting outside the country waiting to get appointments for interviews. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Representative uh, Greenwood. Thank you. You each have um, described eloquently the, the ways in which working with your governor and your legislature, you've increased, you've improved and enhanced the public health uh, care system here in Indiana. Um, and but the the, um, the theme of this of this uh, hearing today is is uh, no checkered flag. The race is never won. So uh, my question for each of you is um, what. What resources and or authorities might you wish you could have to build upon what you've built already to um, be, be even more prepared and more equipped uh, to handle a, a bio a pandemic or a bioterror event? You just talked in response to Peggy's question about the, the, uh, the workforce um, piece of it. But in what, what other areas, if you had more, more resources and, more, and or more authority, might you want to build upon what you've already constructed? Uh, I'll start. Um, one thing would be that we have had significant discussions about doing a, a strategic state stockpile so that we don't rely on the strategic national stockpile. Um, we had stockpile from our area set to the coast, to other places. They got the disease first. They needed it. I respect it and understand it. But the federal government had no way to replace them. There didn't appear to be a good life cycle management of the, that equipment so that oftentimes we got things, you know, everything was out of date and we used it anyway, of course. But the reality was we, we couldn't get swabs to do testing and we, you know, we, we couldn't get viral transport media. So the state of Indiana is seriously considering having our own strategic stockpile. Um, and I think that those strategic stockpiles that are more dedicated to areas or regional areas would be really important. Um, I'll stop there so everybody else has a chance to take. That's, that's a good one. <laughs> I think clearly you have to look at the distribution of uh, resources and making sure that it is reaching every vulnerable population. And you have to look to see that it is reaching the places where it needs to, to reach. And so how do you make that happen? And sometimes it depends on who are the vendors and who are the partners that you utilize that determines that those resources get where they need to get. And I think that's just a really critical thing. I think the other thing, and I'm not sure that the commission can can uh, work on this, but uh, a lot of local uh, health officials have the ability to make uh, rapid decisions. A lot of that authority through state legislation uh, was removed from us to be able to make emergency orders. And so that's something that clearly needs to be looked at across the country in terms of 
of um, uh, making those decisions. I I had an uh, state overrode. Yes, state legislation. Yes. State legislation can say in order for you to make these decisions, you have to go through this process before you can make a decision. Before where you had full authority, and and that was not required. And so I think we have to look very carefully at those um, authorities of local officials, state officials are related to that uh, ability. But um, um, I do want to thank uh, my mayor, Joe Hotset. Uh, it's important to have someone believe in the science and be able to make uh, great decisions. I don't want us to forget that there are schools of public health out there that are incredible and have a lot of background. Uh, Paul Havison, our founding dean for Indiana University's Fairbanks School of Public Health, provided a great technical team for us in terms of making recommendations uh, for us. And don't uh, make sure our ASTOS, State Association of State Health Commissioners, NACHO, our Association of Local Health Departments, our big city coalitions, they were critical for us. We were meeting on a monthly basis, and I'd learn what's happening in D.C. This worked well in D.C., or this work didn't work so well maybe in Chicago. Uh, they need to be robust and be part of whatever recommendations that you have in strengthening things. But don't forget about different racial and ethnic minority partnerships are going to be so critical no matter what epidemic you address. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I might ask, um, just certainly to build off the comments, I wouldn't disagree with any of the comments that were made here today. A couple of things that we noticed, um, and, and look, we're Monday morning quarterbacking to some degree on this, right? So um, when, when, we, when the pandemic, when we first started kind of hit the throes of the pandemic, um, we were getting communication from, as, an, as a provider, from a variety of different institutions. Certainly our state colleagues, we had sort of the closest line of communication, but we were getting a lot of sort of variant information from the federal government. Um, we were being asked to report, um, we were being asked to report constantly for a very, very valid reason, it was continually changing and we were continually switching databases and, and continually sort of forcing our teams to kind of move from you know, one set of data that we were collecting and spending an incredible amount of resource time on. And I don't want to sort of disparage the, the uh, requirement of reporting. It's very important. But when we were trying to kind of amass teams to respond to the virus, um, the, the changing of, of these requirements were difficult, um, to say the least. So just thinking about how we think about some sort of consistent means of reporting um, in a way that um, doesn't kind of have a shifting landscape. Um, so, so that was important. The other thing that I would, um, I would say was uh, also very important is um, waivers. There were a number of waivers both the state and the federal government issued for us as practitioners. Um, it would be ideal, um, you know, there were times, quite honestly, where we just did what we had to do, right? Whether that was allowed by, um, you know, our regula regulating bodies or not. Um, it would be ideal if we could kind of keep a repository of sort of What's out there that we that that institutions, healthcare providers are required to do, um, and what amongst those might we want to think about as sort of a cohort that may be subject to to waivers going forward if we find ourselves in the same instance again? So 
Those are some of the challenges I think we saw from a very, very practical perspective. And in fact, CMS is thinking about packages that they can automatically put in place uh, during a during a pandemic. And don't forget about the private uh, public partnerships. Uh, Lilly Pharmaceutical Company, when this epidemic started, they provided testing for a lot of essential uh, hospital personnel at the beginning, free of charges. So uh, you can have robust additional resources out there with uh, public-private partnerships. And we have something called the Indianapolis Patient Safety Coalition that involves every hospital system, but also involves some private industry where, for example, during this epidemic, we met every week for almost 18 months. Thank you. Um, Representative Upton? Well, thank you again for sharing your perspective. Um, very important to us and um, really appreciate your dedication. We had a chance with Dr. Kane last night and she shared her amazing work in reaching uh, to the, to the, particularly to the minority communities and others that would have frankly been forgotten and, and not able to communicate even, even in their native language. Uh, today, there's a new variant. I don't you know, 2.86 is the number that's been given. I have a Detroit News uh, story that was uh, published earlier this week. Uh, they indicate that the it's apparently in Michigan. Uh, it's uh, they think the new vaccine is going to likely protect against uh, this new variant. Uh, the Biden administration announced the reopening of COVID tests earlier this week. The program will deliver at-home COVID-19 tests to households across the country for free. Starting this week, all households can order four. Um, apparently, this uh, has been detected in about 10 states so far. Uh, I'd be interested in, I know, Dr. Box, you're, you know, you're one removed uh, from mm -hmm. from the state, but I don't know if it's if it's in Indiana, how, how do you see this fear? And particularly, I, I want to go back to sort of what Jim Greenwood announced earlier or in his speech and his question uh, regarding the fear of vaccines. Uh, we're seeing polio uh, come back. We're seeing kids are going back to school. Uh, families aren't wanting their kids to be vaccinated. Uh, I don't know the questions that are going to be asked tonight at uh, the presidential debate in California, but I know at least one of the candidates has said, no more money. Don't want to provide money for testing or vaccines, uh, period. Just cut it off. End of the fiscal year is uh, this weekend. So I, maybe if you can respond to those thoughts together, uh, I'd, I'd appreciate what your, what your input to us might be. Well, I think um, the State Department of Health expects, as does all of our healthcare systems and infectious disease experts, that we will continue to see different strains. And we will continue to identify those strains. And we are screening in the state of Indiana, as are many, many other labs and state for those strains. And then looking at, you know, will the vaccine cover it? Is it more severe? Is it less severe? Is it more contagious? Is it less contagious? And so we just know as a nature of this virus that will continue to happen and we're prepared and expecting that. I think the testing that they're going to pass out is really, really important. But I think it's a perfect example of where the federal government decided to amass those quick tests at the federal level so that they would be able to push them out. And this was much earlier in the pandemic at a time when we had regular supply chains of those tests coming to us 
in the state, and we were using them to screen people at these mass testing sites and these sites that we had all over. And all of a sudden, our suppliers could no longer give them to us because so many were going to the federal government and being held there to be given out at a later time. And the reality of that is that it made us, when we looked at Mary Smith, she came in with symptoms. If that COVID quick test was positive, we knew immediately we need to quarantine her. We need to make, give her medication, get her referred for monoclonal antibodies and other medications. We may need to treat other people in her family or watch them. We also knew that we didn't need to send a lab test on her for that because it was positive. When we lost that, we were then on a two to three at a minimum day turnaround to get those results, which delayed all of that. And monoclonal antibodies and other things have a very time-sensitive nature about when they can start. So I think that was one area where we spoke that clearly to leadership over and over again, and it was not heated. Um, I also um, would turn to my colleagues. I think it's the, the complexity of actually being able to track the disease when you distribute the home tests and so what's really positive, which is not, and how do you... Uh, so that's the complexity that I think we need to figure out. Um, I think it was beneficial to send tests um, to folks to be to get it for those who might not have been able to get it through the regular routes that we put out. But how do you determine actual disease when someone gets tested at home? And, um, you know, what kind of applications can you be able to document that they were really positive and what should be reported and what should not be reported? The ones that are done by healthcare professionals are the ones that are done by a lay person inside their homes. Yeah. and. I may take a, a different um, sort of vantage point. One of the things I think we're struggling with within the sort of the healthcare institutions is now vaccine hesitancy. Um, we are seeing it across all vaccines now, um, not children's vaccines yeah, as well, in particular. No. Yeah. And so um, we're having to, we're, we as an institution, and I would tell you, I don't think we've figured out the secret sauce yet, but we're trying to kind of figure out how, how do we sort of sort of meet people where they are and provide them the appropriate education so that we can vaccinate them across all fronts. Um, it's particularly challenging in um, some of our minority and ethnic communities. Um, and um, so that, that's, that's sort of the challenge that we're running into right now. Certainly, we were partners with both these institutions and on the mass testing during the pandemic. But the unfortunate casualty I think we're now dealing with is the fact that there's such vaccine hesitancy. And the answer is the kind of thing that Dr. Kane talked about. You have to have those re relationships. Yes. So I, and that's why we're hoping improving local public health exactly. relationships so that they can address minority communities and have that relationship. They trust them much more than they did this uh, yep. at the state level. Um, if I can go on to set, uh, Senator Daschle. Well, thank you, Donna. Let me just thank our panel for an extraordinary uh, presentation and uh, your answers to the questions in particular. Very, very impressive and helpful. I, I just like to drill down a little bit on this vaccine hesitancy challenge. I, I looked at vaccination rates just last month, and they're way below pre-pandemic levels now. I mean, this is a real crisis, and I think it relates in part to uh, some growing distrust about public health generally. Uh, but a lot of that vaccine hesitancy misinformation. And I, I, I'd love to have you just expound, if you could, on how you address misinformation, it's so pervasive today. And I think it's becoming even more problematic and 
as we evolve now into an AI world, I worry that misinformation could even become uh, even more complex in terms of the challenges it presents for, for public health. But to, if you could talk a little bit about misinformation and how you're trying to cope with it now. Let me, let me identify one other problem that we have. Our poverty level has increased in some communities. And so, you know, you have to look at the vehicle where you receive the information. So you may not have access to a healthcare provider because of the poverty level, you know, that's not top of my list. I got to figure out how I'm paying my utilities or not being kicked out of my apartment. Health may be lower on my priority list. But I also think we have to understand that um, one message doesn't meet all. So the message I give for a young black male who's like in his early 20s versus someone who's a senior Latino um woman is totally different. So we've, we've got to understand, based on the generation, the race, ethnicity, you have to have a different message. But they also um, need to have some kind of relationship with you and feel that they can trust the information. And it may not be an instant thing. And then, uh, like I tell my some of my young black males, you know, they're, they're healthy. They've never been sick in their life. Why should I give myself a, a vaccine? And, and this is terrible for me to say publicly, and maybe you can delete this part. Uh, I really don't care about you. If you want to die, that's fine. But I worry about your mother, and I worry about your grandmother in your house, and you can spread an infection to them. Their immune system is not as robust, robust as you. So the, you care about your mother, care about your grandmother that changes a number of their minds. So I think you have to know what will motivate that person. You have to do more focus groups and you have to try to get their peers to help promote that information too. <laughs> well said, Dr. Kane. Thank you. Thank you. Um, to, I mean, to Dr. Kane's point, uh, I, I would, I would it, it's a grassroots game. I mean, certainly from a public health standpoint, you can kind of create the ethos of sort of what vaccines are and why they're important. But you really, really have to meet people where you are. We, we are launching a series of initiatives where, uh, you, you know, you've got your local community health worker who perhaps is the, the woman on the block that knows the 30 people in that area and she's the emissary. Or do you go to the local barbershop and you put a clinician in there and you work with folks that are coming into those facilities? That's that's kind of the level of sort of grassroots work I think you have to do in order to build that trust. And we we have so many faith based organizations that have healthcare professionals that are in their church and they were they grew up in their church as a child, their deacon or whatever. So uh, and there's so many community based organizations and I love the barbershops and beauty shops. We had a wonderful syphilis uh, education program in our beauty shops and barbershops that were just wonderful. So. There are just so many avenues, laundromats, you know, soul food places. So they're just grocery stores where I buy my products. I just think we have to be innovative, but we have to invest more money in information. Public health hasn't always had the resources to do a lot of education and campaigns related to this. We have to up our game, increase more resources in that area. Yep. Um, Governor Ridge? Are you still with us? 
Okay. Okay. Yes, I'll uh, right. Susan. Okay. I'm what? on time. Okay, great. She got she caught us up on time. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Um, one of the challenges that the commission has struggled with, I think probably from the beginning, is um where does the federal leadership emanate from? How do you uh um so from the federal perspective and you being on the ground and dealing with this all of the time, we know that the military was very involved. Our Defense Department was very involved. HHS uh, at all levels was very involved. In fact, Why you had an HHS secretary who came out of Indiana. Yes, absolutely. Secretary Azar, our vice president. Um, and back in 2015, this group uh, recommended that the vice president uh, would be in leadership. But we struggle with that because everything has gotten so political that we struggle with where the leadership from the federal government, where do you as local and state leaders and hospital leaders look to? Do you have any recommendations for us? I, I'm, I'm, I'm very opinionated. <laughs> as to where, and, be, and I'm not just talking about pandemic, because if we also are worried about bio weapon and bio attacks, but so Dr. Kane, and I'm just curious, uh, if you all have an opinion as to where a, a leadership and the response for the country should should be, but and I will I'll, I'll um, preface this by saying that I was on the National Biodefense Science Board out of Asper, where we had Pentagon as part of that uh, coalition, CDC, and other members. But our relationships for state and local health departments are with the Centers for Disease Control. We spend an enormous amount of time every year in so many different programs, whether it's environmental or uh, population health, with that relationship. While I say that, ASPR has strong relationships with the hospital systems. And so we've got to figure out a way how to integrate public health with the hospital systems, emergency rooms, uh, with our local and state health departments. But number one, Hands down. I don't even sleep at night. That is CDC. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Kane. Dr. Box or Tori? I will just say, in addition to the CDC, um, we had an amazing leadership with Op Operation Warp Speed and General Perna. He was transparent. He was concise. He was consistent. He was... Um, regularly on the phone with our HHS Division 5, and he listened. He listened, and he wasn't there when we had the problem with the quick test that came out long after we'd had our surge. Um, and we missed it when there was a transition, and, and the communication then went more White House-centered. So I would just say that from a logistics standpoint, the no one does it better than, I think, our military and National Guard. But I agree the CDC has to be the leadership. Okay. Without a doubt, the CDC was our source for clinical guidance. Um, from our standpoint, we largely interfaced with the state. And candidly, to have just sort of that single point of contact and then have the state have that contact with a single point of contact at the federal level for us was important because we were, we were fielding too much. And so we, we needed sort of one source of truth. Um, and so we really relied on the state. And so to the extent the state had a single source of truth, I think that sort of facilitated everything. And for us, you know, we were able to get the information not only from the state, but from CDC. 
So we met with every hospital system, chief medical officer, director of the emergency room, infection control, every week, where as soon as we got the information, we pumped it out to our hospital systems that it took longer to get that information to them than compared to our state and local officials. And so that's why I think we benefited so greatly that every week they got an update We're on our Zoom calls and having our questions answered um, as we went along. And, and that's critical. How rapid can you get the information you need in order to make decisions? It's just very, very critical. And you need to ask about how we did the Indy 500 now. Um, so everybody sitting in those seats doing the Indy 500, we had their name, we had their email address, we had their mobile phone number, we had their home address. And so we had an outbreak and found someone was positive in any of those seats, I could tell you within a 10 to 15 radius who was surrounding them. So if they came from Texas, I could get a hold of them in 24 to 48 hours. So same with our men's 2021 final NCAA. So when you're looking for mass large events and you really want to be able to handle these outbreaks, talk to us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, actually, we were going to look at how fast they change tires out here. <laughs> uh, let me uh, thank all of you. It's very clear that uh, Indiana is blessed with extraordinary uh, leadership, and that saved a lot of lives. And we can learn a lot uh, just by being here and listening to all of you. So thank you uh, very much for your contributions. Thank, thank you for having us. I know. This Thank you all. Uh, we're going to get started on panel three, securing temporary cities against biological and other threats. And we're very, very pleased to have with us uh, two of our community's finest um, in law enforcement. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce uh, Sergeant Robert Brown, Jr. Uh, Sergeant Brown is the program manager of uh, the Counter uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Unit. Yes, the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department does have a Counter WMD unit. Um, he, interestingly, has been in his career in a lot of different realms of public safety. Uh, when I read your bio, he started out actually in as a firefighter, firefighter and EMT for Wayne Township. Uh, right around here and was active for six years. And then he joined Indiana National Guard uh, as an infantryman, later a military police officer, and then became a law enforcement officer in 1988. Um, he uh, has served in all different capacities at IMPD, and I'm not going to go through those. But he really began a focus on what we refer to as CBRNE, a chemical, biological, radiological, eh, nuclear uh, path, uh, by forming a detection team in 2015 and assisting the state. And we are so lucky to have him uh, involved in our statewide uh, radiological nuclear uh, program and uh, so many acronyms. Um, but I will tell you what's so important, because we host so many large gatherings, they are targets. And that's part of why we're here not just the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, um, but all of the gatherings that the governor proudly talked about 
that, uh, you know, that they talked about in the last panel as well. Um, for those of you who don't know, we are the home of the NCAA headquarters. So the headquarters are based here. And so we host men's and women's events. Yeah, we host men's and women's events, sporting events in all different sports, um, uh, as well as Olympic trials. And uh, and then that Pan Am and let pardon Pan Am games Pan Am games were here back in the day, um, Devin. But it's so important, and these are all targets that law enforcement thinks about on a regular basis. Um, what I'm really pleased, though, to learn about is the Sigma project that was mentioned earlier. Um, we hosted a pilot project here. We're going to hear about that. That started back in 2015, so we're not new to this. Um, and so, Sergeant Brown, we're very, very pleased to have you. And then also with Sergeant Brown is Special Agent uh, Casey Farrell. Um, he is the Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator for the Indianapolis Office of the FBI. All uh, division, not, or I'm sorry, all field offices uh, in the FBI, I believe, have a Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator. And so that gives our country a sense of security that there are people very focused in the FBI on these threats. Uh, he is responsible for conducting outreach with federal, state, and local stakeholder, stakeholders. This is not just a federal responsibility. They have to educate and they have to make sure they're working closely with their local and state partners. And um, they have responsibilities for investigating these types of crimes or acts of terrorism, God forbid. But we have had these. Uh, and in fact, many often we think about um, this commission began sometime after the anthrax attacks on our nation's capital. That uh, my time as U.S. attorney here from 01 to 07, the anthrax attacks were happening. Uh, and that was not an isolated. It happened over a period of time. Many of you who uh, were working in D.C. at the time, it truly created it was an act of terrorism. But those of us around the country had to learn about all of this. And it was our partner's and the leadership of the FBI that helped educate federal, state, and locals um, on issues like the anthrax attacks that were happening. So welcome. And so with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and I guess start with Sergeant Brown. Um, why don't you get us started? And uh, then you've seen, if you've been here this morning, each of you will speak, and then we'll uh, begin questioning by the panelists. Thanks. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, as you, you know, and many of you are here for the first time and you're figuring out. There's a thing called Hoosier Hospitality. <laughs> it's real. It's a way of life for us. It's, it's a mindset for us here in the Midwest. And we're always trying to be helpful and do what we can and for the greater good. And that's where we kind of got involved with DARPA. Um, it, it was actually just by being in the right place at the right time with the right people, having a conversation, uh, that that all came about. So this takes us back to 2015 and we were securing this event for the Indy 500 and we were getting ready for that hundred year anniversary event. And we were trying to figure out ways to make it safer. And that's always my focus is how do we make it safe? Um, so that, kind of in, made a few introductions. We got a few people talking back and forth and, hey, we'd like to try this. I came to the IMS staff, asked them if they had a problem with that, if they were good with us trying that technology. And as you heard from President Doug Bowles earlier, uh, this is a test facility. 
we love to do testing. Uh, so it's, I want to say, you know, a big thanks to IMS for allowing us to be uh, able to come out and do the things that we've done and, and do that testing. Um, so specifically to the DARPA project, it started out as a rad radiological nuclear program. Um, over time, we noticed that there's more threats that, that we can probably counter. Uh, so let's bring bring that Sigma program to the next level, which made it become what they call Sigma Plus, and we added the Chem and Bio as part of that. Uh, we've had a lot of success with that program. It was originally designed to be a five-year project. Um, we were gracious uh, to get a three-year extension, made it an eight-year program. However, the Sigma Plus project ends Saturday. So uh, it's done. Uh, the, the technology that's been created is viable um, in, in the rad nuke realm. It is very viable in the chemical realm. Still needs a little work on the bio side. Uh, but we were making great progress. And, and we were trying to come up with a real-time biological detection system. We saw, saw some positive things from that. Um, it is capable, but it's not finished, and it needs needs more time. Uh, so if if that pro program could uh, carry on in some form with that development, I think realistically we're about five years away from having a viable concept device. That's huge. All this uh, equipment had telemetry capability, so we at the Indy 500 and, and working our other events here in the city, we're able to see that telemetry in real time at our command post. And at our command post are my counterparts, like Special Agent Farrell, uh, among many others, um, sitting there and we're able to monitor that data as it comes in. We have the right scientific minds in the room to make a unified decision on what action needs to be taken. Uh, if there's anything that, that we can go out and possibly sample uh, with our partners at the civil support team or the Marion County Public Health Department, uh, and then get that off to the lab, be that a CST mobile lab or the LRN laboratory in it, downtown Indy uh, for verification. But uh, I think it's critical to have equipment that will allow us to see in real time and have that telemetry capability. More information's better, we can all agree. Um, and for us to see that on one common operating picture, right, on one system is invaluable because we can bring everyone together, we can look at the data, we can decide with the course of action. Uh, and for this event, uh, do we, what do we tell? What do we, what's our recommendation uh, to the track? Do we shelter in place? Do we evacuate? Can we move people in a certain direction? Those are all things that we have to think about, um, especially with the chemical release. Uh, we have a plume. So um, I, I will say that one of the great, great things that came out of the DARPA Sigma Plus project was plume predictive technology. So that came out of the chemical sensors and, and their development. Uh, so we're able to 
detect um, items as they're in the air, as they're flowing, and and the modeling system will give us a prediction on where that plume is going to go. More importantly, it tells us where it came from, which is huge. So we can send forces there to mitigate that. If it's an accidental leak, we can shut it down. If it's intentional release, we can shut that down. Um, that does carry over here to our partnership with IMS. We were able to come out here and do some real-world testing. Uh, we brought out the Department of Defense Joint Program Executive Office. We brought out the folks from Dugway Proving Ground. Uh, we had multiple people here from the national laboratories uh, participating in this, as well as the um, um, CWMD office uh, from my DHS or from uh, National DHS, uh, working together and doing these releases with simulant materials that were non non invasive, non toxic, and were able to visually verify the data as being accurate. Uh, with a visual tracer, and all the, the labs were able to validate that data that we were seeing from the, the uh, plume prediction. So we've made a lot of great strides. Uh, we're hopefully going to be able to continue this at some point in the future, uh, but we are kind of a test city, and, and that's always been my focus, is to not just really do things for us, it's doing for the entirety of us nation right um so that you, that's where we kind of stand and and i don't want to steal off casey's thunder because i know he's got a great presentation so i'll pause here and and let casey talk thank you thank you thank you sergeant brown um representative brooks thank you for the introduction i appreciate it um thank you to the uh, commission for the invitation um i've had to testify before grand jury but never before commission this is a it's a nice change uh, Less you. pressure. Yes, especially. Yes, yes. Um, thank you to IMS for hosting. They're always such a good host, and especially for events like this. Uh, so again, that's appreciated. Uh, as Re Representative Brooks mentioned, uh, I'm the Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator for the FBI here in Indianapolis. Um, for those not familiar, there is a Joint Terrorism Task Force um, resident in each FBI field office, and typically. Uh, then those, each one of those uh, Joint Terrorism Task Force uh, is a Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator. Here in Indiana, um, because we are a, a small to medium office and uh, the representatives know how the funding staffing levels work based on population size and then that dictates office size and then the size of the JTTF, um, I am the, the one FBI agent that's on the uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction Coordinator program here. Uh, but thankfully, since I'm on a JTTF, uh, I have a lot of support, particularly uh, two gentlemen in the uh, the audience here today uh, who are state police, they're, uh, they're task force officers, Tom Arvin and Gary Warfield. So they uh, assist with all things weapons of mass destruction and, and special events. So I'm very grateful to have them and uh, the makeup of the JTTF that, that supports that. So my role here in Indian Indianapolis, uh, it's both weapons of mass destruction, but also the special events coordinator. And those two positions very much go hand in hand, uh, just due to the nature of what we're trying to either uh, respond to, investigate. Um, so there's, with the weapons of mass destruction, uh, Representative Brooks mentioned earlier, C. Bernie acronym, so chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and explosives. Uh, 
the FBI uh, would be that, that remit, that acronym, uh, those challenges all fall within the remit of WMD coordinator. Uh, along with that is special events. And so I would, I'm the representative to the FBI representative here in Indianapolis to the Indy 500, uh, Colts games, Pacers games, big events at Lucas Oil or the convention center. Uh, this past year, we started working some more home games of the Pacers, uh, the Indiana State Fair, uh, which represents a, a unique challenge. I think it's one of the largest fairs in the country. There's livestock. There's tens of thousands of people that, that attend every night. Uh, so with that, uh, myself, Gary, or Tom, we try to have at least one of us to these special events. Um, in the event that there is a, an issue, Sea Bernie issue, that rises to the level of a federal matter. Uh, so if it is uh, something that is deployed with malicious intent, uh, if there is a payload attached to a, a, a drone uh, or unmanned aerial uh, vehicle of some kind, if, it, uh, if there is a conspiracy, if it's a terrorist event, uh, then uh, myself, I'm sort of forward deployed with other representatives from our office um, at, say, the Indy 500, then um, work that scene, try to collect evidence, and treat it as a uh, as an investigation in in partnership with our state, local, and federal partners. If it is a bio matter, uh, certainly we're going to be working those events with the fantastic Indiana Department of Health that we have here, Marion County Public Health. Um, Representative Brooks mentioned earlier about uh, the FBI teaching, but I've I've been in this position for about ten months, and so really all the learning has been on on. This side of the house, um, I have been very, very fortunate uh, to learn from the likes of Sergeant Brown. You know, he, he talked about who's your hospitality. Um, I took over from my predecessor with zero transition, and thanks to representatives from IDH and Marion County and IMPD, ISP, uh, I was welcomed into the fold from the security world, the special events world, the WMD world. And I've learned a lot in a year. And again, it's thanks to that who's your, who's your hospitality. And it's um, you know fortunate to have real worldwide subject matter experts like Sergeant Brown. So again, happy to be here. Um, we'll, I think, speak later, maybe in answers to one of the questions about what the FBI uh, brings to, to the WMD and the, the C. Bernie and the special events world. The big thing for us is, is counter drones, uh, in particular for the, for the Indy 500. Uh, which I could speak to, uh, maybe in the question and answer session. Thank you very, very much. And uh, it's it's not every day that the uh, federal representative is giving all the kudos to the local for welcoming him in to the fold. Before we go on, could other law enforcement that have worked with um, these gentlemen please stand? We'd just like to know who uh, else is here that maybe has worked with. Uh, you mentioned state police. Okay, you mentioned state police and uh, what agencies are you with? Okay, state, state police. Those two gentlemen are the um, folks that you mentioned. Yes, that's Gary and Tom. Okay, no, they just lost their job because they're undercover. No, <laughs> sorry. And and yourselves? Who are you with? Oh, sorry, Brown. Yeah. Okay, outstanding. And yourselves? Okay. Okay, outstanding. I want thank you all so very much. So uh, thank you. Now I want to uh, 
you all to uh, you know be included in this because when I was U.S. Attorney from 01 to 07, and uh, suddenly um, you know realizing particularly after 9-11, that this particular facility, mass gatherings, could be a potential target. I learned and got very involved in learning what the federal role was with our state. Homeland Security Departments were just being stood up. Governor Ridge uh, was the first. I mean, think about it. That's how much our world has changed in those 20 years. And so we didn't have state departments of Homeland Security like we do now. Um, it fell really to local law enforcement and some expertise in our field offices. And so that coordination of what takes place here. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about the the level of planning? Not that you need to get into that, but what do you do for mass gathering events to get ready? How long uh, do you typically train and bring people in? Uh, and if you could just give us a, and how can the federal government help with any of that training? Uh, Sergeant Brown? Well, for um, to answer part of the question, uh, when do we start? Uh, for the Indy 500, we start the day after the race to plan the next year's race. Really, that's when we're starting. Um, it takes a long time uh, to get the resources together. This past May, uh, for the Indy 500, in, in my group, uh, that was the uh, counter WMD group, we were, had 38 different agencies that were working together for that common goal. Uh, and that was state, federal, um, huge, huge tasking to bring everyone together, work as one group, but I think we do it well. Um, another reason I think we're able to get some of the things done that we do here is because we do work together well. Uh, there's not, not uh, a day that goes by that, that we don't talk to each other or, or at least someone uh, in the group, right? We're, we're always sharing uh, information. And, and that's across the board with all the agencies. Uh, we all work together very well. And I've been told from others who come to visit here uh, that that's always not the case in other places. Um, I don't know why it works here. It just does. Uh, we're able to get the right people, I guess. Um, the other thing is is always going to come up is funding. Uh, I can't beat around that. Uh, that push. So uh, funding is always an issue, uh, especially at the local, because you know we're kind of the low, low-hanging fruit, the money tree, right? Uh, you know, we just don't don't have as much resources as our federal partners or our state partners do. So uh, one of the ways that we've kind of been able to address that is is grant funding. Um, that that could be better. What would I think benefit us the most is is if somebody could um, have some grant funding that is actually earmarked just for this, so it's not able to be used for something else. You know, it, it actually gets where it needs to go, and that's part of the problem with funding is sometimes it doesn't get where it needs to go. So um, I hope I answered your question. You did. Thank you. And I guess relative to that and that planning, uh, does the FBI share with state and locals during this process threat information um, with the local partners? Is that done through the JTTF? 
or is that a separate, um, because this is a specific event, um, how do you share the threat information if, if you do share threat information that FBI received? Yes, ma'am, we do. It's um, a fairly formal process. Uh, there's either a CETA or a JCETA, which is another acronym for it, but uh, a joint special event threat assessment. So uh, the intelligence analyst core within the FBI in Indianapolis works with the Indiana Fusion Center, Indiana Department of Homeland Security. Um, and for a big event like the 500, we put out a, a joint CETA for something maybe a little less uh, scale, say like the Indiana Pacers or the Indianapolis Colts, we put out a CETA, which mostly comes from us. And so again, it's a special event uh, threat assessment. And so it looks at um, what threats are out there in our holdings or that we're seeing it then is passed around the community, particularly at the Fusion Center for the race. And then that is distributed amongst all partners, uh, both public and private. Whatever threats are known to the track, uh, either individuals, um, somebody targeting the race, and yes, so shared both privately and um, or with private and public partners. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, uh, just a quick question to to follow up on that. I understand how you share information, particularly threat information, but how do you communicate with each other when you have different systems? It's a, it's a great question. So um, part of that is. I mean, do you use satellite phones when you're running around a place like this? Uh, so here we have both radios and cellular telephones. That's that's the main form of communication. But uh, I think the the way that it's streamlined the most is by having uh, representatives such as myself at the event. So are you sitting in the same place? Uh, yes, ma'am. Well, so. So Sergeant Brown is at Stout Field, close by, ready to respond. Uh, but most of us are, so for the race in particular, the Indy 500, uh, most federal and state partners are on location uh, the, the week leading up, uh, particularly at the museum. We, we park there. And so that's where all our command vehicles are. So the command vehicles are all co-located and can speak directly to each other. My boss of the ASAC of the FBI Indianapolis and other uh, higher level representatives are in the ninth floor pagoda. And so when we, uh, speaking earlier to the training and the preparation, we do uh, tabletop exercises prior to the Indy 500. And a lot of those are working through that very issue. It's communication. So if something were to happen, it gets communicated to the ninth floor pagoda where all the leadership is located. And then uh, maybe same time or shortly thereafter, then it's communicated to the various command vehicles that are co-located together, and it's sent out text messages, phone call, radios, uh, we're using it all. And what if the cell phones are knocked out? Well, hopefully radio. If, if, um, if that was unavailable, again, it, like, being co-located is about as, as good as we can get. Um, we've worked through scenarios of, of obviously, IMS can uh, send messages to the, the entire track. Uh, so if we needed them to, to get on and say, we are evacuating or we're not evacuating, you know, stay in place. or there's an incident, please, you know, don't go near that section. Uh, that can be communicated via, via IMS through the Pagoda. Thank you. Okay. Not certain if Governor Ridge is here. Okay. Uh, Senator Daschle? He's off too. Okay. He is, he's not here as well. Uh, Fred, uh, any questions? Thank you.
Yep. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much. Uh, appreciate your service, your 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 work, and your unblemished record. So, want want that to continue. So, I want uh, before I chaired the Energy and Commerce Committee, I chaired the Telco Subcommittee, and I was in Washington on nine eleven. I drove through the parking Pentagon parking lot that morning um, before the uh, attack, and uh, we had a good number. I was in New York a couple of days later. And uh, we, we took the recommendations of the 911 uh, committee very seriously, and we passed the legislation that forced all of our broadcasters to move from analog to digital, preserving part of that digital wavelength for law enforcement. So, in fact, you could communicate with each other. We also passed the Upton Amendment. Uh, Brief little story. I proposed to my wife at an Orioles game with Brooks Robinson at third base. I was reminded about that when he passed away this morning. Uh, I had a plane fly over at Memorial Stadium. Amy, this is the need to say yes. And she did. <laughs> It'll be 40 years uh, in another couple weeks. Uh, but after 9-11, uh, the Upton Amendment then passed, so no one can do that again because we ban aircraft flying over sporting events, which I go to a lot, uh, with more than 35,000 people, 330,000 for this event, uh, an hour before the game. So the banners, you know, whatever, uh, are gone, it, with exceptions for law enforcement, obviously, and, and the military. But we've got new threats now, drones. So what specifically... Do you need Congress to do or what authorities uh, might be lagging as we take on this new threat, particularly as we watch uh, the events in Ukraine and, and Russia in terms of, you know, we have to be, you all have to be lucky every day. They have to be lucky once. So what is it that we need to, to make sure that your job might be a little bit easier as we move to the next stage in terms of what the bad guys uh, would love to do to the a wonderful event like this? Good question. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to uh, mention a conversation that uh, Karina Bertella from Transportation Security Administration and I had just the other day. Um, Karina is our, our law enforcement uh, federal air marshal lead for this region. And, and she and I talk a lot and we recently have been doing counter drone uh, not to the level that, that Casey can talk about at, at this venue, uh, but we've actually been using a system where we can detect not only the drone itself, but where the pilot is. And as uh, currently, there's no legislation to allow us to anything other than really just go talk and, and ask that pilot to fly back. Um, which is a problem because drones fly very fast. They fly very low, undetected. Before, um, you know, if someone was using nefarious intent, before we were able, would be able to get to the, the pilot, they would have already succeeded because the drone's already there at the target. Uh, so I, I don't quite know what the answer is other than there, there needs to be uh, some thought given to allowing the locals, and I say locals, I'm including state in that, uh, the authority to have some type of capability to protect these venues, be that taking a drone over, 
and flying it, you know, to a safe area, you know, whatever. But then there needs to be something also on the back end for that pilot. What are we doing about that? And and what laws can be in place uh, to make you know, penalty? Currently, there's not a lot there. And it, right now, we're just doing kind of a courtesy campaign of going up and doing some education about, you know, with the pilots when we encounter them, uh, you know, that they shouldn't be flying in certain locations, especially when the temporary temporary flight restriction is in place. Um, so is a temporary flight in, restriction in place uh, for the, the Indy 500? Yes. And what's the radius that, I mean, is it a mile, five miles? I I can't speak to that directly. I'm not sure. Um, I, I, I know it's several miles. Yes. It's uh, several miles around the track, um, and we're actually uh, working with the NFL for and Lucas Oil Security for that as well. That'll be about a block radius around the perimeter of the stadium. Uh, but that's a it's a great question, sir, because everyone in this room, particularly the law enforcement folks uh, behind us, that's that's our biggest concern with the Indy 500, um, or if the roof is open at Lucas Oil. Um, I can take two seconds just to uh, kind of speak to where how we're currently postured for the the counter drone. Um, so the FBI, the I guess the big resource that we provide as part of security effort for Speedway Police and for the and for the uh, for IMS is our counter drone capability. So that capability comes from uh, CERG and uh, down in Quantico, and that. When we deploy Sir and our counter drone, they have the, the ability both to detect and mitigate, mitigate a drone. Uh, won't get into too many specifics, but um, even though the race is technically a SEER 2 event, um, the Sir resources are typically designated only for SEER 1 events. Can you please explain those? Yes. Just yes. So, um, yep. afraid of what the acronym is, I got the CETA acronym earlier. Okay. The SEER 1 Special Events <laughs> Rating. Uh, but it's a special event rating put out by DHS. And why wouldn't they be at one? 330,000? I mean, I go to the big house. We got 115,000 there. But why Why wouldn't you have a three three times that year? It, I mean, you got the inauguration with a million people. But, I mean, there's not a lot of events larger than 330. I think because of the unique size and venue, IMS and Speedway PD receive all the resources that they would receive if they were a SEER 1. And so it's a it's a SEER 2. It will likely be changed in future date. But for now, even though it's a SEER 2, they still receive the resources of a SEER 1 to include the FBI's counter-drone effort. And so uh, we have the ability to detect and mitigate. We deploy our bomb techs. We designate landing zones. And so that way, to Sergeant Brown's point, if a drone is detected, not 100%, but we have the ability to detect it uh, and mitigate it because, of course, the concern is that if there's a payload. Uh, and to Representative Brooks' point earlier, we also have a U.S. attorney from the uh, Southern District of Indiana for deployed so that he or she can decide real time if this is a federal matter and if Sergeant Brown's other point, um, you know, how we're going to deal with the operator. Can we seize the drone? Can we can we press charges? Um, but that is an issue is 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 what legislation is out there for us to use. Federally, it's there, but a lot of these are not rising to the level of a federal matter or federal crime. It's, it's where it's a, a local issue that that becomes the, the issue. Um, 
The other issue is CERG is, and again, I don't want to be speaking for Director Ray. I'm speaking way above my, my pay grade here, but um, CERG is stretched very, very thin just covering SEER 1 events. So I think we will have them deployed if, we, when we, if and when we request them every year. Um, but to, to Sergeant Brown's point, um, if there was a local ability or resource for mitigation, then um, we wouldn't necessarily have to worry about whether or not Sir can deploy for, for the race. Um, and then we have to bring them in and they have, to, they have to come out with a lot of equipment and resources, time and money uh, to deploy and to set up. And so uh, if, if there was that local ability, uh, another federal agency or a state agency that had the, uh, the mitigation effort, that would be uh, hugely helpful. I just ask a quick clarifying. When you say mitigation, do you mean blowing up the drone, or do you mean that there are ways to divert the drone and capture it? Or yes, no, that's, it's a great question. So it doesn't work 100% of the time, but yes, it's the so you know the fear is that uh, you can detect it, but then you can't act on it, and so the operator can do whatever he or she was planning to do with it. Uh, particularly scary scenarios if they have a payload. So the so the ability is uh, to take over that drone and maybe land it where we would like for it to land. And that's usually an open landing zone with bomb techs ready to, to act if, if need be. And so, yes, that, that capability is out there. It's not 100%, but it's, it's pretty effective. And it's, again, they um, even to, to mitigate it just to the point where maybe it, it would come down. We don't want it to come down within the track. We want to get it away from the track or outside of the track and away from spectators. That's what the current capability is. But Sergeant Brown's um, point earlier, it only exists within the FBI. And so we have to deploy CERG each time we want to use them. And there's, there's stretch Super Bowl and conventions and other SEER 1 events. And so if we had the legislation and the, the mitigation capability locally, it would be uh, very beneficial. Terrific. Thank you. Jim? Thank you. Um, sitting here looking at all of those empty seats and then imagining them filled with 330,000 people. Um, I think about crowd control. And um, uh, in a couple of scenarios, um, one where, let's say, since the drone mitigation is not 100% effective, a drone or even for that mat matter, a piloted small plane came over, aerosoling something out, which could be uh, a pathogen or could just be white powder, talcum powder, uh, would, would create panic. And, um, and, you know, we've all seen terrible cases of soccer games and other events where you have, you know, stampedes and many, many people crushed to death. So that's one horrible scenario. Another, of course, is um, where the, the audience is not, the attendees are not aware that there's a danger, but somehow they have to be evacuated um, using loudspeakers and some in, in instructions and so forth that's meant to uh, uh, get a, uh, an orderly evacuation without that kind of event. So could you talk about crowd control and there's different scenarios and how you, um, how you manage that? Um, I'll, I'll speak to that briefly because um, it's kind of, I'm familiar with some of the things they do. I'm just, that's not my world, uh, 100%. So, um, but I do, I do know the Indianapolis Motor Speedway does have a plan 
a very good plan in place for evacuation. Um, they've actually modeled that um, and determined the best avenues to direct people to empty the stadium if need be, or you know the, the grandstands if need be, quickly, and where where to push those people to. So I know that plan exists. I, I re recall that um, speaking with them quite a while back. Um, as far as the efforts that law enforcement takes, um, you know, the Indy, Indy 500 has a lot of police agencies here working together. Uh, it's not just one police department, even, even though this venue is technically in the town of Speedway and Speedway has a police department. This is their event. We're all just here, uh, to support that event and give them the assistance they need. And, and that goes from not only here locally, but as Casey just mentioned, uh, federal assets come in and, and help with that. So um, as far as directing the, uh, the people, I know it's a challenge uh, coming into the venue itself. There are multiple different gates. There's four vehicle gates that we have to secure and staff, and we're screening vehicles as they come in. Um, that is a bit of a challenge. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, I want to say it's less than about 5,000 uh, vehicles actually come into this venue on race race events uh, that have to be checked. And, and we do that at the various gates using a myriad of different equipment and canine detection dogs. Um, so we're screening for all possible threats that we can detect. Um, pedestrians, as, as they're coming in, um, for trying to get them as, as them too. But, you know, they, there's 250 lanes of pedestrian entry into this venue. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Try to secure that is is a challenge. And and we find it that, uh, you know, we'll, we know we're never going to be 100%. It's just not possible. Uh but I think working together and, and working with the equipment that we're able to bring to bear and, and hope to bring to bear in the future with next generation equipment, um, it will always make it safer. So, Casey, I don't know if you wanted to weigh in on that. So, to answer your question, um, again, Sergeant Brown and I are, are not experts on how they would uh, evacuate the 330,000, let's say, but we've worked through those scenarios. So to the question earlier about training leading up to the Indy 500, we were in this room and we did a tabletop exercise. And in that exercise, it was a uh, vehicular homicide. So an individual had a box truck, ran through the bar uh, barricade, the street closures, the barricades. Um, and unfortunately, you know, in the scenario had killed some people and got into a gunfight with IMPD. And so then, okay, everyone, how do we deal with this? And because part of that was we didn't know if the box truck contained any kind of explosive or any sea Bernie type of, of issue. And so to your, to your question, IMS was then running with, okay, one, we need to communi communicate this to the ninth floor pagoda. And how do we communicate that? And if some communication methods are down, how do we move to secondary ones? Once we communicated what the issue is, then it's, okay, how do we get people out and, and where do we do that? And so IMS uh, representatives have talked about, okay, 
so the issue happened at gate two. So gate two is off limits. Now we're going to evacuate through these various gates. So there's a plan in place, certainly, to evacuate people. Uh, the issue that we, I think, are concerned with, to Bob's point earlier about no real-time detection for bio, is what happens if something is deployed at an event like this, and we don't know about it until uh, individuals present themselves, say, at a hospital or clinic with symptoms. Again, their public health would have to you know, have the majority of that unfortunate scenario. Uh, but as, as investigators as, or as FBI at the federal, state, local level, how do we how do we preserve? How do we collect evidence? How do we um, how do we track down witnesses? How do we try to work an investigation when we may not know that event happened until 24, 48 hours after? So there's just as much challenge of, of evacuating people, but there's also a, a huge challenge of we let everybody go and. There goes our crime scene. There goes our evidence. There goes our witnesses. Maybe there goes bad guy and you know co-conspirators. So we we worked through a lot of that um, in the TTX. We try to do those TTXs. We do multiple ones before the, the race, and um, so it's something we've thought about. There's certainly a plan for evacuation, um, but yeah, it's, it's a, a tough challenge with as many people. For Jeff, thank you much. I, I should say um, because. Uh, spring can be tornado weather uh, in Indiana as well. I certainly know that the Motor Speedway has, um, for decades, actually had uh, mass exodus plans in place, uh, more for tornadoes. Um, and I think those have been called upon once that I know of uh, that, that I've been told. Um, so, um, so I think, you know, these things are discussed and exercised a bit, not with the 330,000 people here, but, uh, but tornadoes is something that's also caused the uh, evacuation plans. So they do an amazing job. Peggy. Thanks. Um, this last discussion makes me want to quickly ask one question and then I want to drill down deeper on another. Uh, in terms of, I think you asked a question about command center or whatever um, here. I mean, for example, if you were going to evacuate how you evacuate does depend on the nature of the event and doing your best to ascertain the nature of the event requires different kinds of expertise and of course ultimately will require action in the face of huge uncertainty most likely. But is there a command center that actually is operating in real time that would inform decisions um, where you have the, the public health people and the FBI and the police and, um, and other you know, critical decision makers all in a room together? My sense was you don't, but I, I feel like that would be crucial. We do, yes. So do. the, so the NIFOR uh, Pagoda is where that command center uh, exists for the uh, CARB Day, for Brickyard, for the Indy 500. Uh, that is with a command center. So it's representatives, higher, higher level leadership representatives from FBI and other federal partners, certainly state police, uh, IMPD, departments of health, uh, to representative Brooks point, uh, there's meteorologists in the event of, of weather. So those are all on nine four. They're all sitting together. They all have command. Okay. I, I somehow in your earlier answer had the feeling that 
communication existed, but you weren't all together. Yes. And clear lines of authority on decision making, depending on what the nature of the event is. I, I, you know, the hundred percent, yes. Okay, well, that's helpful. I wanted um, uh, to ask a, a sort of a pointed question. Um, you're off the hook here, perhaps, <laughs> but I'm not sure. Um, but you spoke in a very enthusiastic way about, I think it was called Sigma Plus, or, and, and also its um, existing program, the BioWatch program. But I, I, I would really like you to convince me about the value add. I've, I've watched the BioWatch program since its inception, and you know, I, I, I see that it has many deficiencies, partly you know, technologic, that we don't have the real-time detection capacity that we would need. So the vision is real-time information for action, but the reality is delays in terms of having to take the um, material to be tested and, and get the results back. And by then, people are long since dispersed, et cetera. So Sigma Plus, I gather, is an effort to take it to the next level to apply more um, more advanced approaches. Um, you indicated it's coming to an end. Is that because decisions have been made that it isn't working? Or is that because they there needs to be an effort to analyze it, to decide how well is it working. But in your experience with, you know, being an important, you know, test site for for it, have there been instances where you have really been able to say this is an example of the benefit that would change the way I'd be able to to respond? Because it's gonna if if we move forward with this kind of technology, which theoretically seems just so compelling and attractive, but it's going to require huge investments, which are going to obviously be taken from, from other um, places and, and other critical needs. So I just, I'd like, since you probably know more about this than almost anyone else, I'd love you to, to help me move beyond what is a little bit of cynicism about the reality of this, although enthusiasm for the concept? I'll do my best. So yeah. um, first off, I'm, I'm going to say uh, that I am on the local BioWatch Advisory Committee. I'm um, their law enforcement representative. Uh, so been, been involved with that for some time. Um, just recently, um, my team, the IMPD officers, have received some additional training to be part of the phase one sampling team. Uh, that would occur if we get a bar, a BioWatch actionable result. Um, so I, I want to say this. Uh, could BioWatch be better? Yes. But BioWatch works. And it's worked for 20 years, right? And it, it works every day. There does have limitations. I mean, it does have limitations, I, I admit. Um, the, the, the placement of the sensors, you know, you're limited. How many are out there? Um, we've had population growth since those sensors were originally placed. Uh, maybe we need to revisit, uh, you know, are they currently in the best spot to serve the most people? You know, maybe that could be looked at and tweaked. But, you know, the system system's drawing in, drawing in the air. We're checking the filters. 
every 24 hours. It's going to an LRN lab or a BioWatch laboratory to be to be tested. Um, that does work, but is it you know is it the best that we can do as a country? No, we can improve on it, and, and I agree with that. Um, I think the DARPA program was trying to address that, the Sigma program. But keep in mind, DARPA projects are only traditionally five years long. It's, a, it's you know, a temporary project. We were gracious enough to get a three-year extension, but there are no more extensions. The program is over just because that's the way it is uh, in their world. Um, it's not that, you know, anybody thought it wasn't working. It was working. Uh, it's just that the prog program timed out. Someone needs to pick that up. And I don't know who that is. I, I wish I did. Um, but somebody needs to pick that up because there's a lot of information that we learned in those eight years that we don't want to lose. And, and there was some technology really coming to bear and showing some promise that that could give us real-time biodetection capability. Maybe not in a year, maybe not in two, but, you know, maybe in five, we would be able to see real-world uh, uh, viable uh, detection systems. So we're just not, uh, we're not there yet. And, and, and I'm not, you know, representing DARPA in any way. I was just a partner of theirs and hosted the events, got to be part of that, and, and, and I think that they were doing some really good things. Um, but as I said, the, you know, the, the bio just needs a little bit more work, but I think we can get there. Welcome. Question. Uh, actually, Dr. Kane talked about the smartwatch technology. Yes. That you have on? Cool. There's about uh, six of us in the room. Okay, good. Well, excellent. And so if we see you guys running out, we should find out. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Can can you talk to us sure. a little bit about that? And is that that's part of Sigma Plus? It is. Uh, that was uh, kind of a side study uh, that was conducted um, as a human wearable study. So kind of human subject testing, if you will. So what we were looking at was the ability to have something um, that you could wear that would monitor your health, like uh, a lot of people have Fitbits and, and other items, right? Um, but then that information would be fed into kind of uh, uh, a system that DARPA created uh, that was kind of our overarching monitoring system that I still use. Um, and that... Um, doesn't show me real-time data um, be because we're doing a human subject study. So we have to kind of anonymize some of that. So I can't, I can't look at the system and I can't tell what your health would be, right? Uh, because that's protected information. But it does give us some early warning if you start becoming symptomatic because you're answering a daily survey on how you feel and when was the last time you slept and, and how was your, you know, your activity level today? So it's, it's measuring those metrics against what it's the data that it's seeing. And it's feeding that into an algor algorithm that is only going to alert us if we hit certain markers on certain things, like a, a temperature, and this isn't the exact, but a temperature, say, of over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. 
uh, that would trigger an alert that you might want to uh, pay a little more attention to the data coming from this system. Uh, and, and we can start to build. And, and what we're trying to do is, is the goal was to try to um, do what we couldn't do at the beginning of COVID. We couldn't see the population in real time. We didn't know where clusters were yet until that data started coming in a little bit later, right? But if we'd had everyone wearing a device, we would know. We would start seeing pop-ups in St. Louis or Dallas or wherever uh, of clustering of, of, of these type of, of symptoms. So um, that is part of the Sigma project as well that is actually um, going to end very soon. Okay. Well, thank you for explaining that. Uh, Rachel Levinson is here with us um, Did not, uh, and have tried to get to find out if you have any questions that you wanted to ask. And I apologize, but we were behind time till Donna caught us up. Any questions you might have for this panel? I don't think you're, yeah, we can't hear yeah, you. My plus leading to on. Okay. There we go. Maybe pull it closer to you. Yeah. Or speak into it. Yeah, if you could speak into it. You closer. Lean in closer. Yeah, be like right here. I know it's not comfortable, but it would be helpful. A little. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe you should just come. That's best. Mine wanted. You have to talk to special agents. Let's start with yeah. There you go. Right. Okay, so the the uh, the commission has had a number of discussions about BioWatch and other types of um, detection systems, but particularly the need to have something that's giving you real time information. And if we're in an event in this in this place right now. Um, and you want to be able to decide whether you need to evacuate or to move people around. I very much like the discussion um, about what you would do if you think that there's a drone that has a payload and what, what you would do. And I'll follow up with that. But waiting until people are coming into the hospital is really not the best way to go about it for many reasons. No, no opportunity for attribution, for example, if that, if that should happen. So you were absolutely correct, Sergeant Brown, in saying that the DARPA program um, is ending because that's what they do. It's a development program. It is not intended to support a system over time. So do you, do you, would you be willing, if there was a source of funding, presumably from the federal government, to continue some of the development? But because DARPA is not going to do that, that's not what they do. But there still needs to be further testing and refinement, in your view, I think. And I'd like to know if you think that that's true. Um, would you be willing to continue with that? Uh, do you think that it's useful? And um, one possibility, because we know that BioWatch is very limited, particularly in terms of the timing it takes to get any kind of result, but also what it's detecting. And the inability, the relative lack of flexibility to see what it's picking up, you can't add unknowns to that very easily. Um, what if the funding for BioWatch that's being continued to, to be spent by the government, could, would you suggest that that's something that could be moved over to 
uh, a continuation of developing and deploying Sigma, Sigma Plus. And if I'm putting you on the spot and it's really too difficult as it, or presents a conflict, you're, you're welcome to say that you wouldn't want it. You can always ask the federal government for more money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, that's a good, you know, both those are good questions. And, and to kind of answer your, your first question, um, would we, and, and I say we as being our community um, here locally, still support the development of the DARPA? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, the, the, the technology that, that they were able to bring to, to fruition and, and, this, you know, they had some of the smartest people in the country from all the national labs involved and some, and some private sector companies, um, working together for eight years on this project and it ends. I mean, it's just the way it is. And, and someone, I don't know, you know, I, I think it needs to be federal oversight, uh, a federal agency. Um, and that could be whoever. Uh, it could be CDC, it could be FBI, it could be CWMD, whoever wants to to pick up that and run with it. Um, but this needs to continue. Uh, absolutely. Now, to your second, qu second question, um, yes, it, it would be great to have real-time detection at our BioWatch PSU locations. Um, I, I I don't disagree with that at all. Um, what I don't want to see happen is I don't want to see the current technology be cast aside, uh, you know, with our, our current BioWatch systems, because they do work. Um, and maybe we could tweak that a little bit. Um, you know, maybe we can up our sampling and go from once every 24 hours to once every eight hours. But again, that, that comes with funding. You know, you have to pay for the people to go out and collect those filters, and then you have to pay for the extra filters. And, and now we've got to staff the lab, you know, in 24 hours, right? So we got to pay for staff and all the, all the reagents and everything that comes with that. So, I mean, yeah, is there an answer? Yeah, there's an answer, uh, of, but it, it's going to cost us. So um, what I would really like to see happen is I'd like to see continued development of of the technology that, that uh, Sigma has. And I would like to see that co-located with the existing BioWatch system. I don't see where that would uh, be harmful at all. And that might get us to the point where we don't have to necessarily sample, pull a sample every day. Why don't we just pull a sample once the technology is proven, when we get an alarm or an alert, and then we could go pull the filter. Right for for analysis, so maybe that's an option. So I, I do think there's an answer. I think it's 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 coming, um, but without continuing on the work that was done for the last eight years of DARPA, I just don't see how we're going to get there in a in a timely fashion. Do you mind if we drill down just a little bit more here and maybe actually get Special Agent Farrell's observations too? I mean, you you do believe in BioWatch. I can see that, but when you get a positive, what actions actually flow from that? And I'd be interested in what does the FBI do with a a a a, a you know a, a positive alert from the BioWatch system? 
because it's not as though, I mean, if, if you had people here and you got a real-time signal of a, a bio exposure, that's one thing. But BioWatch is now time-delayed. It's also in a setting where you don't know who actually was exposed at an earlier time on a street corner or whatever. So I'm just sort of curious what, what then ensues. So from the FBI perspective, uh, we would respond. Uh, so we, I'm uh, in my role, I'm a member of BioWatch, so I work the TTXs with them and, and receive updates uh, with my role being uh, an investigator if it was uh, an intentional release and malicious and a federal crime. And so uh, we would respond locally and we would work with uh, Departments of Health, Marion County, uh, Indiana State, uh, to the Indiana um, National Guard, the 53rd CST. They're here as well. They're a fantastic, fantastic resource. They would most likely respond. So it, it would sort of be all, all hands response um, to any kind of bio event or um, bio watch. And then it would be a determination if is it a public health matter or is it a, a federal investigative matter? So assuming it's a federal investigative matter, um, we, as myself and Gary and Tom, we have the, the ability and the, and the resources to call back to our headquarters and say, okay, this is what we're dealing with. And the beauty of that, uh, it's, it's called a TCE, another, another acronym, but a, a threat uh, evaluation. I can call back and maybe within 20 minutes have FBI, WMD, uh, and also our FBI lab and uh, federal resources on, on the call and say, okay, this is what we're dealing with. This is what, this is what we hit on. This is what we're testing for. Uh, this is what was confirmed by whoever did the testing. This is what we have. And then the determination would, would be made there to, to send national resources out. So, um, and thankfully because of the resources that the FBI and the federal government has that, that response can be within a matter of hours. Uh, some of the challenges, you know, to your point is that if it's delayed, we've likely lost witnesses, we may have lost evidence. Um, but if it's something that we've collected and we can sample and we've tested it and it's, and it's, you know, something that's not good, then we, then we would try to preserve that as, as evidence and, and run with an investigation from there. Uh, but again, we could have, we could be on a call in 20 minutes, we could have national assets within a matter of hours to, to, to help us with that response and whether that's investigatively or, or with uh, tracking down witnesses, uh, doing contract, uh, contact tracing, all of that would be available within a uh, surprising amount of time. Yes. And frankly, there's another tool in the toolbox because as it was indicated, 330,000 people that were here last or th earlier this year, you got their email, you got their phone, you know where they sat. Uh, I was at Wrigley Field earlier this year, and you know I've got my tickets on my my phone. Uh, you know, Big Ten is moving to away from the paper tickets, so you so you can immediately tell who's in that particular section one twelve, row three, seat eleven and twelve. Yes, yes. Hopefully, we got that. Now it's your fingerprints that you didn't have a couple of years ago. That's right. Correct. Well, thank you. Anything further, Rachel? Uh, just one for um, Special Agent Casey Farrell about about the drone um, 
particularly the idea of controlling the drone. I mean, we had a session a while back uh, where we were discussing what you would do if there was a drone or, or other kind of um, delivery system. Um, and the fact that you could not shoot it down, I mean, you, then you defeats the purpose. But would you, this, this group has the opportunity to make recommendations for various kinds of efforts for development that the federal government might pursue. Is this an area where you think that further technology development having to do with drone control or other um, capture mechanisms would be useful that, that we could forward? The, the better technology would always help because it's not, um, we have the mitigation capability, but as I mentioned earlier, it's not 100%. Um, it's a matter of detecting uh, when the operator switches on the system. It's a matter of locating the operator. And it's, it's also a matter of being able to overtake that, uh, that drone in order to, to mitigate it. So without getting into too many uh, specifics about how the, the technology actually works or the capability, um, it's not 100%. So, uh, and I'm certainly not an expert on, on that capability, but I do know that it doesn't work 100%. Um, so what I think would be nice until the technology catches up to the point where it's 100%, um, you know, to, to Sergeant Brown's point earlier and something that we talked about earlier is maybe there, we build in some redundancy. So if we don't get to the point where we no longer have to deploy FBI's national assets out here to do it, which I think would be um, uh, helpful, I guess, in, in terms of just deploying resources and logistics, if we had that local resource, not only does it help with those, with deployment and the resources, the funding, but also there could be some redundancy in there. So maybe we do still bring out FBI CERD, but then we also have a second system that could back up that first system. Uh, and then maybe we're at 100% at that point. Or, um, you know, one of the issues is the size of the area. And so not every time, so even if we uh, are able to grab it, we may not be able to get it to where we want it to go. And so if a second system is deployed, they may then be able to grab it and bring it to where we want. So I would say I, I'm not enough of an expert on the technology itself to what, what we would need to make it 100%. I know that it's, it gets better every time we deploy it. Uh, but I would say to answer your question, it would be a matter of trying to get mitigation capabilities locally. So we didn't have to employ FBI resources every time. And so we had some redundancy built in. Thank you. Because it is what we, it's, it's, a, it's a huge concern and it's, um, yeah, there's only so much that you can do with, with the amount of resources that we have. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, I think any further questions for our panel? Thank you so very much. I love that, uh, as, as you said, Sergeant Brown, we are a test site uh, for the country and I'm very proud of that and very proud of, you know, the department's participation and your participation and all that we're uh, bringing. And so thank you to the FBI uh, for always uh, helping lead the federal response here at Motor Speedway as we support the Speedway. Yes, there is a Speedway Police Department, and they uh, that is the, the most local entity here and uh, with IMPDs uh, and all the 38 agencies that come together to make this place safe. So thank you very much. Uh, let's give them a round of applause, and then you get to move on to lunch, okay? And uh, we're going to to depart, but uh, Patricia's going to tell you all about lunch, and thank you all so very much. Please stay for lunch. And we hope we have terrific panels this afternoon. Uh, we have two panels this afternoon. 
and starting back up at 1.15. So uh, thank you. We look forward to seeing you this afternoon. Okay. I get um, I get to I get to introduce two people who have the coolest jobs in Indiana. Um, Dr. Julie uh, Julia uh, Weiser is assistant professor of clinical emergency medicine at the Indiana at the IU School of Medicine, and she's the first uh, woman to be medical chief for IndyCar and the IMS, and uh, we're delighted to, to have her here. And John Ball, who also has a cool job, um, is the Vice President for Security and Event Services for uh, Pacers, for the Pacers, for Pacers Sports and Entertainment uh, here in Indianapolis. Um, he's been at Pacers for 14 uh, years. And Julia, why don't we, um, start with you. Sure. And I, I didn't give you all my stories about fighting with the NCAA or any of that. But I can't, I can't wait to hear more about uh, that. Can you guys hear me okay? Uh, yes. All right. Well, thank you so, so much for your kind introduction. Uh, my name is Julia Weiser. I'm a board-certified emergency medicine, EMS, and motorsports physician. I would like to thank you for the opportunity to speak on behalf and highlight excellent work of uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar security and medical teams over the last decades. I was asked to share our experiences and my perspective in preparation for the largest sporting event in the world, the Indianapolis 500, and provide three actionable points that can be translated to smaller venues. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway has over 550 acres of infield. Our job is wellness and safety of guests, athletes, and team members, not only on the day of the 500, when we're routinely have more than 300,000 people in attendance, but the entirety month of May. Additionally, given the size of this event, our duty is not only to the attendees of the event, but to the entire city of Indianapolis. The role of medical director on during this event is quite broad. Um, anything from oversight of regular illnesses and injuries from the attendees, uh, overseeing the snake pit and medical response for that, Seeing the drivers involved in actors, right? You might tell them what the snake right. pit is. No, <laughs> snake pit is the uh, EDM concert that happened. Uh, okay, in the infield, and I'm fairly certain uh, guests of that venue are not even aware that there is a race going on. <laughs> so, um, in addition to all that, we're also tending to the drivers involved in motor vehicle accidents traveling over 200 miles an hour. So more than ever, it's important for a medical director to have trust in all of the agencies involved to do their job and to involve you when it's time uh, to be involved. So that brings me to my first actionable point for a medical director, which is preparation and prevention of the undesirable event. To me, preparedness is about building relationships and open communication before the event occurs. You must have trust that your public safety sector will be motivated and will respond to any incident. This trust is not assumed, but verified firsthand through meetings, joint training, where the key members of each team get to know each other in advance. That relationship building also extends to your colleagues and peers in the hospitals to alert you to unusual activities presenting from your venue and your event executive team so you can have effective communication in the event of an incident as a medical director whose advice can be followed and trusted. Firstly, one needs to assess which resources are available for your event and how they're used. I know uh, we've already talked about the special event assessment rating SEER, 
Uh, but it's a resource from Homeland Security where you can voluntarily submit your event for evaluation. They categorize your event by threat, vulnerability, and consequence. And we're qualified as Tier 2, which gives us access to federal interagency support, which is great. Emergency action plan needs to be developed jointly in advance, and it should delineate roles, responsibilities, and pertinent response procedures. Unified command members and physical location of that should be predetermined. All key players should be familiar with the EAP and know their role in its execution. Given the size and extent of our event, biological threat, unfortunately, is one of many. And when we prepare, we prepare for the full spectrum of Sea Bernie, but also other threats such as severe weather, mass shootings, and even race car debris in the grandstands. Although it is important to recognize rising bio threat, flexibility and adaptability of your response plan is key. We have around 40 agencies in field, boots on the ground on the day of the 500, all dedicated to keeping the event safe. I've heard from some of them already. Each agency is capable and dependable, and we prepare through eliminating silos by coming together months in advance. And when I say months in advance, I want to echo what Sergeant Brown said. The day after the 500, we begin planning for the next 500. We facilitate dialogue, get to know each other, we plan as a team. In addition to effective communication, multi-agency training is important for practice of unified command, integration of community resources, joint decision-making, resource and information sharing. It must be followed by after-action discussion reports, and it is important to revise your procedures and policies when it seems fit. All agencies come together for a tabletop practice in early May, where we simulate an incident and practice our response to reemphasize the key response representatives, our roles and responsibilities within the event. Lastly, it's important to coordinate with neighboring jurisdictions ahead of time to ensure interoperability in the event they're called to action. A lot of effort goes into detection and prevention of an incident at IMS. Surgeon Brown, Special Agent Farrell covered a lot of that. But if an event was to occur, that brings us to actionable point number two, which is responding to it. So now if the first actionable part was done correctly, you built your relationships, you planned, you exercised your response, carrying out this point should be the most straightforward as it will directly follow your EAP. As medical director, now you will be an advisory role to the unified command. You will become the key link in communication between response teams and the leadership as a medical translator of sorts um, and become the expert of the local team's knowledge and limitations. You would work with the Unified Command to determine when your immediate resources are adequate and when they're overwhelmed. And when the time comes, you would activate agencies outside of your immediate threat zone with the Unified Command. Uh, we have a stepwise MCI plan that does just that. It activates resources and three different steps from the outside of immediate threat in such a way that it doesn't violate their responsibilities to the public, such as um, 911 service. Additionally, we have Mesh Network that gives us real-time knowledge on bed availability in all hospitals and gives us ability to communicate back with them. Once a threat is identified, there needs to be rapid information sharing with key members of response teams, state health department, uh, Marion County Health Department, local hospitals. This is the time that as a medical director, you will likely be advising your executive team to terminate of the event when it's appropriate. It is important to remember that majority of bio threat um, unfortunately will not be evident immediately and unless disclosed, will likely not be caught as part of immediate response within the venue. Uh, instead, you may be alerted by your emergency department colleagues to patients arriving from your venue with unusual patterns of symptoms. Uh, which brings me to actionable point number three, which is communications and follow-up. 
In addition to all communications within the response teams, hospitals, and neighboring jurisdictions, there needs to be a plan for communication out to general public with announcement of the threat, recommendations on when to shelter in place, quarantine, isolate, or present themselves to the hospitals. Large bulk of communications will be handled by the health department. Um, however, you may be able to assist if you have a robust communications department. Uh, tracing will become particularly important, and I know Dr. Kane touched on that. So it is important to have some sort of plan in place for tracing back to ticket sales. Um, and uh, yeah, in conclusion, it's important to plan for prevention, execution of your AAP, and follow up with most efforts focusing on interagency transparency, clear communications, and well-established relationships. Thank you very much. Um, Mr. Ball. Thank you, distinguished panel. Thank you all for the opportunity to present information today and discuss the issues and challenges surrounding the critically important issue of biological threats to arenas, other public assembly venues. Our events and venues bring in people from all different backgrounds all across the country and around the world uh, every day. Indianapolis Place hosts to hundreds of major sporting entertainment events every year, drawing mass crowds from all over the country and the world. Indianapolis 500, the IMS, Lucas Oil Stadium and the Colts, and of course, Cambridge Fieldhouse, home of the Indiana Pacers and Fever, host hundreds of sporting events, music concerts, family events, uh, and other events that bring in millions of guests every year. Among these include NCAA tournaments, Big Ten football, and Big Ten basketball tournaments. As has been discussed, Indianapolis sets the bar for cooperation among public safety and public health to pre prepare for these events with a focus on preventing attacks and building a capacity to respond to any attack scenario. Indianapolis has a long history of, of innovation and, and building cooperative partnerships. Remember when I was a much younger police lieutenant, um, probably about 2000, uh, the whole city, uh, Ed's, all the whole city of Indianapolis went to the National Fire Academy in Emmitsburg, Maryland, led by our brilliant deputy mayor for public safety, Susan Brooks. And uh, we did uh, uh, training and, and drills on uh, you know, terrible scenarios and how we would respond to those, how we should prepare for those. So it's a long history of, uh, of that in, in Indianapolis. And it occurred to me as I've been listening to people today, for people who have been in this practice uh, for so long, as many people in this room have, all of the crazy scenarios we thought up to do tabletop exercises over the years. You know, you try to think up a new one. Well, let, let's do this crazy scenario. Let's think of this, you know, wild thing, terrible thing that could happen and build plans for it. Most of those have all happened now. And um, it's a sad state. And it just tells us we have to keep, continue to keep one step ahead creatively so that we're not outpaced by those people that want to come and hurt us. So we do have experience responding to biological outbreak. Uh, in March of 2020, Cambridge, then Bankers Life Fieldhouse, was hosting the men's Big Ten basketball tournament. As reports of an outbreak of a new and dangerous virus spreading around the world, local public health and public safety officials, including Dr. Kane and Dr. Box and others that have been in the room today, uh, discussed preparations and a response strategies in case it become to America. I don't think any of us was prepared for the speed with which the shutdown of normal business spread across the country. But as we watched reports of other sports leagues shutting down the ACC tournament and other tournaments, uh, we were in constant communication with Dr. Kane and Dr. Box, the mayor, the governor, uh, seeking guidance and the understanding of the local situation and what their direction was. 
Ultimately, the tournament was canceled before the start of the second day, and and the country then went into a, a lockdown response. Uh, the NBA season was suspended on March 11th, and what followed was two years of work and collaboration to build a model of returning to business of hosting events within appropriate safety guidelines. Under the most difficult circumstances, the NBA resumed the season on July 30th with an end-of-season tournament. This all took place in the bubble at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex at Walt Disney World. As we all navigated the opportunities to reopen and reestablish operations, the major the major uh, team and venue leaders in Indianapolis, uh, the major strength we had was their belief in the science and the support of following the, guide, the guidance and direction of local and state public health officials and executives. Partly a result of the public-private collaboration, Indianapolis was selected to host the entire 2021 Men's Division I basketball tournament. To maintain safe distancing, all venues were held at 25% capacity and strict testing and masking requirements were in place. Lessons learned through the bubble and through that hosting of that tournament uh, were learned at every step of the way, and slowly public assembly venues were able to reopen to hosting games, concerts, and events. Now that we're back at full capacity, we're operating with some very important changes in operation learned from those lessons. First and most simply, uh, different from the age-old, suck it up if you're sick and go on to work, um, now the, now the direction is if you're sick, stay home. Don't get everybody else sick. And that, that is a major change in how people have always operated. Uh, enhanced cleaning and sanitizing practices are our standard and improving hygiene for all. Uh, the relationship with the health department is robust, and Dr. Kane and Dr. Box are c often consulted when our plans are being developed. Uh, from a security and public safety perspective, plans for bio-incidents is always, uh, always front of our mind. We have to plan and prepare for a wide spectrum of th threats from simply fa rowdy fans disrupting games to terrorist attacks and a variety of other attack vectors. Bio-threats are a part of that threat analysis, whether naturally occurring outbreak like COVID-19 or, more horribly, uh, an intentional attack using a biological agent. We have plans in place to prevent and respond to those events, and uh, we look forward to your questions. Explore that further. Thank you very much, um, Deputy Mayor Brooks. <laughs> well, thank you uh, so much. Actually, I think it was 99, John. Okay. Uh, but uh, close enough. Plus enough. Um, and I, and I, I guess I would like to talk a little bit more about uh, the importance of exercises, as you've just talked about, and Dr. Weiser, I think you've mentioned it also. Um, I don't think people appreciate how much uh, time and energy go into creating the exercises and actually planning for the exercises. And um, that's something that I, I think... Uh, resources need to be provided to ensure that you can exercise. Um, if, if you were to, how, how often do you think, and how often, for instance, does the Motor Speedway exercise? How often are you now participating with other groups in exercises? Or is, is, is everyone just so tired from the pandemic, quite honestly, that people aren't exercising anymore? And doing those tabletop exercises where truly you are taking on roles and thinking of the unthinkable, but then they can happen. Dr. Visor, 
So I think after the pandemic, we're more invigorated to exercise rather than tired. Okay, good. Several exercises happen on a yearly basis. A lot of them are on the smaller scale with each individual team's kind of rehearsing within. So we exercise our on-track response. We exercise our off-track response, our EMS trains with our fire department. But then when we bring all the 40 agencies together in the same room, that happens at least once a year. And if you have an event of this magnitude, that's something that I uh, work on, it's important to come together at least once a year because personnel changes. And it's not about knowing how to respond to this event. Uh, A couple of years ago, we responded to a chlorine gas bomb going off right outside of the infield. A couple couple years ago, we responded to a suicide bomber mass shooting event. Not important what the actual exercise is. It's important who's in the room and that you get to know each other. You know how to call for help. You know whose responsibilities lies where. And the only way to do that is to physically put yourself in a situation where you go, wait, who does that? I do that. Great. Carry on. Okay. John, with, you know, you've got a huge indoor arena and so forth. How much exercising is going on? Tabletop exercises and others are happening now. Uh, I would say never enough. And that's not to say we don't do it. Like the doctor said, uh, we do, uh, but everybody and every, every realm is, you know, operationally very busy. We host 150 events a year. It's almost every other day. And so the effort and time takes to put the exercises together is enormous on our staff. So fortunately, we, because of the partnerships we have, we uh, last, we're required by the NBA to have two exercises a year, tabletop exercises. So we, we do those. And last year we contacted uh, the protective security advisor for Indiana, uh, Steve Bernarziak, and he brought in a, an exercise coordinator from Michigan, helped put our exercises together. So that was very helpful. Uh, and like, to the doctor's point, we also do many smaller scale exercises and, and discussions every year. Uh, one we're going to do next week, um, we'll talk about the new phenomenon of protesters disrupting events. You saw the U.S. Open tennis tournament. The guy glued his feet in the stands uh, at the Republican debate in Milwaukee. A similar a protester glued his feet to the sidewalk in front of the parking garage entrance. And so it caused us to start thinking, well, whose responsibility is it to unglue his feet? Gotcha. And I don't want to stand around and point at each other when that time comes. So that's a small, I mean, it's not small when it's you're standing there trying to unstick his feet, but I mean, it's a small compared to a bio attack, but it's the same concepts and precepts of understanding responsibilities, understanding cooperation, communication, what, what tools do we need? So uh, we are planning a January uh, exercise with the 53rd Civil Support Team. Uh, it's an Indiana National Guard unit that, that Sergeant Brown mentioned. Um, they have the capability to, to do downrange testing of bio and chemical agents. The, and I think every state has civil support teams. And they're at every pace versus game, as well as uh, support from uh, the FBI's weapons of mass destruction team, so that we have that downrange capability and intelligence. So we're going to they're they're going to coordinate a a large exercise at our facility in January in advance of the 2024 NBA All-Star game. So we do it as often as we can and as at whatever scale we can get it done because it it just pays tremendous dividends. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Dr. Hamburg. 
Well, thank you. Um, I have to say, I never knew during my medical training that motorsport <laughs> physician was a career path that I could pursue. I know my whole life might have been different. It's lovely. <laughs> we have a fellowship. I'm happy to talk about that. <laughs> well, first, maybe I should come to an Indy 500 and just see what it's like. Um, but Thank you both for your perspectives on on the issues before our our commission, but also for the broader uh, work that you do. You know, during COVID, um, this is probably more a, a question for you, um, but applies both. It was interesting to me to see how much sports teams and sports activities actually drove public understanding of the COVID threat, and also, in some cases, action. I mean, I think one of the first really major reflections of the seriousness of COVID happened when, um, I believe, I don't know which basketball team it was, but there was a decision made not to, to play. And, um, uh, you know, and that was, that was really, you know, kind of remarkable, but I think in a way, um, it speaks to the power of 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 sports um and how important sports are in our society both so i'm i'm interested in in how in your role you helped to make sure that once the initial realization of of covid came upon us you you worked in order to enable games to go forward. And similarly, you did um, make it possible for for um, other kinds of sporting activities to go forward. Um, but I'm also interested in if you have been engaged working with other similar kinds of enterprises, um, other sports facilities and, and other sporting um, events in sharing the knowledge and experience that, that you've had because, you know, this state is so rich in these kinds of major sports events and takes sports so seriously, as we heard from the governor on down. Um, I think you really have a wealth of, of insights and understanding that, that probably would be valuable. But I don't know if there's a network that you are working in and, and sharing. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's some critical lessons learned. Yes, um, of course. Uh yeah, in, in our specific instance, you know, the, the NBA uh, had coordinated among all of the teams. You know, they have their own medical direction and they work with the CDC and, and uh, you know, folks in Washington to understand, you know, broader national direction and policies uh, that should be developed. And they work with all of the individual teams to uh, implement safe ways to return to business. At the same time, yes, there are a number of professional organizations. Our operations people belong to national organizations about how to maintain arenas and public assembly areas, and they worked on sanitizing and cleaning standards for buildings so that they could meet standards to you know clean and having MERV 13 filters and black light uh, in your air handlers to kill bioagents. And so that worked on that end. On the security end, we... You know, we all worked on protocols for distancing and 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 more touchless ways to get people into arenas, and so you're not face to face when you you, know, you still have to screen people for weapons. But how do you do that in a in a lower contact way? And um, 
food service, you know, nationally, their organizations and, you know, Levy Restaurants is our partner in their national organization. And they worked on ways to have lower contact with guests. And, you know, we went cashless as a result of that. So there was at, at every level and sort of every discipline within the organization and the industry, there were silos of of coordination and, and you know, sharing of best practices. And because we, we've not done a lot of this before. So, uh, you know, someone's just bouncing ideas off of each other, but it happened at, at, at every level. I think to echo that, um, it, it, it's a small network uh, of people within the city of Indianapolis of what we do. You're right. We have so many different representations on su such large venues, but being in the private sector, it gave us, you know, being in the private sector, regardless, we've worked with the state department, uh, with the health department, following their lead, but also for us. Uh, Indiana University Health is a major partner of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Having access to experts in the world of infectious disease and prevention gave us a definitely a leg up. But then we took leads from each other, right? We, we all followed very similar things in terms of screening, in terms of mass testing when it was appropriate, finding ways to uh, create opportunities for the show to go on and keep our fans safe even though they're at home and happy, but creating opportunities to get back to the green flag, even though we had to modify and hold Indianapolis 500 in the month of August with not a single uh, person in the grandstand, which was very difficult. Um, I'm sure you all heard there were people building nests in the trees outside of the infield trying to watch because for many people, this is decades-long traditions family traditions. They would they have attended 40 years in a row, 45 years in a row of every Indianapolis 500. But making that choice, knowing when it was still important to give them that joy of showing that the race can still go on safely, keeping our athletes safe, keeping our members of the paddock safe, but also not inviting the guests here. Thank you. Uh, Representative uh, Greenwood. Thank you. So we saw in, in COVID, and particularly in the earlier days, but throughout worst of the of the pandemic, not only here but around the world, tension between the health and safety imperatives and the commercial realities. So whether it's closing down some guy's gym and, you know, he loses his you know, or or, or large events and large, you know, <laughs> nationwide uh, decisions. I, I would imagine that um to, to say we're not going to have the the eight five hundred run is something around a hundred million dollar decision. Um, and, uh, and so what, what I'm in, in both, for both of you, the, my question is, um, how, what is the decision-making process? Um, you know, who, who gets the last word? Is it the, is it the, the medical officials, uh, who get the last word or is it the, uh, the, the entities that control and own the, uh, the sporting, um, venues? So I think in the matters of like this magnitude, like when you had COVID and Indy 500 becoming a possible super spreader event and affecting wellness of so many, so many lives. 330,000 people here, second largest city in Indiana on the day of the 500. The leadership very closely followed recommendation of my predecessor, Dr. Billows, who was the medical director of Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar at the time. And I think that again speaks to that relationship. When his recommendation came that we cannot go on, it was accepted immediately and 
So this is when it kind of goes to that relationship building, knowing your leadership and knowing that they trust you to not pull a trigger like that until it's absolutely necessary. And they trust you to do the right thing, not only for the event, but for the members of the public. Similarly, and that certainly at my level, not involved in uh, every conversation, how those decisions have come about, but I've enjoyed you know, similarly uh, exceptional support in my 15 years at the Pacers from uh, executives when I've made a recommendation or we need to do something or understanding a security risk or threat, um, always having the resources to get it done. Uh, you know, I was in some of the conversations when the, you know, when the Big Ten tournament was you know, finishing the first day and Dr. Kane is on the phone during the games with, with, with my leadership and, uh, talking about potential for, you know, like that day, even taking action and then, you know, meetings with the big 10 that afternoon. And, you know, it, it's, it's just for looking at, you know, for it's, it's not, you know, we think about it all the time, but it's not in their perspective always to look through the lens of, Hey, this is a major public health event. Can we get might cancel their their lens is we have a tournament to finish, right? What are you going to do to make it safe? So it was a tremendous paradigm shift for everybody. And financially, you know, in our, in our case, again, you know, the NBA and their board of governors that, that own the teams uh, took great leadership, understanding the financial um, hit that they were all going to take losing a season um, and losing a kind of a season and a half of revenue. Uh, they, are very smart people and, you know, and, and, you know, they got where they are for a reason and put measures in place to protect themselves for the long term, uh, with loans and various things. But, um, it, I think it speaks again to, uh, um, uh, Dr. Hamburg's comment about, um, you know, sports sort of led the way for the country. Um, they followed the science and they followed the direction and guidance and when they understood what had to happen to so make sure we're not mass spreader events, they they took the right stand to do the right thing. And uh, we're trying to build that business back now and dig back out. Quick follow-up question. Um, I ran an organization that had an annual convention where we'd have maybe 20-some thousand people from all over the world come. And we could ensure against something like uh, a closure for, for like this, um, but we not the second year. So in other words, um, and so I just wanted, is it, are, are these events insurable for having, for the necessity to close down for medical reasons these days? It's a great question that I don't think I can answer. I would have talked to our risk manager. I certainly that, that was a conversation all the way through. And that was a, that was a, you know, a, a factor in the equation of how we handled year one. Um, I, I don't know. I, certainly, that that is probably an ongoing conversation in the insurance industry. Yeah, yeah. It seemed to make it a lot easier to make a tough decision if you was insured. Yeah, I, I'm with John. I don't have any. Well, well, thank you. Whether the answer is yes or no, there's some litigator that's going to go out there and. No. <laughs> um, uh, Representative Upton. I just really appreciate what you all do, the job that you perform successfully. I I think in my first visit to Indianapolis when I came with my wife to the Pan Am Games in 1987, and, uh, you know, you just wore a pass around your neck and you could walk in anywhere. And it was, uh, you know, you, you know, 
unlike today where you got to worry about a truck, you know, coming through an, an entrance and mowing down people on a sidewalk or, uh, you know, someone bringing a gun into a, an event or obviously a bioterrorism. Um, and, and as I, you know, I've been to hundreds of sporting events um, for sure and concerts. I just, with with the NBA, and I don't know, John, if you have the answer to this, but the NBA season starts pretty soon, a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. Um, so is the NBA taking a, a protocol? What what are they decided for their, their players? They all have to be vaccinated with a new vaccine uh, starting off. What? And I, I know you're more on the security aspect versus the coach and the, the health director of the, of the brain, right. but what, what, you know, what, what are the paces? I'm sure it's going to be the same from all. I mean, we saw with, with baseball, you know, you had to have the vaccine. Those that didn't, um, you know, couldn't play in right. New York. If that was the right situation then, uh, I know in the last couple of weeks, I think there was one team that had a couple of players. I think Cincinnati Reds had a, Couple players on uh, COVID, they 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 couldn't play uh, for those couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's the situation with the NBA now? Are you, do you know? Um, I can't answer your specific question about what the re- vaccination requirements are for players um, going forward. Um, certainly, the health of all the players remains uh, of paramount importance, and uh, um, I just can't answer that. Yeah, part of your question. Yeah. No, it's not relative to yeah. Well, I just, I just, um, thanks for what you do. Thank you. I really, we really appreciate that. Thanks. Ms. Levinson, don't have any questions. Um, uh, Doctor uh, Pfizer, would you? What do you do? Set up a field hospital? I mean, how do you You're set up three hundred and three hundred thousand people, or do you take over a parking lot with a with a Emergency vehicles. So we have a brick and mortar hospital on the premises. Okay. And it's actually one of the longest standing structures here. Mm-hmm. If you'd like, I'd give you how many more. beds? 18 beds. And every single one of them is full, including the overflow tent right outside, including a ground zero uh, tent set up for the snake pit alone, dedicated. And, you know, there's always something going on there. Uh, Entertainment du jour this year was throwing glass bottles up in the air and see where they land. So uh, our EMS division, which is our EMS physicians for our school of medicines, were suturing heads and releasing people back. Do you have, do you have most of your problems with the snake pit or with the audience? You know, that I discovered those. And that, great question. Uh, <laughs> there's actually no problems. It's all expected uh, illnesses, injuries that you would see on a on a day like this. And, and have you seen um, the medical emergencies change over time? Yes. I mean, what's your and number one, number two? Uh, well, weather is always going to be either our friend or our enemy. And whatever happens that year, we're going to be prepared for that. Whether we're going to be seeing overheating emergencies, this is a very common one. Um, we see overindulgences. Um, People getting really, really excited. That's an understatement. Uh, <laughs> um, musculoskeletal injuries, some sort of, you know, rolled ankles, stuff like that, cuts, bug bites. So but have you dealt with airborne illnesses? Not on the scale of what we're talking about here. Okay. I mean, 330,000 people together, at least most of it is outside. Most of our, I mean, all of our grandstands are outside. There's always going to be some sort of airborne illness present. That's just the reality of it. But um, 
not to the scale that we're speaking up to. But you can't require that people have vaccinations so that you have to, you're anticipating in both of you that something's going to happen. We're going to get some kind of patients. That's correct. And what kind of setup uh, do you have, both your security as well as your health setup? Uh, we have, uh, we contract for our event security services with uh, CSC, Contemporary Services Corporation. And for a Pacers game, we'll have about 150 guards present in various assignments, uh, outside presence, many, most screening at the doors, weapons screening at the doors, and then around the court and other areas. And we supplement that with police officers that we hire and uh, our usher team as well. And medically, we have uh, Indianapolis Emergency Medical Services provide ambulance paramedic support, and we hire internal uh, uh, EM EMTs, most of them are off-duty firefighters that we hire to staff uh, various first aid rooms. And we see a uh, smaller scale, but and thankfully we're air conditioned, uh, but many of the same things that Dr. Visor sees. Uh, yes, because you have indoor ventilation. Right. Right. Right, which is helpful. Yeah. And so for airborne, you know, for airborne illnesses, um, you know, as COVID was coming about, we, you know, we had co deep conversations with, with our EMS provider, with the with, uh, ambulance service. And, you know, they would follow county protocols, which I think was to mask the patient if they had someone presenting with um, uh, respiratory signs and uh, you know, we could do some sort of conversation with them. They would do it try to find out if they had been in contact with uh, anyone with COVID or, you know, if they presented a fever or anything else. And if they were um, symptomatic, then, you know, we would ask them to leave. We'd have to ask them to leave the venue and then report that to the county mm -hmm. when we were right in the heart of coming back out of it. Yeah. Um, you know, our concern is, uh, is also about, uh, you know, someone comes in and does something to the water or, or, something like that. Um, what do you do about ghost guns? Can, you're, can you screen worry about, everything? I mean, I worry about them, right, yeah. for sure. Um, weapons, you know, metal detectors. We've gone mostly to medical detector, med metal detectors, right? When I first started, we didn't have that, right? Um, and we've gone to that. We used to use hand water for rock shows. We, you know, we do pat people down. And then you find their bottles of liquor and, and other stuff. But metal detectors don't find that they don't find um ghost guns right which is i think is a is a big vulnerability that we all are aware of and uh so yeah we can't find that there's no way to screen and you know, a sort of a, a theme the last few speakers has been there's we can screen for metal right we can find guns Doc, um sergeant brown can have his his guys walk around with backpacks and deter detect radiological sources uh chemical sources uh there's no way to real-time screen if someone is actively contagious or carrying a biological agent that technology is isn't not available and hopefully under development mm -hmm. um dr visor what do you worry about the most oh my god what keeps you up at night uh the entire month may i barely sleep but it's um it's just the responsibility of making sure that the event goes smoothly and I worry about the drivers. I really do. Um, I know that they can get hurt and there's only so much you can do because they love what they do. But I worry about them getting hurt. Um, I worry about guests of the venue. I worry about um, 
I worry about all of the things that we talked about here, all the things that are outlined in our 300-page emergency action plan, every scenario that's outlined. But I, I, it's, it's actually incredibly comforting knowing how grateful our agencies are, how great our agencies are at what they do, and knowing that they're absolutely dedicated and making sure this event goes smoothly. Mr. Ball, what do you worry about at night? <laughs> Other than ghost guns. Yeah, now I'll worry more about ghost guns. Um, I'm sort of the same as Dr. Visor, everything. I sleep, still sleep well at night because of the great partnerships we have here. Uh, I feel like our team does a great job uh, understanding uh, the threat and the risks and the vulnerabilities we face. Again, sometimes I say I'm the chief worrying officer because we have to worry about everything from uh, somebody tripping and falling on the stairs to a terrorist attack uh, and trying to, to blow us up and everything in between. So you know, we have to have at great expense, we're a private company, at great expense to ourselves, we have to have, you know, it takes a lot of resources to be prepared to prevent those things and, and have something in place to respond. So it's sort of everything. I worry about the, you know, the guests, we want them to come and have a great experience, you know, being hurt or attacked is not a great guest experience, honestly. And, um, the guests, the participants, uh, um, someone not paying attention, right. Not, not doing what they're supposed to do and, and leaving a vulnerability. So, uh, we're well aware of sort of the breadth of, uh, the, the risks and threats we face, uh, you know, agent, you know, Lakes, uh, Farrell, you know, talked about the threat assessment report. He just sent us hours for the uh, upcoming NBA season. So fresh in my mind, all the things that we have to worry about. Thank you very much. Both so remarkable. I, we, um, I come from the Philadelphia area, and Philadelphia sports fans are known for their passion and other things. Mm -hmm. And um, the Philadelphia Eagles didn't have a, a hospital, but we had a court with a judge and a, a holding cell. <laughs> I know your know your risk. Indiana and a detox. Don't they have a detox center there too? Uh -huh. Indiana hospitality doesn't require that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's and uh, as it's wait, I I finish early. I think I uh, so Donna has moved us up on time. It says fifteen minute break. Is that correct? I'm looking at the T thirty. I know, but we're early. We can. I see Brett. I see Dr. Marsh here. I know that Dr. Talenko is here. Oh, is oh, and he is right. Uh, would you like to push on, or do you want to break? Uh, it's your call. Is Dr. Ebner here? Yes, they are here. here. Everybody's here. No, let's start Dr. here. Your call. Okay. Because the sooner we finish, the sooner my fellow panelists get a tour of the Mother Speedway, of which we didn't get to do earlier. Sun's out. So I would, and the sun is out right now. So if we could switch out for the final panel, that would be terrific. Thank you. Okay, we're on our last panel, folks. And uh, I, before John Ball leaves, I want to just confirm the story. Um, and for my colleagues, my and this is a good transition to animal and plant issues. Um, my first chief of staff when I went to Congress is a woman named Mel Raines. Mel had worked in Washington, D.C., uh, in various administrations and so forth, but she was my first chief of, chief of staff. And then the Pacers lured her away, and she now works for the Indiana Pacers, and in fact, she is the president of Pacers Sports and Entertainment now. After being at the Pacers for a while, I asked her 
how her job was going. And she was responsible for the building, as I understand her. She was head of the facility, which was something other than Gamebridge at the time. But um, And I said, how's it going? She said, well, we got news right before the circus was beginning <laughs> that there had been a disease outbreak up in Chicago where the animals had been. And do you remember this, Dr. Marsh? And so she and a team, you may have been called as part of the team, got this news right before the circus is beginning. And they were very concerned about an outbreak. I don't recall what disease it was, but she had to wait and get information about, about that disease outbreak from the animals that tr were transported by train down from Chicago to Indianapolis, go out and find out from veterinary sci from scientists as to whether or not this animal was sick and was probably contagious or not. And they ended up having to shut down the circus for that. Is that correct, John? Okay, so the circus went on. I'm sorry, but you had to stop the train from coming so that the, the contagious animal would not come into the building with whatever disease it had. So these are what arenas, it's not just concerts and, you know, incredibly healthy athletes, but an animal that they were concerned uh, was going to uh, spread disease. So with that, we are going to our final. It was hard to get that mask on the oath. <laughs> so with that, we're going to our uh, last panel. And thank you so much for being here today. Um, just uh, by way of introduction, Dr. Brett Marsh um, Marsh has been our Indiana's, it doesn't say how long you've served as our state veterinarian, but it's been as long as I can remember. How long, Dr. Marsh? 94. So, 1994. So he has served as our Indiana state veterinarian, um, responsible for for all statewide animal health programs, as well as providing inspection services for meat, poultry, and dairy product industries, which are huge. He has served as special detail to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Homeland Security staff, and I believe we met when I became a U.S. attorney in 2001, and we formed the state's first anti-terrorism task force and uh, included Dr. Marsh in that, of course. And so he's past president of Indiana Veterinary Medical Association and the United States Animal Health Association. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Dr. Paul Ebner, thank you uh, for, for, uh, for being here. Uh, Fred was so excited when he saw that you uh, graduated from Kalamazoo uh, College. And, uh, but then uh, so interestingly um, became a Peace Corps uh, volunteer in Paraguay. And many of us know quite a bit about Peace Corps. But then you joined Purdue's Animal Sciences faculty in 2006. And uh, Purdue is the university here where all that were, that is the university for our state that has the animal sciences. And, uh, but you have done so much internationally, Romania, uh, being involved with Heifer International. You're now involved with USAID on Egypt um, and are very uh, incredibly focused on extension type workshop, even in Afghanistan, which some of us um, had the opportunity to travel to um, while we were in Congress. Um, and, I, and I love that you set up, uh, when I read this, uh, the Department of Food Technology at Herat University, which I would wonder if that is still uh, up and running. Um, but in any event, um, thank you so much for being here as well. Uh, Dr. Darcy Talenko, um, also from Purdue, 
um, is an associate professor and extension field crop pathologist uh, with the Department of Botany and Plant Pathology at Purdue University. And uh, she is focused on uh, with her extension team and with her expertise and those that she works with going out, understanding new diseases out in our corn and soybean fields and other fields and the potential impact on our agricultural community, which is huge, as you've already heard from the governor. Um, you uh, originally got your bachelor's from Cornell and uh, Southern Illinois and crop sciences and plant pathology in North Carolina State. So welcome to all of you. Uh, we look forward to hearing your remarks um, that our team has talked with you about, and then we'll have some questions for you. And again, this is a shift. This is a shift uh, still focused on uh, biology, but protecting the best things since sliced bread. Um, and really, agriculture um, in all of its forms so critically important, not only to the state of Indiana, but to the United States and to the world, uh, being large exporters of our products. And uh, we're very proud to help feed the world and feed this country. And, um, and so with that, Dr. Marsh. Well, thank you very much. And Representative Brooks, Representative Shalala, as co-chairs of this commission meeting and other commission members, it's a great honor to be before you today. I think we need to give a little agricultural uh, perspective to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Just a short distance outside those windows will be the winner of the next Indianapolis 500. And for those of you who watched the winner and on that circle, there's a hand that comes up through the crowd that's carrying a bottle of cold milk. And on the other end of that bottle is an Indiana dairy farmer. There's actually two Indiana dairy farmers on that podium. Uh, one is the apprentice for next year's race as they get uh, practice. Each race driver gets the choice of whether they want whole, 2%, or skim. Cold throughout the course of the race. So we wanted to give you an agricultural stand to the Indiana plus 500. But we are proud of our agricultural products here in the state. The governor announced early today our rankings in animal agriculture, number one in commercial ducks. We're also number one in veal, 25% of the veal in the United States comes from northern Indiana. We're number two in eggs. That's billions of eggs. We're also what's uh, referred to as number two in egg-type hatch. Those are the chicks that are hatched that lay the eggs. And there we're number two in the nation for that here, number three in pounds of turkey, number five in swine. Uh, we also uh, have a ranking, if they still kept the records, when they last keep, uh, kept these records, of course, it's uh, become so consolidated that if you give a national ranking uh, for a state, you'll know which company it is, so they stopped doing that. But at the time, we were number two in ice cream production. And with the advancements and changes here in Indiana, and since those records were kept, I suspect we're probably pretty close to number one. We have been number one in an ice cream I don't eat much of. It's low-fat ice cream. <laughs> So we've, we're real proud of, of the products that are produced here. In addition to our meat inspection program, we have 140 plants around the state that we provide inspection services to. It's not possible to talk about preparedness moving forward without talking about how we prepared in the past. And in 2016, Indiana was hit with highly pathogenic avian influenza. And we had a major event in our state at that time. The nation faced its greatest threat of avian influenza in 2015 in the upper Midwest. Indiana was spared in that year, but we picked it up the following year. And a number of cases involved, and I reported on this at your commission meeting at Kansas State University a few years ago. But as luck would have it, uh, we became the first to have a commercial diagnosis in turkeys in February of 2022. 
and last year became the largest national event, animal health emergency event in the nation's history. As has already been reported, we've had 47 states that have been affected by this virus. Commercial operations are numbering nearly 300 of those sites, but uh, also interestingly, 500 of those sites that were diagnosed in the last year are on small flocks and backyard flocks all across the country. So we had 47 states that were impacted by that. But I think if we are, we're giving recommendations to other states or even other countries, one of the things is plan during peacetime and figure out how, and this has been mentioned at this podium uh, several times today, is trying to figure out what the, those challenges are and to address them before they become an event. And again, we look to, to our experience in 2015 and 2016 to, to harden our, our preparedness initiatives here in our state. As has been mentioned with the growth and development of animal agriculture in this state, we have to be prepared. It's a great economic opportunity. On the other hand, it can present a great threat. And so we have to be much better prepared than we have been in the past. Part of that is just outreach and education. That's been mentioned from the public health community at this podium today. But what is the threat? Is today the threat high path avian influenza? Is it African swine fever that's been diagnosed in the island of Hispanola in the Caribbean for the first time in the Western Hemisphere in 40 years? So it's in the Dominican Republic and Haiti. So we're dealing with those issues. Is it foot and mouth disease? If we were looking at a global map, four-fifths of the land mass of the earth has foot and mouth disease. And so fortunately, the United States has been spared a number of these diseases, and several have been eradicated over time. Our last experience with foot and mouth, for example, is almost 100 years ago. And so when I hear about 100 years ago for COVID, or the COVID-like incidents, influenza-like illness, it reminds me of foot and mouth disease because we can't become complacent. It's important for us to always be prepared. But understanding what the threat is, as you mentioned, I worked on a special detail in Washington, and I was asked during a, a briefing by the U.S. Forest Service as they prepare for forest fires each year to determine and their goal to protect life and property where forest fires may be during the next season. And they've sophisticated systems to determine that. So they turned to me at the end of the brief, and they said, well, Dr. Marsh, what do you think? And I said, well, as a veterinarian, I'll predict that we'll have classical swine fever where the hogs are. <laughs> but we don't know where they are. So I came back to Indiana, and we started the first premises registration program in Indiana, not to determine how many anyone had, because we knew only one animal could be an infected animal. Just do you have a pig or a cow? or a bird on these sites. And so now, since that time, we've registered over 60,000 sites in this state that have livestock on them. So when we get an event, we're not trying to determine who has them, but rather who all may be impacted as a result of that experience. So I really applaud the industry, some of the end of the crowd here today, for stepping up and registering premises because it's so critically important because we didn't have those tools in the past we utilize a database that's called the USA Herds database that keeps track of all this premises information, and it's absolutely critical to our success. In addition to identifying premises, I think the governor mentioned this morning identifying animals themselves as they move throughout production systems. We've handed out millions of electronic tags. They're called 840 tags. 840 stands for the United States. And so if you get an animal that has a 124 prefix on it, it's from Canada, for example. And so we can track animals, and not only electronically by animal, but veterinarians can use that information and place it on electronic certificates of veterinary inspection, which all used to be paper. And now over 90% of the animals that move into or out of Indiana are on electronic documentation. So we don't have to handle the paper that we used to. 
We're also doing site-specific planning. Uh, and I know we're on a major site here, and there's a lot of planning that takes place here. We're doing the same thing with livestock and poultry producers in the state. Is this your premise on a satellite image? Yes, it's my premise. What's your plan for that site if highly pathogenic avian influenza hits it? What's your depopulation and disposal plan? How would you go about that task? And so in the past, they used to call upon government to come out and do the depop and depopulation, and there is a good bit of that. But on the other hand, with the continuing advancements in animal agriculture and the size of sites, it's become important for the owners themselves, just as we heard with the Pacers or IMS to do planning themselves. Similarly, we're seeing this in animal agriculture. So there's a lot of planning on that as well. But early, early detection is what's absolutely essential. We have to have it. And one of my great fears is that we don't diagnose it early enough and becomes prevalent throughout the country before it gets diagnosed. We also have veterinarians on our team for a rapid response that are trained for be, to be foreign animal disease diagnosticians. They re receive additional training. So if we get one of those calls of something that's out of the ordinary, generally on Friday afternoons about 4 o'clock, and we'll dispatch someone to the site to take a look at those animals, collect the appropriate tissues, and get them off to our laboratories. We have colleagues in the crowd here today that run our Indiana Animal Disease Diagnostic Laboratory at Purdue University as part of a network of laboratories, the National Animal, Disease, Animal, National Animal Health Laboratory Network that actually was started post 9-11, and now they started with 12 laboratories, and now it's up to 60 across the country. We also utilize Plum Island, New York, and now all those functions are being used to the move to the MBAP facility the National Bio and Agri-Defense Agri Facility that's being built and now completed on Kansas State University's campus. So there's a lot of activity that takes place. There's mobilization of personnel to site when they become infected. And one of our great concerns is that we have veterinary deserts in our state where we simply don't have veterinary coverage. And so with the help of the governor and the legislature, we've established the Indiana Center for Animal Policy. And it places the Indiana Board of Animal Health as well as the Board of Veterinary Medicine, which is a licensing board for veterinarians together under one center so that we can work on these issues and try and solve some of the challenges of our future. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ebner. Uh, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here, and I thank you for the invitation. Uh, my name is Paul Ebner. I'm a professor of animal sciences at Purdue University. And my experience at university, at Purdue University, I've been very fortunate to be involved in a lot of different um, international development programs. And today I'd like to talk a little bit about biosecurity and things that I've seen. I'll define biosecurity very broadly. This is biosecurity of livestock and poultry farms. It's all those activities that we do to prevent a pathogen from coming on the farm. If it comes on the farm, the activities that we do to make sure it doesn't transmit through the farm, and then finally those activities that prevent that pathogen from leaving the farm and infecting other locations. So um, in my work in different countries, and, and this is mostly lower middle income countries, I've seen intensification increase, and you'll often see very high capacity livestock facilities in the most unlikely of places. I have not seen concurrent advances in biosecurity. This is for those farms themselves, but also for the existing farm systems that were already there, whether they're in formal markets, smallholders, as Dr. Marsh talked about. Mm -hmm. So the result is that many of our neighbors, and these are not um, uh, livestock-dense countries, are not uh, prepared for, to prevent those pathogens from coming into their farms. 
Uh, they have little capacity to contain them if they do show up, and they have little ability to prevent them from transmitting or transmitting well beyond those farms. So, in some cases, at some point, those pathogens, those diseases, become endemic. So, for the United States uh, livestock and poultry production, that means an increasing number of sources with an increasing number of threats and an increased likelihood that our own biosecurity will eventually be breached. So there are numerous um, reasons for the slower adoption of uh, uh, biosecurity. I'll touch on one, um, and that's biosecurity is contact specific. Uh, what we actually do to prevent those pathogens from coming on the farm is, is depends on context. A lot of what we know about biosecurity is developed for uh, large systems um, in the United States or Europe. They don't account for what are very often very complex food and animal production systems. There's informal markets, formal markets, regulated slaughter, non-regulated slaughter. There's a whole host of other factors to consider. Identifying what works in context requires uh, very well-designed and robust applied research to identify what works. Um, there's reasons why this doesn't happen in countries. I'll touch on one that I think is uh, critical and it relates to your last year report on universities and the triple helix of public sector, private sector, and universities having these robust relationships to solve these problems as they come up. Most of the countries I work in either have a very weak triple helix or it's absent. This says, ramifications, but one of the big ramifications is, is the lower or a very reduced ability to produce actionable research to find out what works in these situations. So in the commission's report, um, you also talk about extension. I think this is another role that extension could uh, fulfill. So we think of extension uh, professionals as educators. In fact, in Indiana, the county extension agents are called county extension educators. Um, these educators are also very skilled in designing and implementing very applied research programs that produce immediately translatable results. These same individuals are also very skilled in producing the programs that facilitate the adoption of these results or these technologies. So there is a role for extension um, to work with our, in, our international partners um, to create not only or identify not only those practices that work, also the practices that people will actually do. There's huge implementation gaps in biosecurity um, and we really have to focus on behavior and what, what is adoptable in these different situations. So, as noted in your previous report, there's limited um, funding mechanisms for biosecurity research as when it comes to livestock and poultry production. There are fewer resources for research that would take place outside of the country. Um, this would require a new investment. And its investment, I think, is critical not only to our own biosecurity, but it also underpins uh, several of our other international goals. Um, whether it's uh, improving nutritional outcomes, especially in protein-deficient countries, or increasing um, economic opportunities for marginalized communities, 
Um, in many cases, women are in charge of the livestock in different countries. Um, increasing trade capacity or sustainability. And finally, uh, decreasing the reliance on antibiotics in many of these countries, uh, which are used to, in many cases, uh, mask biosecurity inefficiencies. And honestly, they're very effective in many cases and accessible and um, affordable. However, they come with very serious uh, global public health threats. So with that, I'll finish. And again, I thank you for inviting me and I look forward to answering any questions that you have. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dr. Tolenko. Oh, I thank you again for inviting me. It's a lone, I guess, plant person <laughs> on the thing. So I think I go switch gears a little bit just because plants are a little bit um, different. So I'm in the extension plant pathologist at Purdue. Um, my responsibility is research and extension program to promote sustainable and economically sound disease management practices in our field crops. Um, my program emphasizes corn, soybean, and wheat, some of the major crops here in Indiana. But I also have counterparts that work uh, in Purdue on ornamentals, fruit crops, vegetables, turf, and industry. So one of the first questions I was given is, what plants do you think at most risk? And in, in reality, it's all plants are at risk from biological threats. All plants have a series of organisms that can impact their production. Um, but a little background on plant diseases, it gets a little more complicated, um, just like animals and humans, where they can get sick. But it's important to know that we not only have to have the plant present, the pathogen present, but also the environment plays a big role in what happens in season. So we have very a lot of endemic pathogens, but each season is going to be different depending on those environmental conditions that the crops are exposed to. Um, and so it's important that's part of our work is trying to predict the risk in season to make informed decisions for our growers to protect that crop. Um, as we look at pathogens, there are anything that can cause reduced growth, quality, and production. Um, we deal with about eight major groups of pathogens with plants, so fung fungi, fungal-like organisms, bacteria, phytoplasms, viruses, viroids, nematodes, and parasitic plants. So that's a wide range of different organisms, right? I would say my program focuses mainly on the fungal pathogens that are influencing uh, crop production uh, in, in corn and soybeans. Um, but I also want to acknowledge on the plant side, um, not only diseases, but weeds and insects can also impact, impact our plant health and food security on the crop side of things. Um, so just an example, there are global examples of plant disease epidemics that have impacted humans and environment. Um, the Irish potato famine, I mean, in the 1800s, shifted immigration. Um, the Dutch elm disease changed our American landscape. Um, and I'm here in Indiana, I think I've been brought to the piano because I'm currently dealing with tar spot of corn, so a new disease that came into the United States in 2015. I also have counterparts that are dealing with bitter rot of apple, anthracnose of strawberry, boxwood blight. We're also dealing with fungicide resistance of our new populations and how do we handle them if we lose our, our, our tools that we already are using to manage them. Downy mildew and cucurbits. Um, and also we monitor for the select agents. You know, an example would be Ralstonia that's listed on that select agent list for pathogens for the United States. Um, so tar spot of corn is my example of what we've been dealing with here in Indiana. Um, it was first detected here in the United States in 2015. Here in Indiana, it caused a significant yield loss and it's, it's expanded to surrounding states. Uh, for example, in 2021, uh, it caused about 50, it could cause up to 50% loss in some of our cornfields. And that's a significant impact to our ag production. If we look back for the, the, so we started really monitoring it at 18 when the disease took off in the crop canopy. It's caused about 59 million bushels lost to our U.S. corn production, which is about $2.9 trillion in lost revenue for our farmers. 
Here in Indiana, it's about 107 million bushels that we estimate is lost. Um, so that's about $489 million for the Indiana uh, growers. Um, so this is just one disease. Um, we can't really put up borders to keep these diseases from moving because some of them are blowing on wind and in spores and they survive in our residue. Um, but it's, it's important that we're out there monitoring it. So my team has been very involved in tracking this disease and collaborating with our diagnostic lab. Um, and also working with the industry and counterparts in surrounding states. Um, we utilize a national network of extension plant pathologists uh, from our land-grant institutions. I was actually with a couple just yesterday up in Michigan. Um, and so we also, you know, team up with the national IPM centers to track and monitor this disease and other ones, um, and in various crops. So that includes pathogens and insects as well. Um, but it's important for us to be connected to the farms and with extension. And I think that's the one thing that brought me to Indiana. It's a strong ag and strong extension uh, system that we have in place. And so I just can't emphasize the importance of that extension system in all 92 counties. Um, it allows us to provide a rapid response when we're hit with something like tar spot of corn. Um, we continue to see this disease spread. And uh, right now it's now been confirmed in 18 states and moved into Ontario, Canada. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting because the disease was in Mexico for over 100 years. And why did it take so long to get here? And there's many questions that we're still trying to answer because we're really five, six years into trying to research this here in the United States. Um, but I think here in Indiana, our strength is that we have Purdue, the land-grant institution. We're one of the top land-grant institutions in the country. Um, and we have programs that support our ag across the state nationally and the strong extension system. Um, on the disease detection side of the plants, I work closely with our uh, state Purdue plant diagnostic lab. It's the forefront of our disease detection in plants here, new or emerging, pathogens, pests, insects, weeds that would come into that clinic. And that can be from anyone from a homeowner to the industry side, sending us samples to try to confirm what's going on in the field. This lab is connected to our national plant diagnostic network. They'd also be con in connection with the USDA, AFS, and PPQ, if there was something that we hadn't found that they find. Um, in the plant system, we connect, are connected with this Indiana State Department of Ag, our industry counterparts, and then again, extension. Um, so I feel it's true, I'm truly fortunate to be a part of this, and it's critical we have this extension system in all 92 counties in Indiana. They're providing us a resource where I can reach out to all of those ANR educators and try to tell them to get out in the field and look for some of these new, new pathogens of concern in our crops. Um, that may impact our production. Uh, we have set up a great network of, of new and emerging diseases with the extension counterparts that I work with. We meet monthly all season long to talk about what's shifting in the United States. So if I hear that something's going on in Mississippi, I can keep an eye on is that path, pathogen going to move up and cause problems here in Indiana that we need to make sure our growers are out getting ready to make an informed decision to put something out to protect the crop. Um, so that's kind of an overview of what we've been doing in Indiana. So I do have a few suggestions for actionable items. I think it's important that we encourage collaboration and open sharing between the federal, state, and universities and private organizations. We also have to be uh, respectful of the privacy of our network and those, those, those farms and people we work with. Uh, I think we need to continue, if not, expand these fundings and program and extension in the diagnostic network, both nationally and state levels. I've seen regionally some of our extension programs have been constricted. They've gone to regional models, and we lose that boots on the ground people in the field to help us detect uh, these different issues. Um, and then, you know, there are great uh, examples of where extension teams up with other uh, uh, systems where we work with our commodity boards. I, I, I've seen in the, in the crowd, we have our Indiana corn and soybean uh, commodity boards here. We have people present. 
Um, but we also work with the United Soybean Board, so there's an example that they can come in and they backfill some of the funding we need for weed management. We have a soybean cis nematode coalition that's a public commodity and private cooperation that helps try to figure out a new, this disease that can cause a billion dollars in loss in soybean annually if we don't try to manage that. Um, so that's one suggestion. I think we also need to look at making sure we're backfilling some of the erosion that is occurring at the expertise in our land grant systems. Um, some of the, you know, our physicians uh, following retirements haven't been filled. And so that puts a lot of pressure on those of us that still remain within the system to then cover more than what was under our umbrella. Um, and so that's critical. In addition to providing funding for this basic research, we also have to have the applied and extension expertise ready to rapidly respond and give practical on-farm unbiased data in combating these threats when they have immediate risks to production. Uh, for example, we have lost a critical weed science position. We have not refilled our mycotoxin position for grain and currently no plans for a soil fertility position as that person retires. Um, and this is just here at Purdue, but it's not just here. I can see it regionally where we're not refilling some of these critical positions. And so it, it makes me worried for the future of how we have boots on the ground to monitor for these threats. Um, and the other thing is having these people in place to also train our next generation of workforce for the needs both in academia, industry, and government. I can't put out enough grad students the industry is asking me for. And I'm trying, but it's just, there's only, you know, we only can, our capabilities are so only so wide. Um, so we just really have to make sure that we have the scientists with the skills in place to monitor these pathogens in the future. Um, and it's important to try to integrate all the new technology. And we're working on that at Purdue. We have a lot of different technology initiatives working with AI and drone technology and detecting these pathogens. But we also need to make sure that baseline infrastructure still remains in place um, to provide proactive versus reactive reactions, not only here in the state, but nationally. And finally, I just have one more uh, comment on making sure we don't overregulate the tools we have in our pocket. Um, and I acknowledge we need to sustainably use pesticide products and other items, but if they're overregulated to the point of not being available, then they won't have, we won't have anything to try to manage or mitigate a new problem that we don't know is coming. And so I think that's really important. There's a current example about where they're trying to attack some herbicides out there on the market right now. But I think it's important to understand if we don't have these tools, we can no longer protect the crops that we're trying to produce the production and protect our, our food security here in the United States. Thank you very much. Uh, very thought-provoking, all of you. And um, I'm going to go ahead and just start with uh, a question. Um, so the, the extension agents that are educators, I'm sorry, you said extension. They used to be called agents, but maybe that... Some states they some state, okay, but here we call them extension educators. Um, are all of you working with the extension educators and are they all based through Purdue, just out of curiosity? And so is it, you have specific with plant expertise and different with animal expertise, or are they um, jacks of all trades, so to speak, in the agriculture sector? Well, they're jacks of all trades, but okay. Purdue is the hub. So Purdue right. hires all the county extension educators that are in our all 92 counties. Generally, we have an agriculture natural resources. That's their acronym educator for most counties. So they would focus on the crops, the animals of concern. We have 4-H educators on the youth education side. Um, so we do interact with them. So we bring them to campus every year or every year for trainings. Uh, I have monthly calls with mine that are involved in the field crop side of things. We have these calls to inform them of things that are going on. 
Um, so there is a good connection there between us at the at the unit, uh, state level for, um, to the counties as well. Do they take on investigative roles actually as well? If if a farmer, uh, you know, whether it is a you know, one of uh, their livestock or a plant, do they actually call them out to to help them do the analysis and help them decide where to go from there? They can. There are appointments in the Veterinary College and the Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab. There are extension appointments uh, for some of those faculty members and staff members. So there may be uh, site visits that are possible. We have collaborated with the university, for example, from the Board of Animal Health to go visit a site, depending on what the specific issue is. So extension is an important and critical component. I know I utilized it extensively over the years. They were often the ones who invited me to a local meeting right. to have a conversation about, so what are we trying to detect? How's the reporting system work? How do we proceed from here? So they're a critical component in our state. Okay, thank you. Want to add anything further? Uh, there's some There's some aspects of Purdue that you see at other universities, but are somewhat unique. And one of them is the we have campus specialists. So on campus, uh, faculty, like, do you have an extension? Yeah, extension. So we're both uh, tenure-track faculty, but we both have a partial extension appointments. Oh. Um, so that's a little bit different uh, from a lot of states, especially those in the South. Um, that uh, It really facilitates communication and, and better programming. Okay. Nice. Yeah, I would say so. You know, we're involved in. I have like a seventy percent extension appointment with my my appointment. So I I'm probably in thirty counties every year, giving updates to farmers, growers, consultants on what we're seeing on the disease side for field crops. It's just this is such a big crop, but that you know it. Yeah, we do have that great connection that allows us to interact with them, share what we're learning, and then also bring back bring back feedback should they see something new or emerging that we don't know about. Right. Terrific. Donna. Uh, thank you very much. I did want to point out to Dr. Uh, Ebner that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Iraq, right. and I actually visited the volunteers in Paraguay at one point. Really? Um, let me... Uh, has the anti-vaccine uh, movement, um, the anti-science movement that, that was before COVID, but certainly got stronger, um, filled over into veterinary science, into agriculture, um, the land-grant universities have had long relationships with the farmers in their state. Has that made a difference in terms of the acceptance of of new science, advice, guidance? Dr. Marsh? Yeah, that's a fair question. And indeed, we have seen some of that. There have been some in the companion animal world, for example, that may choose not to have their dogs or cats vaccinated uh, because of their position on COVID. What about the cows? Uh, the cows, generally not as much. But what we have seen is a debate about mRNA vaccines, and that was the basis of the uh, COVID vaccines. And so there was, are those that are saying, well, uh, because of the concerns about COVID vaccines and their developments, then uh, mRNA vaccines and livestock should not be used. The reality is that it's in early development. There's not a lot of those vaccines in the livestock community. And, of course, we want to embrace the best science we can uh, to protect animals and what about bovine growth hormone? Bovine growth hormone, uh, of course, that's a product that has been used in the dairy industry for a number of years. 
Uh, it's still being used, but there are some labeled products that say that it's not being used, as you may be familiar. So it 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 may be used on some sites, but there is a label on some that where it's not been used on production sites. Doctor Abram, um, internationally, I haven't seen I haven't seen that. I mean, there's always misconceptions. Um, there seems seems to be a lot surrounding animal agriculture, but I have not seen that uh, um, a rejection of science. On the plant side, we're not really dealing with vaccines. We're dealing with protected products. Yeah. But it's also science. No, and, and so I, I I guess I would come back to the trusting us, right? And so yeah. being an extension, there's a trust that we build. And so I haven't seen and it. And built over you build, Right. You build that rapport. So then, you know, and, and then if you share that information, they're very willing to accept it, especially if they see those things implemented on their own farm. So we do a lot of on-farm research throughout the system. We, we've set up, you know, I have Sentinel plots across the state to monitor things so they can see, you know, with some of our research programs on the farms, they can go out and have a, hand, you know, see a firsthand view of some of the importance of protecting some of these crops from the various diseases. Uh -huh. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Fred? Well, thank you. And I just got to start off and say, I, th I think Indiana has such a good reputation because they stole a Michigander to come down it. So thanks. Um, I actually, I have a, I have a couple of questions. Uh, I, I represented an ag district. Uh, fruit and vegetables, from asparagus to apples, uh, had uh, dairy, corn, turkeys, uh, but not number. I don't know where we are on the list, but we had a lot of turkeys where I was up in up in Holland, Michigan. Um, Isn't that how you got elected? Yeah. <laughs> Which finger is it? I don't remember. Okay. Uh, I have these certain initials, you know, you got to be careful. Um, but Doc, uh, usually takes a little while. Uh, doc, Dr. Marsh, you said that um, how many other states uh, register animals uh, in terms of locations like you do here in Indiana? Is that something that's pretty widespread across the country? Or Yeah, it's a fair question. And this actually started... Uh, at about 2003 to 2005 across the country, and it was very controversial. Uh, we're only the second state to require it at that time, and it's still that way. There's premises registration in states across the country, but it's voluntary. We're, we're one. Wisconsin's the only other state uh, that requires premises registration. Of course, the concern at the time was you'll know about how many animals I have, et cetera. Boy, that's of no consequence to us. Uh, we learned in 2003 with mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy in the cow of Washington State, it only took one to shut down the entire U.S. beef trade. So yeah, we we registered and again have had good success with that. So as an example, um, during the COVID era, I, uh, there was an area just outside of K College where Paul went uh, that had minks. Yes, uh, and uh, minks a carrier of COVID. Um, I don't. I, I don't know that they ever were registered with, you know, I learned about it and they, I think they had a, some escapees. So I think that's, that, that's a very important thing. Um, Paul, all, all, uh, oh, no, one more question. So you talked to uh, Dr. Marsh about um, the, the job that Indiana does with meat inspection. Yes. So we're on sadly the brink of perhaps a government shutdown uh, this weekend. Uh, there's some word that if, in fact, that does happen, that food inspection is going to dip dramatically. How will that impact Indiana? How, what's your relationship with the feds 
what what what's your sense if if we hit that uh, shutdown? That's a great question, and it, we have when we've had shutdowns in the past. There's been a negotiation with FSIS, the Food Safety Inspection Service, to continue those inspections. And of course, during COVID, it was the Defense Production Act that kept those sites open. So even during COVID, we could keep things going. We had workforce issues where we had employees that were concerned, et cetera, about uh, continuing to work. But our state meat inspection program is one of 28 in the United States. Not all states have them. Uh, we actually used the model of Michigan and how they had had a program in the past, and we wanted to, to keep ours here. It's a 50-50 fund between the, the state and the USDA, so we'll continue to work. Here it, it would have an impact, though. It would certainly have an impact, absolutely. Uh, and, and, Paul, you know, as I visited my, and I don't know when your ties still are to, are to Michigan, when I would visit my animal farms, particularly those animals that were contained, so some dairy, um, but particularly hogs, so uh, we've got some pretty large hog, uh, you know, 10, 15,000 hogs uh, all inside. Uh, often when I would go in the last number of years, you wore booties, gloves, hat. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about the last hog facility that I saw that was being built in Three Rivers, just south of Kalamazoo, actually had stainless steel uh, booths just so they could wash them down and rinse them to make sure that they were clean. Do you, do you see that similar in, in your travels overseas? I mean, is that even an anywhere close to a norm or, or not? No. <laughs> um, so a lot of these systems are incredibly complex. So um, you have these in, in more intensified farms coming in. And like they're, you're describing, it's enclosed facilities with high numbers. Um, the biosecurity there is lacking, but they're also part of a much bigger system which has backyard flocks and backyard pigs, wild animals. It has weak regulation um, or not enforceable regulation. Plus it has informal markets that are not regulated. Um, so what, what I think needs to happen is taking a systems approach to this. Like we can, buy, we can make this farm biosecure, this intense, intense system biosecure. Um, but, it's part of a huge system. And what I see is um, kind of piecemeal biosecurity, not taking into account that uh, this type of farm is part of a huge system versus this type of farm. They look very, very different. And, but they also have some of the same um, uh, very, very serious threats. So, yeah, I don't see that's, that's my big concern is I don't see... Uh, with intensification, I don't see biosecurity advancing at the same rate. And that leaves not only those farms, but the farms that existed before there, the systems that be existed before are highly vulnerable. And that makes us highly vulnerable. So I don't know if you're, if you're in a position to answer this, but I know that when we traveled overseas, when you come back on the customs forum, you fill out, have you been on a farm or whatever? Um, and if you check yes, what happens to that information? Does that come back to the to the state where you're from? Or they, I mean, what they take your boots and they clean them up. Yeah, they can't take your <laughs> shoes and clean them if you're dirty. I don't. I mean, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, yeah. I don't. So I say no. 
Actually, there is a request by many of the national commodity organizations that if you come back into the country and you've checked that you've been on farms and nothing happened, they want to know which flight you came back on and from where and which, uh, which airport you came in back to into the United States, because that's critically important so that we have those biosecurity checks in place. So, really, Is there a system, though, that does it get reported back to the state of Indiana? It doesn't come back to the state of Indiana. But if you have that experience, uh, whether you're the National Pork Producers or the Turkey Council or the National Cattlemen's Beef, they want to know where that is, and they're collecting that data so they can share that to TSA and others. Yeah. And, Darcy, I just want to say just a, a comment. Thanks for what you do. I, when I met with my farmers, and it was often, they really listened to the extension agents. Uh, they really had wonderful information on whether it be moths or, you know, yeah, I'm I'm unaware of this new corn blight. Uh, I got in Michigan. I like Indiana corn. It comes before Michigan. Michigan has got good <laughs> corn, but Indiana comes a little bit beforehand. But that there's such a wonderful relationship with our extension agents and our and our local ag community. And I'm glad that you were just outside of my district in the last couple of days. And I'm I'm sure that you saw that at your meetings. Yes. No. That's the one thing that's the strength out here, especially in Indiana, is we have the strength strong tie to our counties, and we can try to inform them and, and, and translate that science that's coming out of the university to be usable on farm. Yeah, really a big impact. Thank you. Terrific. Jim? We, uh, since this commission um, began, we've heard, um, uh, we've, we've had people talk about, we've thought about um, not just animal uh, pandemic, animal and plant agricultural pandemics, but um, uh, the use of, of bioterror, um, the use of agri ag agricultural products in a bioterror event using, uh, if, if for no other reason than just the commercial damage it could do, if you um, if a terrorist uh, created a, a pandemic, so to speak, um, using animals as vectors. Um, uh, but my, my, so my question is, is that, is that a real Real concern is it is is there have there been threats of that? Has it happened anywhere in the world? I mean, there have been papers written about it, but most of what you see about it is sort of theoretical, you know, hypothetical. It it could happen. We know of any events where actually it has happened, or anyone has attempted to use any kind of agricultural crop or uh, uh, or animal for a bioterror event. I'm not specifically aware of one here in the United States, but I think one of the things that we know, as I mentioned, foot and mouth disease, which would be of high consequence to the United States, exists in large expanses of the world. And so it's an easy virus to move if someone chose to. Um, I think there has been, as Dr. Ebner has talked about, biosecurity has been one of the cornerstones here in the United States, talking about making your sites more biosecure. Who comes on and off the site? How is feed delivered? How is rendering handled? How's veterinary care provided? All those kinds of things, the traffic on and off of sites, and particularly with the size of sites, as he's mentioned, uh, we we go from very small to very large, and so the consequences are different for each of those. But it's a fair question. I don't have any specifics of one here in the United States, but the vulnerability certainly exists. Now, here in Indiana, with uh, with a sow site that might have ten thousand sows on it, we have dairies with fifteen thousand cows. We have uh, poultry operations with 5 million layers on them, down to someone here in, in, in Indianapolis with three hens 
And so the risk is all up and down that continuum. So I think it's something we have to always keep in mind. When we receive calls about something that's out of the ordinary, even though it may not be front of mind, it's something that we always consider that someone had deliberately done it. One of the questions when we send out a foreign animal disease diagnostician, has anyone on the property been out of the country? As just part of the standard protocol to say, you know, where, the, where might have an exposure taken place? So it's a fair question. Yeah, it's good. I am not aware of any situations, but I, I do often think about how easy it could be, especially um, if you wanted to do economic damage. Um, a virus like African swine fever, incredibly durable, exists for months in undercooked pork, um, highly manipulable, and, and it travels. I don't know of any intentional ones, but I mean, I, I guess I'm dealing with one that was unintentional. We don't know how it got here, but, you know, and, and that had significant, has, has significant an impact here in Indiana on, you know, something we don't know. How do we, how do we adapt and, and, and affect that? You know, and some, some of our pathogens, we might be able to quarantine and, you know, corner off that area and, and we have tools available to implement those, but then others, depending on their dispersal. Um, is going to really dictate how that will influence, you know, and if a third of the state has a severe disease outbreak, you know, what are we going to do the next steps? So, Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Peggy? Well, thank you. This is really a rich um, discussion, and I think, you know, lots more to discuss and we're going to have time for today. Um, I have a couple different questions um, uh, that that perhaps overlap slightly, but not so much. Um, uh, one has to do with, you know, continuing this conversation about some of the disease reporting um, and sort of screening for risk uh, issues. And I, I, I hoped that perhaps you could talk a little bit more about what are the formal disease surveillance and reporting systems. You know, in public health, there are certain reportable diseases and there are certain um, ways of doing um, uh, syndromic surveillance or um, surveillance that isn't disease-specific. And then there are networks of disease reporting um, that are either formal or informal, where countries share information about emerging uh, risks, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that in animal health and agriculture, there are issues about uh, reluctance to report because many of the strategies for containment involve, you know, culling of of um, of flocks um, or um, you know other animals. So um, I'm just sort of curious if you think that that's an area where we have the right systems in place. Do we need stronger uh, mechanisms and and oversight? Uh, obviously, the kind of um, identification that you described helps you once you sort of know there's a problem in responding quickly and containing. Um, but I'm just interested in your sense of, of the current framework and if no, more needs to be done. Yeah, those are great questions. And indeed, we do have ongoing surveillance systems here in the United States for an, in animal populations, depending upon the disease. Uh, for example, if it's foot and mouth disease, uh, we have education programs about 
detecting, in that case, you have vesicular lesions. And so they may be on the snout, on the coronary band, at the top of the hoof, those sorts of things. So we're asking people anything out of the ordinary that looks like that to call us. This also takes place at the processing plants. And so the inspectors on those sites are looking for animals that are abnormal or unusual. For example, also right now for African swine fever and classical swine fever, we all samples that come to the diagnostic laboratory, uh, they run through a, a case definition. If they meet a case definition, then they become part of the national surveillance program for those diseases. And that's been ongoing for some time. It's been in place for classical swine fever for some time. It's been added now that African swine fever is in the Caribbean. So those are systems that are in place and constantly are looking. Uh, one of the th concerns that I have is the disease like African swine fever does not present with vesicular lesions. And so we've trained people to look for vesicular lesions, but in this case, it might be unusual mortality or extensive mortality. And so the, those surveillance systems are constantly in place. Our best measure is prevention, whether it's coming in from other countries. And so whether it's uh, travelers coming in, and if you have an opportunity, maybe you're familiar with the Beagle Brigade that USDA has. And so these dogs are constantly doing surveillance for luggage and packages that come into the United States, and they're quite effective. And a lot of product, uh, illegal product, that is, has been contained and, and kept from the country. So those are all procedures that are in place. Your, your comment with regard to reporting on the part of producers is really, really an important one because, and that's why it's critically important that state and federal governments continue to provide indemnification to producers for, with identification of disease. Because if that doesn't exist, then I may be reluctant to report. But if I can be made whole at least to a market value for the animals themselves, and then we also go through a process of depopulation, disposal, uh, cleaning and disinfecting the site, what we call virus elimination, number of procedures in place, that's supported by USDA in this case for high path haven influenza as an example. And that's really, really important because if that doesn't exist, and it is unique to the United States. Not all countries provide indemnification, and so uh, those diseases may persist. The other thing that goes with your question is that we want to be sure that we can diagnose and respond rapidly because we establish a control area around an infected site. So the producers that are within that control area are also affected because they have restricted movement and are placed under quarantine. They're not depopulated, but there's restriction placed on their movement. And we have to move quickly on the infected side at the middle of that circle. Otherwise, it's advantageous to be infected. So we need to move quickly to get them identified, depopulate the site so that we can release those control areas and other producers can go back. And therefore, continuity of business becomes really critical. You know, I guess the other piece of my surveillance question that I should have asked also um, has to do with um, sharing of information about animal and potentially um, plant health. And uh, people that are focused on human health. I was health commissioner in New York City. You may know that West Nile in the U.S. first emerged in New York City. Um, I was actually no longer um, health commissioner at the time, but still very much in touch. And everybody was very pleased with the response because um, the health department had been going out and doing grand rounds at different hospitals telling people, so it's not just the reportable diseases, the official diseases, but unusual clusters of disease. And so it was actually um, someone from an, an ICU, um, I think in Queens, who reported some unusual um, patients with encephalopathy, 
of, of unknown cause. And that led to further investigation and the diagnosis began to emerge. But it turns out that if we'd just been talking to the vets um, in New York City, both at the zoo and, um, and those observing um, die-offs of birds in the parks, we could have made the diagnosis more accurately and more quickly. Um, and, you know, increasingly we appreciate the importance of, of spillover diseases and so zoonoses in, you know, the majority of emerging uh, outbreaks and infectious diseases that we've witnessed in this country and around the world in the last few decades. So what about those communications? No, I think, and based on your experience, doctor, it has improved. Uh, for example, here in Indiana, the state public health veterinarian or state public health uh, from the Department of Health is a veterinarian who's the lead epidemiologist. And so we meet with them frequently. And so whether it was COVID in a lion at the fair at the zoo, for example, or, or animals at the exhibitions. So the interface between public health, uh, also our Department of Natural Resources and the wild populations, there's been a lot of work, whether it's in and and bank and farm situations or white-tailed deer, there's been a lot of work done on COVID work at wild species. So there's been a lot of interchange. We host uh, on a quarterly basis in my office what we call the state fed meeting. So it brings all the state and federal partners in at least on a quarterly basis to share this kind of information. So it's uh, it's really valuable for those diseases of consequence at the national level. There are, are weekly situation reports that are distributed across the country. So this is what's going on with highly pathogenic even influenza from coast to coast. And so those kinds of uh, directives have been shared out across the country as well. But to your point with regard to Dr. McNamara and the Bronx Zoo and others, I mean, you folks led the way and we have learned from that experience. And so our relationship with these other partners has become stronger. Can I get the indulgence of the sure. chair to ask one more sure. question where, where we have time, as yes, we do? Um, and, and maybe I'll, I'll um, target this to uh, Dr. Ebner. At the end of your uh, opening comments, you touched on antimicrobial resistance, or the use of antibiotics in animal populations um, uh, in other countries um, and its potential risk. I'm just wondering if we could sort of get a better sense of what's happening in this country around the use of antibiotics in animal feed. Um, you know, I think we all understand that antimicrobial resistance is a, a, a real and growing problem, and some think it may be the, the biggest biological threat we'll face over the course of time, but um, it certainly is, is a significant one. When I was FDA commissioner, we actually made some significant movement forward working um, with the veterinary community and with industry to, to um, make commitments about reducing antibiotics in animal feed. There were questions about how much the antibiotics in animals actually translate into um, uh, antibiotic resistance in humans, and there was a sense that we needed to understand more, do more research, do more ongoing surveillance, et cetera. But I'm curious, have we actually reduced the volume of, of antibiotics in animal uh, feed uh, in this country? Um, and are we better studying the relationship between antibiotic use in animals and antibiotic resistance in human Well, with your work with the FDA, the veterinary feed directives were put in place in 2017. And so in order to get... Uh, medically important antibiotics. So, of course, uh, those antibiotics that are important for human medicine, 
those had to be placed on prescription. So in order to get them in water and feed for animals, you had to get a have a relationship with a veterinarian and get a prescription for that. That started in 2017. I don't have that data right in front of me, but there's been a significant drop in the use of antibiotics and feed water since 2015 as a result of the veterinary feed directive. The last, and that was 96% of those medically important to antimicrobials, the last 4% were injectables, and those came under a prescription status in June of this year. And so I just gave a talk last Saturday to a group about how that has changed. And so because of those actions, uh, the use of those products has significantly changed. Uh, we'll have to see what impact that's had in the long run. Um, but, uh, of course, one of the primary concerns was access, whether I'd still have access to those products, but it was preserved through the veterinarian risk script. I will add that over 50% of the meat chickens produced in the United States are produced in uh, antibiotic-free systems. What percentage? Over, I think it's at 52%. So the broiler chickens produced in the United States are in uh, antibiotic-free systems. Um, the University of Minnesota produces a periodic report on antibiotic usage in livestock and poultry industries. And I can share that with you later, but you can see the, the decline across the different species. Great. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, Rachel, did you? Yes. Yeah. It I don't want to push too hard on African swine fever because it's been mentioned several times, but I think it's an important illustration of um, of, the, of a threat where it could be coming very easily across the border, even though we had testimony from um, a fellow who was with Customs and Border Protection right now on loan from USDA APHIS, where he said that uh, what was done in response to concerns about ASFE coming through someone's luggage was to train 78 more beagles. And that seems to me to be a fairly primitive response um, where it is something that could be spread either inadvertently, um, throwing something in the garbage that's, that's infected, uh, or it would present a really, really effective weapon. And the economic impact in this country where it's highly transmissible, highly virulent, great lethality, uh, has a reservoir in, in feral animals as well, could be really devastating. So my question really is, um, we talked before about, about culling and what the response to a transmissible disease in animals has been, which you find it through symptoms. Um, we don't necessarily have the best diagnostics. But in terms of looking for a deterrent, we don't have a vaccine. And I know that it's a difficult, at least for ASFE, it's very difficult. It's been difficult to develop a vaccine. But even if it were, if we had one, is the, is the deterrent that it needs to be so inexpensive um, and easy to administer, whether water, I mean, you can't inject, maybe with, with hogs, it is, it is possible or some animals, but why, why don't we, you know, if that's a deterrent to a use of a weapon. If you know that the, that the target is already vaccinated, it's not a good weapon. So what, how, does, how are those priorities developed, I guess, is the basis of the question. Um, and before you go on, uh, Brett, if you could talk a little bit more about how ASF is now uh, in in Haiti and Dominican Republic and what USDA's response has been with the U.S. territories. I think that would be helpful to the commissioners. Uh, there are two or three great items there. One of, one of the consequences of African swine fever being di diagnosed in the Dominican Republic 
is the first time it's been diagnosed in the Western Hemisphere in over 40 years. And so Haiti and the Dominican Republic, the island of Hispaniola. Of great consequence to the United States, not only because it's in the Caribbean, but because there's a lot of boat traffic between there and Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands territories of the United States. Through the World Organization for Animal Health, the Virgin Islands of Puerto Rico are diagnosed with African swine fever. That has consequence for the entire United States, and trade has gone overnight. And between 25 and 50 percent of the U.S. pork production, it goes into international trade, and that would quit immediately. So there are great consequences for that. So the United States has actually utilized a, a new protocol through the World Organization for Animal Health that identifies that area around those territories as a protection zone. And so if indeed that protection zone becomes infected, since there are additional procedures for that protection zone, then it would not impact the entire United States. So it's critically important that it's never been used before. It was a protocol approved just by WOA, the World Organization for Animal Health, just last May, May of 22, rather. And so the United States is the first to use it. So we're hopeful that it will be recognized if indeed we get that diagnosis. The Coast Guard and others have been really critical in watching the uh, and monitoring boat traffic amongst the islands down there. There's a lot of activity between the island of Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, for example. And so they'll intercept boats, return uh, uh, individuals back to the island of Hispaniola, et cetera. Because, again, a lot of meat products, et cetera, are exchanged uh, amongst family members and friends, et cetera. And that could have great consequence for us. Here in the United States, there is a pilot program. It's called the Swine Health Improvement Plan, and Indiana has been heavily involved in it. It is in its pilot program right now, but it would actually certify it hers in the United States uh, for freedom from African swine fever and classical swine fever. So we're working through that process. If we should get a diagnosis in the country, then testing protocols would be immediately launched, so there would be diagnostics put into place and in utilizing our diagnostic systems across the country. Uh, I learned at a meeting in Raleigh, North Carolina, just three weeks ago, that the Ag Research Service of USDA uh, uh, did indeed get an appropriate isolate uh, that they have shared. It's not uh, to commercialize it. It was taken to Vietnam, and so actually, there's a commercial ASF vaccine that's been developed in Vietnam. I can't give you the name of the company right now. I have to find it. Uh, but some of that vaccine was actually shipped to the Dominican Republic uh, to see if it could basically protect not only them, but the United States. Uh, as the early reports were, the results were not particularly encouraging. On the other hand, handling of the products important, refrigeration, transportation, administration, et cetera. So we're not sure how well it was done. But I'm with you. Uh, there is not a country on the globe that has stopped the spread of, the, of this virus. And so we need additional tools. Uh, at least with foot and mouth disease, we have a vaccine. If we have classical swine fever, we have a vaccine. And if the country, the United States, chooses to use it, there are actually vaccines for highly pathogenic avian influenza. But we don't for African swine fever available in the country. Uh, I actually had some USDA officials report to me and said, we, we might approve it if it's first diagnosed in the country. And I said, well, that's a little late. <laughs> I think we need it before then. So your questions are, are good, but I've encouraged at least by the work of our ARS to get a commercialized product in another country. One, one other question that came up as a result of the um, discussion earlier about the circus animals coming in. Um, it, we also heard about the Indiana State Fair as one of the largest in the country, and, and that's wonderful. Is, are, is there an effort to develop diagnostics or 
to, to use certain techniques besides just observation at the fair. What do you do at the fair in terms of screening animals when they come in? Yeah, that's a great question. I was asked several years ago by the Indiana State Fair to write a biosecurity plan. And I said, well, as long as we recognize that we break most of the codes of biosecurity at a, at a fair. <laughs> and just as long as we know that going in, because it is a, a large population there. Uh, I think the best example I can give to you is a collaboration we have actually uh, with the Buckeyes at Ohio State um, and, and, and influenza. And a decade ago, we had influenza viruses in swine and children. It was actually determined to be the same virus. And so we did a lot of testing and collaborated with Dr. Andy Bowman of Ohio State University to continue to sample pigs on an ongoing basis for influenza viruses at exhibitions. So that's one example of what goes on. Actually, his research has been quite fascinating because his work with influenza and swine and, and poultry has actually been beneficial and shares that with Jude Research Hospital for work in children. So it's, uh, it's been a real value, but it is of great consequence. We continue to monitor animals on the population. Uh, anything that's out of the ordinary gets reported. Uh, there are veterinarians on the ground. They're actually staffed by Purdue University's College of Veterinary Medicine, so there are veterinarians on the ground. Our office of the Board of Animal Health is actually on the state fairgrounds property. And so if there's something, we can dispatch someone to the, to the animal populations as well. Great question. There are lots of food um, of um, human outbreaks associated with petting zoos. I'm sure you're aware of that. Indeed. And we've been collaborating with the National Association of Public Health Veterans, and they've developed some documentation and collaboration with CDC. And we use that here in Indiana for those kinds of sites. Uh, and hand-washing stations and all these sorts of things uh, that have been put in place as a part of those recommendations. Yeah, it's good work. Well, let's please thank the panel for all of comments. All in this study. Danny, may I turn it over to my co-chair for some closing remarks? Thank you very much. Um, trust. If you have first-rate leadership at the top, this is what I've learned, um, and consensus among the people, a culture of working together, and you recruit a group of um, literally world-class professionals, uh, you could deal with anything. And um, it's been an honor and a pleasure to be in Indiana today to see a place that actually works, where people work together um, and uh, work out their differences. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about substantive uh, approaches. But within a the context of um, of really bipartisanship, and um, I I just leave here with a lot of hope for the future. And I want to thank uh, my co-chair, who's been a leader in Indiana for a very long time, for the invitation and for hosting us here. Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much, Jim. Anyone else want to make any comments? No. Any? Yes. Thank you. Okay. No, you've impressed and encouraged. Thank you. Very, very proud of all of the work um, that my fellow Hoosiers um, have done, uh, not only for decades, quite frankly, uh, for people who've been at the table and uh, offering up solutions, offering up uh, your passion, and uh, very proud of the meeting that we held here today. Uh, we are going to be issuing more reports we hope to take uh, your recommendations and ideas and thoughts, and we'll use these for future reports that we hope educate um, those who are representing us in Washington, D.C. and in the White House. So thank you all very much for coming. Uh, safe travels home. Thank you.